everyone should have the document now. So I'm going to share my screen and then we'll get right to it. Okay. So let's see. Okay. Can everybody see my screen? So you may have noticed I muted everyone in the chat box. I mean, I mean, I muted everybody so that, you know, we don't hear like stuff from people's homes and stuff. So uh, basically today, uh, so welcome to the course. My name is Divine. Uh, so today we're going to be going for 10 hours. Well, thankfully not 10 hours straight. Uh, we're going to be going for, you know, four hours. We'll take a two hour break. The four hours, take a two hour break. And then we'll do a, the last two hours and then we'll be done. So again, the total course duration is 10 hours. We have 343 questions we're actually dealing with today. Well, many of them have like up to like 10 parts, right? Um, so it's gonna be a, we're gonna be doing a lot of learning, right? We're gonna base ourselves. We're gonna cover IM, neurosurgery, behavioral science, biostats, right? The November 2020 changes and peaks. We'll, we'll cover some of those things uh, in other, in like tomorrow as well. Um, again, the big thing is, yes, we may take some breaks, but just kind of depends on how far along we are. If I see that, oh, okay, we've done pretty well on time, then I think we should be we should be good to go. Um, again, I'm going to upload the document one more time. Um, so uh, basically, I'll go till like the 50th minute of every hour, and then we'll go. I'll go ahead and take people's questions for the last 10 minutes. That's usually like ample time to answer everyone's questions. So, okay, so let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to be annotating my screen as we go along. So, so for now, if you have any questions, please uh, just write them down somewhere else. Don't put it in the chat box because it will mess up the writing on my screen. But again, I promise I'll get to everyone's questions. Okay. And again, I'll go at a very reasonable speed so that everybody can, can take notes. Okay. Perfect. Okay. So let's begin. All right. So uh, question one says we have a 29-year-old male. He presents with a three-month history of a stabbing, burning sensation in his left lower extremity. He is unable to participate in the physical exam as movement of the limb is limited by pain. The involved extremity is warm, swollen, and exquisitely tender to palpation on exam. He has a history of factor five lighting, and he had a right MCE stroke, right? So the thing is, whenever you see a person that has had a stroke of some sort, or trauma of some sort on MBM exams, and then you notice that they start having these autonomic symptoms, like really weird pain, really weird sweating in the involved area. And I want you to think about something called complex regional pain syndrome. So complex regional pain syndrome. But again, the thing is our friends at the MBNE, they are very wise, right? What do they do these days? They use like 10 different things for the same thing, right? So what's the alternate MBNE name you may see? So you may actually see something called causalgia. And you see that and be like, what? Causalgia? What is that? Right? That's just an alternate name for complex regional pain syndrome. And if you see me write DX, I mean diagnosis, which is this, right? MCC just means most common cause, right? So the most common cause of this is actually trauma. Whenever a person has some kind of trauma or some kind of injury to the involved extremity. Okay. Now, the next question says we have a 69-year-old male is evaluated for new onset abdominal pain and fever. He was brought to the hospital six days earlier with worsening mental status changes. In the emergency room, he was profoundly hypotensive and tachycardic, so he took him to the ICU. He 
It was found to have pneumococcal sepsis, became stable after they gave him cefepine. Cefepine is a fourth generation cephalosporin, right? So they gave him cefepine, and then they gave him normal saline. He has a history of hyperlipidemia, type 2 diabetes, and moderate hypertension. So he's on all these medications, right? And then notice he's alert, but he's febrile, he's hypotensive, he's tachycardic, he is tachypnic, right? And then we see he has like right upper quadrant tenderness. He has a leukocytosis, but his bilirubin is normal, right? So this guy, you know, I would hope you, uh, because I know some people may be thinking, oh, divine, this is probably sending cholangitis, but it's not, right? As we can see, um, this person, uh, you know, again, has fever, right upper quadrant pain, but there's no jaundice, right? Because the bilirubin is normal, or your bilirubin cannot be normal, and then you have jaundice. Um, and again, one thing I forgot to say at the beginning, so please let's adhere to the rules of the course as per the email. There's constant monitoring going on in the background, right? So this person, again, doesn't have ascending cholangitis, right? Because the bilirubin is normal, so you don't have jaundice, right? When we see this person, this person has had a prolonged ICU course, right? Really, really sick, not doing well. If you see stuff like this, I want you to think of acalculus cholecystitis. Whenever you see a person develop gallbladder problems, right, and they've had a prolonged hospital course, or they are very sick, the ICU patients, always think of acalculus cholecystitis, right? Now, acalculus cholecystitis, you don't take those people for a cholecystectomy because there's many studies that have shown just a worsening of morbidity and mortality. So for this, you're going to place a cholecystostomy tube. It's usually done by interventional radiology. Essentially, what you do is you go ahead and you place a drain, right? You will drain the person's gallbladder, decompress the gallbladder. Then a few weeks after, you, know, you can go ahead and perform a cholecystectomy. Okay. Now, question three says, red hot painful ears with chronic strider and a saddle nose deformity. Right? So we see this person, uh, many of these cartilaginous structures seem to be inflamed, right? Your ears, right? That's cartilage, strider, tracheal rings, cartilage, saddle nose, right? That's cartilage as well. If you see all those things together, I want you to think about relapsing polychondritis. And we'll say some more things about this in a future part of the course, I believe tomorrow. Relapsing polychondritis. Okay. Now, what's the differential diagnosis for saddle nose deformity? Well, this is one of those things, right? So you see polychondritis, chondro meaning cartilage. Right? So whenever you see, again, information of cartilaginous structures, think of that. So what's the differential diagnosis for saddle deformity? Well, that's one of it. Another one is going to be Wegner's. One think of Wegner's on your exams, right? Which is, you know, called granulomatosis with polyangitis. We'll talk about that in a bit, right? But I also want you to think about, with saddle deformity, I want you to also think about, like, congenital syphilis. Congenital syphilis, Right? It's also associated with a saddle nose deformity. Again, just all things to keep in mind for, for exams. Okay. And then question four says we have a 65-year-old female with a temperature of 103, so she's febrile. Her left thigh is swollen and exquisitely tender to palpation. That's what I mean by TTP. And then she has these red and purple splotches around the involved area. So very high fever, right? These called extremities. Right? This person has neck fash. This person has necrotizing fasciitis. But the thing is, again, the NBA needs their wise. Instead of putting neck fash, what can they put? They can easily put myonecrosis. It's the same thing, because most times, when people have neck fash, they're going to have necrosis of the surrounding muscle. Right? So that's the diagnosis. So what's going to be your next step in diagnosis? 
Well, again, MDSID, I mean, next best step in diagnosis, right? So the next thing you're going to do is you're going to go ahead and get an MRI. MRIs are very sensitive for the diagnosis of neck fash of myonecrosis, right? And your treatment strategy here is you're going to debreed. You're going to debreed, 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 right? And place the person on antibiotics. And those antibiotics, the key thing I want you to know is it must include clindamycin on your exam. Right? Because again, many times it's the toxin that's causing the problem. So it would make sense that you'd want to give some kind of protein synthesis inhibitor so that you stop making said toxin. That's very high yield to know for exams. Again, many things you see me say, yeah, things are very important, especially for the recent exams, which I imagine many of you will be taking. Now, question five says we have a 34-year-old male with a history of HIV. He presents with a two-week history of visual difficulty. Right? Head CT is notable for a solitary ring-enhancing supratentorial lesion, right? So in this question, let's basically talk about how we manage ring-enhancing lesions in HIV patients, right? So the first thing you're going to do is you're going to assume that this person has toxin. It's a great assumption to make because many times that's what's going on. So if a person has toxin, well, what are you going to do? You're going to give them pyrimethamine and sulfadiazine. So a common mistake that I've seen many med students make in you know, my tutoring on this exam is they'll go with Bactrim, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. TMP-SMX is for prophylaxis. It is not for treatment. I'll say it again. TMP-SMX is for prophylaxis. It is not for treatment. Okay, right? So you assume it's toxil, give them uh, pyrimethamine sulfadiazine. If they get better, then you're done, right? But if they don't improve, so if you see no improvement, no improvement, then you assume that they have a primary CNS lymphoma, right? You assume you have a primary CNS lymphoma, and then for that, you're going to do a brain biopsy. And if you see me write the word DX, I just mean biopsy, okay? So you do a brain biopsy in those circumstances. And remember that pyrimethamine sulfadiazine, sometimes you may see them add leucovorin to this on an exam. Because remember, folate synthesis inhibitors, they can cause a bone marrow suppression. You can prophylax against that or prevent that from happening or treat that bone marrow suppression with leucovorin, right? Leucovorin is an analog of folinic acid. It's an analog of folinic acid. It basically overcomes that folate inhibition. Okay, so let's go ahead and move on to the next series of questions here. I'm going to erase what I have on the screen. Okay, so let's hit up question six here. So we have a 32-year-old Japanese female, right, with fever, arthralgias, and chronic arm-slash-leg medication, right? And she has a unilaterally absent radial pulse. So we see a branch, a derivative of the an upper extremity artery having no pulse. If we see this, right, it's pretty easy, right? This woman has Takayasu's arteritis. So she has Takayasu's arteritis. Right? And again, whenever they're having these flares like this, the way you want to treat it is with steroids. You're going to treat it with, with corticosteroids. Okay? Most times it's branches of the aorta that end up having, having this problem. Okay. Now, next question says we have a 33-year-old female. She presents with a two-week history of pain and a burning sensation in her left thigh that radiates to the left leg. Okay? She's lost 10 pounds within the past month. 
That's no good. She also reports significant abdominal pain with meals. And then angiography shows a segmental aneurysmal dilation of the superior and inferior mesenteric arteries, right? I could have been a nice guy here and said, oh, angiography shows a string of beats pattern, blah, 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 blah. No, right? Again, if you're expecting buzzwords on your USMLE exams, I have great news for you. That's not going to be the case. The is these days is the same presentations, but they're just more descriptive, right? So basically what I just said there is essentially a string of beats pattern, right? So this person has polyarthritis nodosa. Polyarthritis nodosa, right? Now, what is the potential MDME biopsy finding? So if you were to biopsy this, like one of the vessels affected, what do you find on an MDME exam? Again, this is an unusual question, but it's something that they really care about is you would likely find a hep B surface antigen. Remember, many people that have polyarthritis nodosa, it has an association with having a history of hep B, all right? Now, what if it's a child, not an adult? If it's a child, you're actually looking more into the realm of strep pneumo. Strep pneumo is the most common infectious cause of polyarthritis nodosa in kids on MBM exams, right? And what is the organ that this does not affect? It's the lungs. PAN classically will spare the lungs on exams. Okay. Now, question eight says, we have a 27-year-old male with recurrent otitis media, saddle nose deformity, cavitary pulmonary infiltrates on imaging, three plus proteinuria, and red blood cell casts, right? So the thing is, again, many of us are used to like, oh, lower respiratory tract things, sinusitis, and nephritic syndrome, Wegener's, right? But again, your friends at the end have started expanding their tentacles for what constitutes upper respiratory stuff, right? It can be sinusitis, it can be otitis media, it can be mastoiditis, right? Basically, any major infection of the head and neck qualifies as the sinusitis for Wegener's. Remember, Wegener's, it's also known as granulomatosis. Granulomatosis with polyangiitis. Granulomatosis with polyangiitis, right? And this is probably the only C. anchor related pathology you would ever need to learn at least for the next few years. There are other C. anchor pathologies, but that's beyond the scope of our discussion today. So now, how do we treat this stuff? Remember, we're going to give these people steroids, right? And cyclophosphamide. Steroids and cyclophosphamide, right? And one thing they can ask you is, oh, if you were to biopsy these people's kidneys, what are you going to find? I hope you're saying, oh, we're going to find crescents. Crescents within the glomeruli, right? Remember, it's a crescentic glomerulonephritis, right? Again, that's one of the ways they bring step one material into step two CK. They ask you about biopsy findings in organs. Now, question nine says we have a 38-year-old male presents with a two-week history of wrist drop, okay? A new S3 heart sound is heard on auscultation of the chest. He was diagnosed with asthma a year ago. It's kind of weird, right? Most people get diagnosed with asthma as kids, not as adults, right? And then, but has been well-controlled albuterola and hilbudesonide. And look at his IgE, super, super high. Whenever you see stuff like this, right? I want you to think about Chirk Strauss. Remember, Chirk Strauss, the thing you will see, the, and you know, sometimes it's called EGPA, eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangitis. It's basically Wegener's with eosinophils tacto for the name, right? Basically, Chirk Strauss, you're going to see a person that has 
an adult that has like asthma diagnosed at a weird time. And then you'll have a lot of peripheral neuropathy and you may have some cardiac issues. Those are the three things I want you to look for with truck straps. Adult with asthma, peripheral neuropathy, cardiac issues, right? And remember that this is associated with PNK. And we treat it actually the exact same way as Wegner's, right? They're going to give steroids, steroid and cyclophosphamide. They're going to give steroids and cyclophosphamide. That's how you manage jerk straps. Okay. And many times the eosinophils, the IgE will be super high. Okay. Now question 10 says we have a 45-year-old Caucasian female presenting with worsening epigastric pain and vomiting. Okay. She was diagnosed with H. pylori gastritis three months ago and completed triple therapy. Okay, so very right. But look at this. EGD with this admission is notable for persistent gastric ulcers and a large posterior antral ulcer with raised edges. This triple therapy does not appear to have worked out really well for this patient, right? Whenever you see stuff like this, I really want you to think about this person potentially having amortor, right? I mean, your next step in management is you're going to perform a biopsy. You're going to perform some kind of biopsy. This person has amortor, right? This person has amortor. So now, what is the likely biopsy finding on histopathological analysis? What are you likely going to find? Well, the thing is, remember, amortomas are B-cell lymphomas, right? So these B-cell lymphomas, right, you're going to find germinal centers. You're going to find Geminal centers, right? When you're performing your biopsy, right? So you're going to find germinal centers. Now, the way you manage this, many times these people actually respond pretty well. Many times these people respond pretty well to triple therapy. They're just going to give them like high dose triple therapy for H. pylori. But if you don't see that as an answer, many times you then move on to rituximab. Remember, rituximab is a monoclonal antibody against CD20. That's high yield to know for exams. Now, what is another potential site of a similar lesion in the GI tract? Where else can you see more tumors? Well, I hope you're seeing oh, divine. You can find this in the terminal ileum, right? The terminal ileum, if you remember from step one, that's where we have these pyres patches, right? It's no surprise that many inflammatory disorders in the GI tract involve the terminal ileum, like Crohn's, Crohn's disease will always affect the terminal ileum on exams for that specific reason. Now, how do you test that people have been cured of H. pylori? The thing is, your friends at the MBME, they will try to trick you into picking an answer that involves antibodies. But again, once positive for antibodies, you'll always be positive. One thing the MBME really cares about these days are tests of cure. So the test of cure here is going to be the urea breath test. It's going to be the urea breath test. Now, question 11 says, we have a woman from Iran with a three-month history of left knee pain, oral and genital ulcers, and visual difficulty, right? So we see a woman from a Middle Eastern country, right, having like ulcers on the mouth, on the genitals. If you see that, I want you thinking of Bechet's disease. Bechet's disease, right? I want you thinking about Bechet's disease. And Bechet's disease, remember classically, when you want to make the diagnosis, you're going to do something called a pathology test. It's basically a test where you make a specified nick in the skin, right? And by making that nick, you will have like a specific like 
reaction. There's a kind, specific kind of ulcer that forms. The picture is pretty disgusting, so I decided not to put it in this document, right? So you can look it up on your own private time. But basically, right, you see, you do that pathology test, and I'll see some more things actually about Bichette's disease tomorrow. Okay. Now, question 12 says, what should you think about when the MDME mentions low amplitude, short duration, polyphysic motor unit potentials on an EMG? So the thing is, EMG findings, there are some specific ones that the MDME kind of expects you to know. Whenever you see stuff like this, I want you to always think about a myopathy. So it's something that you sadly need to commit to memory. So I want you thinking of a myopathy, right? Now, I have an addendum question here. What if you see proximal shoulder and hip weakness with a normal creatine phosphokinase in a 22-year-old female on chronic therapy for severe persistent asthma? So we're seeing a person, right? They're on therapy for severe persistent asthma. They're probably on oral steroids, right? If you see this, I want you to think of a steroid myopathy, a steroid-induced myopathy. One concept I think I want to explain here is many times when people have myopathies that are associated with endocrinology, it tends to be associated with uh, it tends to be associated with uh, a normal creatine phosphokinase. Okay, it tends to be associated with a normal creatine phosphokinase. So, like a hypothyroid myopathy, yeah, creatine phosphokinase usually will also be normal. The only difference is sometimes it can be a little elevated, but don't let that fool you. If you have like a legit myopathy, like polymyositis, your CPK is going to be in the thousands usually. Okay. Now, question 13 says, right knee pain that is worse with passive extension of the knee. The knee is swollen and warm with overlying erythema, right? So we see a joint. The joint is red, it's hot, it's tender. Your next best step in management, that's what I mean by MBSIM, right? You're going to tap the joint, right? But you're not going to put tap the joint as an answer. You're going to put the fancy word atherosynthesis. This is why we all went to med school, right? To run fancy names for things. Now, what's the most common cause of septic arthritis, which this person has, right? It's going to be staph aureus, right? It's going to be staph aureus. And if you see a sexually active young female, especially a sexually active young female, with skin findings. I'm telling you, watch out for this. You see a person that has septic arthritis, and you notice that you have like skin petechiae, I want you to think about gonorrhea, from Neisseria gonorrhea, right? Now, they like doing this thing where they'll say, oh, the atherosynthesis, we know we didn't find any bugs, gram stain was negative, blah, 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 you don't see anything. Is that diagnostic? No. You're still gonna treat the person so that you don't completely thrash that person's joint. So a negative atherosynthesis is, doesn't mean the person doesn't have septic arthritis. That's very high yield to know for MDM exams. Okay, so let's move on up here. Let me erase this and go up. Okay, so this page will definitely be a lot of attention, right? You're going to see immunodeficiency diseases on your exam. I can pretty much almost promise you that, right? So this is the immunodeficiency diseases page, although... I'll talk about a few more in later parts of the course. So, question 14 and 15, right? I give it two numbers because there's just many parts. First one says, recurrent pneumocystis gerovetsi infections in a seven-month-old boy with reduced levels of all immunoglobulins but IgM. So, notice here, everything is low except IgM. If you see this, I want you to think of hyper-IgM syndrome. Hyper-IgM syndrome, right? And 
For some of these things, you'll see me emphasize the mode of inheritance. It's high yield to know the mode of inheritance. But as a general rule, in case you forget on your exam, if you get an immunodeficiency diseases question and you're asking for the mode of inheritance and you've just forgotten, you don't know what to pick, always go with X-linked recessive. About 80% of the MBME-associated immunodeficiency diseases have X-linked recessive inheritance. Okay, so this one is X-linked recessive inheritance, right? So what's the pathophysiology here? The pathophys here is that this person has a class switching problem, right? Because if you remember from step one, the first immunoglobulin you make to any infection is IgM. Well, you're supposed to class switch to IgG, IgA, IgE, right? So, but if you have problems with CD40, CD40 ligand interactions, you're not going to class switch. If you don't class switch, you'll make those other antibodies, right? So you have a problem on your hands, right? And because this is an antibody-based disorder, you're going to treat this with IVIG. You're going to treat this with IVIG, right? You're going to treat it with IVIG. Basically, many times on exams, one thing that really helps, right, is again, just knowing certain key roles. Antibody deficiency disorders, IVIG works great for them. Now, look at the next one. We have a six-month-old boy. He has recurrent bacterial infections and tonsillar hypoplasia, right? So, and in this case, all immunoglobulins are low, including IgM, right? If you see this, I want you to think about Burton's. Burton's E-gamma globulinemia. E-gamma globulinemia. E-gamma globulinemia, okay? I want you to think of Burton's. The reason we have all the immunoglobulins low is their B cells just don't mature, right? So the pathophase here is a failed B cell maturation, right? And that happens because uh, receptor is mutated, the BTK gene. The BTK gene doesn't work. So your B cells cannot, they basically never mature, right? So if they don't mature, you're not gonna make antibodies. So you're gonna be in deep trouble, right? And again, this, has X-linked recessive inheritance, right? In fact, many B-cell structures are hypoplastic in these kids, like their tonsils. And if you notice, it's not showing up until around six months. Why? Because you still have passive immunity from those IgGs from mom, right? So X-linked recessive inheritance, right? And again, because this is the antibody deficiency disorder, we're going to give them IVIG. Now, the next one says one month old, right? So you see the timeline very different here. One month old with recurring viral fungal bacterial infections from birth, right? This is SCID, right? Severe combined immunodeficiency, right? Many of us know that this arises from an adenosine deaminase deficiency, a deficiency of adenosine deaminase, right? And this actually is inherited in an autosomal recessive fashion. But again, your friends at the MDME, they know that we live in an unkeyed generation. Everyone has committed this stuff to memory. So what do they do these days? Occasionally, SCID can be caused by a mutation in the interleukin-2 receptor, right? The interleukin-2 receptor, right? Especially the gamma chain of the interleukin-2 receptor. This particular one has X-linked recessive inheritance. So there's such a thing as X-linked recessive SCID you need to know about an autosomal recessive skin, right? The way to remember is, you see autosomal has A in the knee. Adenosine has A in the knee. That's the way to keep it straight. Autosomal recessive, adenosine diaminase. All right. Okay. Next one says we have a seven-month-old boy 
cast no finite shadow on a newborn chest X-ray. His initial postpartum period was complicated by multiple seizures and runs of VTAC that required electrolyte repletion, right? So he had all these seizures, had VTAC, right? That's probably from his hypocalcemia, right? So we see a child, he has low calcium, right? Has no finite shadow, right? So we're really thinking, hmm, calcium and thymus, calcium and thymus, calcium and thymus. You put it all together, right? It's going to be the George syndrome, right? And remember, the George syndrome is a chromosome 22Q11 problem, right? So essentially, these kids, um, uh, they're going to have no finite shadow because, again, their third and their fourth pharyngeal pouches did not form, right? So the third and fourth pharyngeal pouches did not form. If those pouches don't form, then you're not going to form a thymus, right? So they're going to have a T-cell problem, right? That's why you're going to be getting all these viral and fungal infections, right? Many times, immunodeficiency disease questions, you get them right just by knowing the bulk pattern, right? If you're seeing a lot of viral, fungal, pneumocystis, strovetsi, uh stuff going on, if you're seeing all those things, I want you to think more along the lines of a person having a T-cell problem, a cell-mediated problem. If it's primarily bacterial infections, you want to think more along the lines of a B-cell or a humoral immunity problem, right? So this kid has the George. Okay. Now, next one says we have a six-month-old boy with spontaneous nosebleeds. When the person that just came in, I'm going to put in the file in the chat box real quick here. So just download it from the chat box. Okay, let's continue. So, six-month-old boy with spontaneous nosebleeds and chronic bloody diarrhea. He has had recurring bacterial infections. Examination of his upper extremity shows a red itchy rash on his extensor surfaces, right? So look at this. I could have said, oh, a boy presents with eczema, uh, thrombocytopenia, blah, 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 blah. No, I didn't do that, right? All I had to do was show you that his platelets were low by all these bleeding, chronic bloody diarrhea, nosebleeds, right? And then I described eczema. If you see this, this is going to be Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome. Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome, right? Remember, Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome, it actually arises from a wasp gene mutation. And again, like many of these immunodeficiency diseases, it has X-linked recessive inheritance. Okay? It has X-linked recessive inheritance. Okay. Next one says, and again, if you see me not talk about like treatment for something, that means it's beyond the scope of the USMLE exams. So I'm not going to worry about those. Okay. Now, recurrent episodes of meningococcal meningitis, right? So if you see a person getting recurrent serial infections, right? That's a C5 to C9 defect, right? That's a complement pro uh, uh, problem, defect. Sorry, that's an E, right? Uh, let me just erase that. So they have a terminal complement protein defect. But is there a drug that could cause this problem? Well, I hope you're seeing yes, right? The drug that can cause this problem is eculizumab. Many of us have heard of eculizumab in the distant past as one of the treatments for PNH paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, right? So how does eculizumab work? Because remember in PNH, which we'll talk about later, right? These membrane attack complexes, they just explode your red cell. So you're like, you know what? Let's make the membrane attack complex not form. So you give a monoclonal antibody against the C5 complement protein. If you inhibit that, then your membrane attack complex won't form because you literally, C5 through C9, they need to show up. So if you kill C5, then C6, C9 will be like, Okay, C5, where are you, right? 
and then they cannot explode your red cells. That's how we cure PNH, right? But you're essentially using a drug to induce a terminal complement protein defect. That's going to predispose you to recurring nicerial infections. So if they give you nicerial sepsis in a person that has a history of PNH, think of it, and they say, oh, what's the most likely risk factor for this person's meningococcal sepsis? I want you to think of echolizumab. That's a very nice way to make that integration on exams. Okay, so hopefully that makes sense. Okay, now, in fact, many times people get the meningococcal vaccine before they have started on echolizumab. Now, next one says intermittent edema of the upper extremities in a 23-year-old female. Her father had similar episodes and required endotracheal intubation after a severe reaction to lisinopril. That's a little excessive, right? Like, you took lisinopril and ACE inhibitor, and then you need intubation afterwards, right? This person has hereditary angioedema. This person has hereditary angioedema, right? And remember, what's the thing that causes this? It's a C1 esterase inhibitor. Not C1 esterase, C1 esterase inhibitor deficiency. It's a C1 esterase inhibitor deficiency, right? So these people, because they have that deficiency of C1 esterase inhibitor, they're not going to be able to break down bradykinin. If you can break down bradykinin, that's a problem, right? Because you can close up your ear, we can do all these nasty things to you, right? So the thing is, how is this inherited? This is actually inherited in an autosomal dominant fashion. So these people, why should they not take ACE inhibitors? Well, the thing is, ACE, the enzyme, can help you break down some bradykinin, right? That's literally like one of the other major pathways you have left if you have a C1S raise inhibitor deficiency. So... If you then kill ACE with an ACE inhibitor, then you have no breakdown of radicanine anymore. You're going to have lots of problems. Okay. Now, the next one says we have a three-year-old male with recurrent sinopulmonary infections. He has silvery hair and frequently has sunburns in the summer. That's me telling you this is an albino, right? But again, instead of saying albinism, the NBME, what they will do instead is they will say, oh, the person has silvery hair, frequent sunburns, right? So, bone marrow biopsy shows blast cells with intracellular giant inclusion bodies. Neurologic exam is consistent with pain and temperature loss. These kids tend to have peripheral neuropathy in a stocking and glove distribution, right? So if you see this, I hope you're saying, oh, divine, this person has Chidiac Higashi. Chidiac Higashi, right? And the thing about Chidiac Higashi is it actually arises from a list, L-Y-S-T gene mutation, right? Now, your friends at the end actually expect you to know a little more about Chidiac Higashi than the average person, right? So what's the most common cause of infection in Chidiac Higashi? This is actually how you to know. These kids tend to get Staph aureus infections, right? And then another high yield thing to know is that Chidiac Higashi has a very strong association with recurrent dental infections. So if you see an, uh, a kid, they may not even give you that the kid has albinism, right? We see the kid and they tell you that, oh, he's getting all these staphylococcus infections and a lot of dental, dental infections, right? Many times, you'll have this thing called periodontitis, periodontitis, periodontitis. If you see this, I want you to think about Chidiac Higashi disease. Okay. Now, recurring staphylococcus abscesses, right? So you see a person, you're having all these abscesses from staphylococcus. You see this, this is pretty easy, right? This is going to be CGD, chronic granulomatous disease, right? So remember, CGD also has X-linked recessive inheritance. So if you see a girl with an immunodeficiency disease and you pick CGD, I wish you all the best, right? So again, it's X-linked recessive inheritance. 
So it's only going to show up in bones. So what's the thing that's deficient here? It's going to be NADPH oxidase, right? So it's an NADPH oxidase deficiency, right? So these people, they're going to have a lot of problems dealing with catalase-positive organisms, right? So how do we diagnose this stuff? How exactly do we diagnose this? Well, remember we can do the NBT test, the nitro blue tetrazoleum, so NBT, right? So we can do the nitro blue tetrazoleum test, right? But another test we can do these days is the dihydrorhodamine assay. If they give you both, pick the second one. It's a lot better than the NBT test. And remember, the MBT test, because many people think that, oh, if you're positive for a disease, then you have the disease. No, no, no. The MBT test, if it's negative, you have CGD. I'll say that again. The MBT test, if it's negative, it means your, you know, that your uh, myeloperoxidase pathway is not working. You're going to get a negative test, right? So if your test is negative in the MBT test, you have CGD. Okay. And the way we're going to treat this is... We're going to treat this with interferon gamma. Because the thing is, MBT, uh, this uh, CGD is primarily a problem with neutrophils. It's your neutrophils that really, really suffer. It's a neutrophil problem. So by giving interferon gamma, it's almost like you're telling the macrophages to come and pick up the slack. That's very high yield to know. For example, that it's a neutrophil problem. Now, the next one says, three months old with periumbilical cellulitis and a fever. His umbilical stump was surgically removed seven days prior. This is a three-month-old. The umbilical stump should have fallen a long time ago. If you see this, this is easy, right? This is leukocyte adhesion deficiency, right? And this one usually is going to be an integrin defect. But again, there are many kinds of integrins. So your friends at the end, you need to go to town on this stuff, right? So you may see something like, you may say that, oh, the person has an LFA1 defect, right? Or you have a Mac one defect. If you see any of these things, even CD18, these are all things that don't work in people that have leukocyte adhesion deficiency. So LFA1, MAC1, and CD18, and integrin. Integrin is probably the most common answer they throw on exams. Now, question 16 says, we have a 55-year-old male with trouble climbing stairs and shampooing his hair. Okay, so all proximal muscle stuff. Look at this. He has tripped and fallen multiple times over the last few months, and has also had trouble playing the piano, right? So you see a lot of proximal muscle things, a lot of distal muscle things as well, right? He also has profound asymmetric weakness of his quads, forearm, and hand muscles on physical exam, right? If you see a person having a myopathy that involves both proximal and distal muscles, I want you to think of inclusion body myositis. That's the classic presentation on MDM exams, inclusion body this. Now, question 17 says, right knee linear chondrocalcinosis of the articular cartilage in a 45-year-old male with knee-onset diabetes and skin hyperpigmentation, right? So we're seeing a person that has diabetes and skin hyperpigmentation. We know that, oh, this person probably has hemochromatosis, right? So what's the joint disorder that has an association of hemochromatosis, right? That's going to be CPPD, right? Calcium pyrophosphate dihydrate deposition disease. Whenever you see this buzzword, chondrocalcinosis, I want you to think about CPPD on your exam. Okay? It has an association with people that have hemochromatosis. Hemochromatosis. 
For some reason, a lot of calcium just begins to deposit in the articular cartilage of those people's joints, and then they get into trouble. Okay, now question 18 says, acute onset, and many times these people respond well to NSAIDs. NSAIDs, okay. Now question 18 says, acute onset of severe first MTP tenderness, redness and warmth in a patient being treated for CNL, right? So see this person, they're being treated for malignancy, right? Where they've maybe killed a lot of cells, right? So they probably have hyperuricemia, right? This person has gout, right? This person has an acute gout. So what are some drug triggers for gout, right? Remember, classically, it's going to be your thiazides, right? And it's going to be your loops, right? And you can also get it in the setting of tumor lysis syndrome, like this person did, right? Because again, you're killing many cells, so you're making a lot of, you know, uric acid, right? So tumor lysis syndrome. So for these people, if they have hypertension, how are you going to treat them? You're obviously not going to give them a thiazide or a low, right? So the thing you're going to give is you're going to give losartan. Losartan is the antihypertensive of choice in people that have gout. The reason there is it's a uricosuric drug. So it lowers their blood pressure, but it also makes them excrete more uric acid. Now, how do we acutely treat gout? How do we acutely treat gout? Well, if acute treatment for gout, we're going to start with an NSAID, right? Remember, COX-2 inhibitors, right, like selecoxib and stuff like that, they are not treatment for gout. They don't do squat for gout, right? NSAIDs, not a COX-2 inhibitor, NSAIDs are drugs of choice for gout. That's first line, right? Second line is going to be a steroid. If NSAIDs don't work, you can add on a steroid. If that doesn't work, you can add on cochicine. Cochicine, right? So how do we treat a person with an elevated creatinine? Right, where your kidneys are not working. If your kidneys don't work, you have no business taking an NSAID or cochicine, right? So in that case, you're going to proceed with giving steroids. We're going to give steroids, right? And how do we chronically treat gout? Well, we're going to give a xanthine oxidase inhibitor, right? We're going to give a xanthine oxidase inhibitor like allopurinol, for example. Allopurinol. Allopurinol or, you know, febuxostat. Notice how febuxostat has an XO in the name. It's an XO inhibitor, okay? That's a nice way to remember that. Now, question 19 says, always tired, hurts everywhere, right? Diffuse tenderness to palpation on physical exam, right? So we see this person, they'll tell you that they have multiple points of tenderness, and it's going to be a woman. It's not going to be a man on your exam. It's going to be a woman, right? If you see this, I want you to think of fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia, right? And these people, they'll have normal labs, their labs are going to be normal. Your ESR, CRP will be completely fine, right? So how do we treat fibromyalgia on MBM exams? Well, remember, you can use an SNRI, right, to treat fibromyalgia, right? You can use pregabalin, right? You can use, uh, uh, so an SNRI, actually, let me be more specific here. You can use things like duloxetine. Duloxetine is great. Another classic one is Melnacipra. Melnacipra. They are great for fibromyalgia. You can also use tricyclic antidepressants to treat fibromyalgia. Either of those are completely acceptable as treatment for fibromyalgia on MDM exams. Okay. So let's erase what's here. Move on to the next page. Okay. 
Okay. So question 20 says, so we have a 22-year-old Caucasian female. She presents to the ED with a three-day history of productive cough, shortness of breath, and high fevers. Right? Over the last six years, she has had, so this kind of started in her teenage years. She has had five episodes of pneumonia and has required many courses of vancomycin therapy for staph warriors bronchitis. She was previously diagnosed with malabsorption that failed to improve with gluten exclusion from the diet. Right? Labs are notable for decreased serum IgG and IgG levels. If you see this, I want you to think about CVID, chronic common variable immunodeficiency. Right? Again, these people will have these problems that start in their teenage years. It doesn't start as newborns. If you see that, oh, there are problems that as newborn, it's not CVID. Simple as that. So how do we treat these people? Again, this is an antibody-based disorder, right? So you're going to treat these people with what? With IVIG, right? And then what's the most important complication of this disorder? It's actually autoimmune disease. Again, your friends at the MBME, these days they care about risk factors, complications, most likely outcomes of disorders, right? So the most important complication is autoimmune disease. Many of these people are going to develop autoimmune diseases. Now, question 21 says, nail pitting, digital ischemia in cold weather, and chronic heartburn, right? So we're seeing this person, they have like nail pitting, they're having a Reynolds phenomenon, they're having like esophageal problems. This is easy, right? This person has scleroderma. Scleroderma, right? Scleroderma, right? Especially Crest syndrome, right? And remember, this is your anti-centromere antibodies, right? Now, what's the most common cause of death in scleroderma? What is the most common cause of death in scleroderma? This is actually going to be pulmonary hypertension. Pulmonary hypertension is the most common cause of death in scleroderma. Now, what if a person with scleroderma has schistocytes, low platelets, look at their blood pressure, 250 over 130, and a very high creatinine, right? They have a renal crisis. This is what we call scleroderma renal crisis, right? And the drug of choice for scleroderma renal crisis is an ACE inhibitor, right? You're not going to give any other thing but an ACE inhibitor. ACE inhibitors reduce morbidity and mortality in scleroderma renal crisis. Now, what is the pulmonary manifestation of Crest syndrome? What is the pulmonary manifestation? So how does it manifest in the lungs? Because the thing is, these things, I definitely pay attention to these questions here, are very important, right? So the thing is, people that have Crest syndrome, people that have diffuse scleroderma, they both get pulmonary hypertension, but the pathway there is different. People that have Crest syndrome, they have pulmonary vascular hypertension. If I broke the actual pulmonary arteries, or well, their lungs are normal, right? Contrast this with people that have diffuse scleroderma. These people tend to have interstitial lung disease, right? They have interstitial lung disease. They have pulmonary fibrosis. And then that is what they, that then leads to pulmonary hypertension. So their lungs are abnormal. Their lung parenchyma is fibrous. Very important to know those differences. Now, the skin involvement with Crest syndrome, right? So it's actually high yield to know. I always teach this as involving one half of the extremities. One half of the extremities. Right? So what do I mean by that? So if you see me, right? If you see my arm, from my elbow to my fingers, that's one half of the extremity. Elbow to fingers, or from knees to toes. That's what's impacted in people that have crest scleroderma. Okay? It's not the whole extremity, it's from one half of it to the more distal part. But in the few scleroderma, right, 
is the entire extremity that's affected. Entire extremity. That's a very useful differentiating point on MBM exams, right? So like from the shoulders to the fingers or from the hips to the toes. That's very important to know. Now, what is the classic rheumatologic drug to avoid in scleroderma? I hope you're seeing Odeva in steroids. You've done many studies that have shown steroids to worsen morbidity in scleroderma. Never choose steroids as the right answer ever for scleroderma in your test. Now, question 22 says, recent spinal imaging with, right, so they probably got gadolinium, right? So recent spinal imaging with wood-like induration of the extremities that spares the digits, right? If you see this, right, I hope you're saying, oh, divine, this person has nephrogenic systemic fibrosis, right? NSF, nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. And one thing your friends at the MDMA love to do these days is they will ask, oh, what is the biggest risk factor for NSF? This is actually having a history of chronic kidney disease. That's why if people have chronic kidney disease, you better think twice before ordering an MRI with contrast because gadolinium is not very good in those people. Okay, let's do this last question and then I'll take people's questions. Right? So, first one says, butterfly rash beneath the nose and lower lip that worsens with sun exposure plus chronic joint pain, right? This person has lupus, right? This person has SM. Now, hemoglobin is 8 with a positive Combs test. So, why would a person with lupus have a low hemoglobin and a positive Combs test? Well, they have an autoimmune hemolytic anemia, right? So, they've made autoantibodies that are attacking their red blood cells. Right? That's a type 2 hypersensitivity reaction. Now, what's the antibody that is associated with kidney issues and disease activity? Well, it's actually going to be the anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies. It tags along with disease activity. So, if you have like a flare, your double-stranded DNA titers will go up. If the flare it goes away, those things calm down. Now, what is your next best step in management if a lupus patient has rapidly rising creatinine? You're going to do a renal biopsy. You're going to get a renal biopsy, right? Renal biopsy, right? Because the thing is, there are many kinds of lupus nephritis, and many of them have different treatments. So you need to know what you're dealing with first before you start treating. Now, bradycardia in a neonate. So why will a lupus mom have a neonate with bradycardia? And we'll talk about this some more tomorrow, right? They basically make anti-Rho and anti-La antibodies. These are actually IgG antibodies, right? So they will cross the placenta, and damage the conducting system. It will damage the conducting system in the fetus, right? So in doing that, it will cause a third degree heart block. It will cause a third degree heart block. A third degree heart block, right? Now, arthritis, fever, and pleuritic chest pain after studying etanercept. Remember, etanercept is a TNF inhibitor. Etanercept actually causes drug-induced lupus. Drug-induced lupus, right? Remember, this is associated with those antihistone antibodies. Many times, if you stop the drug, the lupus will go away. Simple as that. Now, what is the drug of choice in the chronic management of lupus? Right? What's the drug of choice in chronic management of lupus? Right? This drug is a high-value drug to know for exams because there was this big fiasco that arose last year with this drug and COVID. Right? Is hydroxychloroquine? Hydroxychloroquine. Right? Hydroxychloroquine. I remember, people that take hydroxychloroquine, you need annual, every year, need annual eye exams. Because this thing can damage the retinal pigmented epithelium, right? So these people need annual eye exams, right? And you treat a lupus flare with steroids. 
trigger a lupus flare with steroids. So let me go ahead and take people's questions and then we will go from there. So, oops, I want to put that there. So, a 33-year-old female is evaluated in the emergency room for a three-day history of exertional dyspnea and generalized abdominal discomfort. She underwent cardiac transplantation eight weeks ago for cardiac sarcoidosis. Current medications include telmisartan, daily aspirin, mycophenolate, morphotil, and prednisone. On physical exam, neck veins are distended, and there is an S3 on cardiac auscultation. The remainder of the exam and obtained labs are normal. An EKG is shown below. Right? Again, as I said, uh, for those that I met yesterday, again, many of these pictures and stuff, yes, are they helpful to know? Yes, but again, they're not really going to help you much in answering your question correctly. Right? Stop wasting your time with them. Again, many times on the MDM exams, big picture is what really matters. This person got a heart transplant eight weeks ago, and then they are having heart failure symptoms now. So that means this transplant does not appear to be working very well, right? That's pretty easy. This person has acute rejection. That's it. That's the diagnosis. Person has acute rejection. And by the way, this EKG is normal, right? So which of the following is the most appropriate next step in the management of this patient? Well, for these people, you're always going to try to diagnose the disorder formally, right? By getting a biopsy, right? When you get that biopsy, you can then see that, oh, they have rejection. Because sometimes so what you think may be rejection may actually be infection. So you always need to do a biopsy before you start treating, right? And you're going to start treating with steroids. You're going to give them like a ton of steroid. You're going to give them a ton of steroid. Okay, so let's go on to the next page. Dun, 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 dun. Okay. So let's talk about pneumonia. Again, this is one question. Where, again, you see it has many parts. That's how many of our questions are going to be, sadly. Well, fortunately, so we can cover more stuff. So history of recent stroke. You see a person that has pneumonia, right? And uh, they've had a recent stroke, right? You know, maybe they're not protecting their airway. I want you to think about an aspiration pneumonia, right? An aspiration pneumonias, remember, they tend to have an association with anaerobes, Right? And the classic anaerobes that your friends at the MDB love to throw on exams are things like bacteroides, right? Bacteroides. Another classic one is fusobacterium, right? And then another classic one is peptostreptococcus. 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 Kind of sounds cool there. Okay. So how are we going to treat these people? Well, we're going to give them clindamycin, right? Clindamycin is really awesome for these people because it's really awesome for killing an arrows. Okay. Now, what if you see cavitation in the lungs? Right? You see a person, they have pneumonia, and you see a cavitary lesion in the lungs. I always also want you, again, to think of an arrows, right? But I also want you to think of staph aureus. Staph aureus also loves to form cavities in the lungs, right? Now, as an aside, that's why I put this in bold letters, right? What's the cavitation malignancy? This is going to be squamous cell lung cancer. Squamous cell lung cancer, right, tends to be associated with a cavitary lesion. Right? Okay. Now, what if you see a person that has COPD and if you have pneumonia? This is something you don't find in many resources. Your friends at the MDMD love, love, love this stuff. You see a person with COPD that has pneumonia or a big-time smoker with pneumonia, I want you to think about him off loss influenza on exams. Okay. And we're going to treat this with a third-generation cephalosporin, like ceftriaxone. 
Drexel is one of the greatest drugs in all of medicine. If you're going into IM, you're going to prescribe Rocephin a lot. Okay. Now, what if you see an outbreak of pneumonia? Outbreak. Many people are getting pneumonia all at the same time. If you see this, I want you to think of Legionella. I want you to think of Legionella. I've actually seen this in real life, right? It was a big outbreak in a hospital. Many people died, right? It was not awesome, I'll tell you that. We're going to leave that story for now, right? But Legionella, right? And again, we treat this with a macrolid, right? With a macrolid. I'm writing my macrolid like this to help you remember drugs, I mean, bugs covered by macrolids. Macrolids cover mycoplasma, chlamydia, and Legionella. That's a great way to remember it. It's literally baked into the name, right? Now, what's the most common cause of pneumonia in HIV patients? It's actually strep pneumo. Many people think it's pneumocystis rovetsi, but it's not, right? Especially if they give you a HIV patient that has a lobar consolidation. I want you to think of pneumococcal pneumonia, right? And again, we're going to treat this with ceftriaxone. Now, what if you see a lung abscess with poor dental hygiene, right? So you see a person, they have poor dental hygiene, they have a lung abscess. Again, I want you to think of an anaerobe, right? And again, those anaerobes, I've talked about them already. Bacteroides, Fusobacterium, Leptostreptococcus, right? And give that person clinda. That's it. Okay? Now, recent trip to New Mexico, right? New Mexico, right? Or they say, ooh, they went to California for spring break, right? Or they went to uh, Texas or um, Arizona, right? Ooh, that's never, that's usually not the best decision in the world, right? So they have coccidiomycosis. Coccidiomycosis, right? And how do we treat coccidiomycosis? We treat it with itraconazole. Itraconazole, right? Now, what if a person cleans chicken or bird coops, right? Again, this is really not a wise idea, right? Well, if you have chickens or birds, you kind of have to do that. Uh, if you live on a farm, uh, you're thinking more along the lines of histoplasmosis, right? So histo, very common where I went to college in Kentucky, right? See people getting histo, histo, histo a lot. We treat that as well with itraconazole, right? And what if you see a person that has pneumonia and they work at a bird store, or an avian store, right? If you see this, I want you to think of Chlamydophila sidiki. This person has psittacosis. Chlamydophila sidiki, right? And because this is a chlamydia species, it's going to be treated with what? A macrolid. That's the C, right? A macrolid. And it's going to be an interstitial pneumonia. They'll have interstitial infiltrates, you know, like most of these atypical causes of pneumonia, right? Now, a researcher that works with wild rabbits, right, and they get a pneumonia, well, what's going to be causing problems there? It's going to be tularemia, right? It's going to be caused by Francisella tularensis. We'll see some more things about this tomorrow, right? Francisella tularensis. You'll see between today and tomorrow, we would have learned a ton of stuff. Like some things you hear me talk about, you'll be like, oh, Divine talked about this back in the day, back in the day being like yesterday. Literally, right? We're going to learn a ton across these two days. Now, takes care of goats, sheep, and cats. This is going to be coxiella, right? Whenever you see a person that works with farm animals and they develop an infection or like endocarditis, oh I always want you to think about coxiella. Yeah, right? yeah, now, they can make this an army or a military question, right? Rodent, urine, pope, pneumonia. Think of the hunter virus. Think of the hunter virus on your test. Okay. Now, question 26 says we have a 29-year-old male with a six-week history, so it's a chronic problem, right, of right knee pain, pain at the Achilles tendon insertion, right? That's an MPCs, 
right? The place where a tendon inserts, that's an enthesis. So this person has an enthesitis, right? Again, this is a classic question that Anki generation, they get wrong, right? So let me explain what I mean, right? Look at this. Disquamation with silvery scales on the palms and soles, right? Many people have probably memorized this as this buzzword, keratoderma, keratoderma blenorajicum, keratoderma blenorajicum, right? Again, it's almost like a psoriasis lesion, but it's on the palms and soles, right? Ulcers on the glans penis. Again, many people have probably memorized this as something called circinate. Sir, that's an eye, and that's another eye. Circinate balanitis. Some people probably already know what I'm talking about. Circinate balanitis, right? And then they have bloody diarrhea two months ago, right? You see stuff like this. I want you to think of this person having reactive arthritis, right? This is what was previously known as Ryder syndrome, right? So how do we treat these people? Actually, the treatment, almost like 90% of the time on exams, is going to just be a straight-up NSAID. That's it. right? Many people make this mistake of like, oh, let's always give them antibiotics. Let's always give them antibiotics. Well, that's usually not the right thing to do. right? That's usually not the right thing to do. That's usually not the right thing to do. right? So most times, you only give them antibiotics when they have a bona fide source of infection. Like you see bona fide evidence like, oh, you have like a penile discharge or something. That's when you give antibiotics, right? So you need a bona fide infection going on. If they don't have anything infection, and they'll make it clear in the question, no antibiotics. Now, question 27 says we have a 25-year-old male with low back pain that is relieved with morning exercise, right? So you see a young person. It can also be a young female, but usually males. Young person with low back pain. I want you to always think about ankylosing spondylitis. Ankylosing, and it will be over the sacroiliac joints. Ankylosing spondylitis, right? So how do we diagnose angspond? How do we diagnose it? Well, we're going to start off with an x-ray first, right, of the sacroiliac joints. Well, if that doesn't show you anything, you're going to proceed to an MRI of the sacroiliac joints. That's literally how you diagnose angspond. Right? So what if this ankylosing spondylitis person, you know, gets in a major motor vehicle accident and has neck pain? Right? So their neck starts hurting. What do they, and they say, oh, what's your next best step in management for an MBM exam? I hope you're saying, oh, divine, I'm going to get a cervical x-ray. Sometimes they call these things lateral neck x-rays, right? Because these people have a high risk of something called atlantoaxial instability. Atlantoaxial instability, right? So what, what are the classic imaging findings in these people? We all know this, right? These people tend to have like a bamboo spine. A bamboo, bamboo spine, right? And again, most times, these people, NSAIDs are just fine for them, right? But the thing is, there are some unique technicalities with second-line therapy that are high yield to know in these people for MBME exams, right? So what are the big things to know? The first thing is, what if they have axial disease? So axial disease is middle-of-the-body disease, basically spinal disease, right? The second-line agent for axial disease on MBN exams is going to be a TNF inhibitor. It's going to be a TNF inhibitor. But if we're dealing with peripheral disease, disease of the extremities, the second-line agent is actually going to be sulfasalazine. 
TNF inhibitors don't work well, right? Again, many of these things have been borne out by research studies. They don't work well for peripheral disease in a person that has ankylosing spondylitis as a second-line agent. But for everybody, first line is an NSAID, right? And most of these people, they're going to have a normal life expectancy. They're not going to be dying like... People think that, oh, having an spondylitis is a death sentence. It really sucks to have it, right? But most of these people, they, they do well. They do well for for the most part. Okay, now question 28 says, we have a five-year-old male with a history of primary sclerosing cholangitis. Okay, that's kind of weird to start, right? He's brought to the hospital with a six-day history of profound foul-smelling diarrhea. He's the son of Moroccan immigrant parents. Over the last three years, he has had five episodes of pneumocystis gerovetsi pneumonia and has required prolonged antibiotic therapy for multiple bouts of sinusitis. His temperature is 103.9, so he has a high fever, right? Labs are notable for a normal white count, but further analysis reveals an inverted CD4 to CD8 ratio, an inverted CD4 to CD8 ratio. So let's talk about what that even means to start, right? So let's talk about what that even means. So let's talk about what is normal first. In a normal person, your CD4 positive T cells are way more than your CD8 positive T cells. That's what's normal, right? But if you have an inverted CD4 to CD8 ratio, your CD4 positive T cells are much less than your CD8 positive T cells. Whenever you see that, that means these CD4 positive T cells are not being stimulated, right? This is the classic presentation of MHC2 deficiency. This is something that your friends at the MBN now care about seriously. I absolutely promise you, this is something. If you're taking the exam, make sure you know this. You don't need to know anything about treatment, nothing. You just need to be able to recognize it, right? MHC2 deficiency, right? You have this keyword, inverted CD4 to CD ratio, okay? And you'll have just weird stuff, right? You'll be a young kid having like primary sclerosing cholangitis, having all these problems. Always think about MHC2 deficiency with that, right? And again, it's very common in people that are from Morocco. Okay. I'm going to erase this so we can keep going. Okay, Okay. so rheumatoid arthritis, right? Rheumatoid arthritis. So first question here says multiple lower lobe predominant nodules on chest x-ray, right? Again, notice I didn't say a patient presents with rheumatoid arthritis and co-workers, pneumoconiosis. No, you're not going to see that on your exam, right? They're just going to put some long finding, the person that has RA. If you see this, this is Kaplan syndrome. This is Kaplan syndrome, right? Now, what if you see bilateral arm weakness? So a lot of upper extremity problems and four plus deep tendon reflexes. And then you say, oh, this person has neck pain. And again, many times they'll say, oh, what is your next best step in management? If you see this, I hope you're saying, oh, divine, I'm going to get again that cervical X-ray. Why? Because these people can have atlantoaxial instability. Atlantoaxial instability. Now, what if this person has left upper quadrant fullness? So what's in the left upper quadrant is going to be your spleen, right? So a person has rheumatoid arthritis, their spleen is big, and they have a low white count, right? If you see this, I want you to think about Felty syndrome. Remember, Felty syndrome is associated with rheumatoid arthritis, and they'll have neutropenia, right? And a large spleen. They'll have spleen omega. Okay. Now, 
Who's first line for treating rheumatoid arthritis? It's going to be methotrexate. Again, you can add on NSAIDs to, you know, reduce their pain, but it's not really going to do much for them. Like, their joints are still going to keep getting damaged until you start methotrexate. Now, what if first-line therapy has not worked? Well, you're going to go to a TNF inhibitor. But it's very high yield to know the things you're supposed to check a patient for before you start them on a TNF inhibitor, right? Many of us know that, oh, TB is something you screen for because it's a granulomatous disease, right? And TNF maintains granulomas. But another thing you're supposed to screen people for before you start them on TNF inhibitor therapy is also Hep B. Hep B is also another disease that's associated with granulomas, right? Now, if a person has rheumatoid arthritis and they're pregnant, you're obviously not going to give methotrexate, right? We're not trying to kill the baby here, right? So the thing you're going to do is you're going to give hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine is the drug of choice for rheumatoid arthritis in pregnant people. Although many times when people get pregnant, their RA kind of flares down a bit, right? Because pregnancy is kind of like an immunocompromised state, right? So many times autoimmune diseases, rheumatic diseases get better with pregnancy. And then it makes a big comeback once the person delivers the baby, right? Because remember, as a pregnant woman, your, your immune system basically has to be tolerant to the baby. So your immune system is actually suppressed in pregnancy. Okay. Now, question 30 and 31. Given the following clinical presentations, what is the most likely SSTI? By SSTI, I mean skin and soft tissue infection. Skin and soft tissue infection. So the first one says, honey-colored Crusted papules and postules. This is easy, right? This is going to be impetigo. Right? And remember, the most common cause of impetigo, right, is going to be staph aureus. The most common cause of impetigo is going to be staph aureus, right? And how do we treat impetigo? You're going to use topical mupirocin, right? Topical mupirocin. Topical mupirocin. Next one says cellulitis and hemorrhagic bullying. After going underwater diving in a 45-year-old male with chronic hep C. So you see a person getting skin infections, but you have a liver problem, right? That's the key hint here, liver problem. If you see this, I want you to think of this person having an infection with Vibrio vulnificus. Vibrio vulnificus. Next one says chronic nodular infection of the distal extremities, right? In a vegetable farmer. So you see a person, they work with vegetables, right? or they are gardeners. If you see stuff like this, I want you to think of sporotrichosis. This person has infection with sporotrix schenkii. Sporotrix schenkii. Right? They have sporotrichosis. Now, next one says, necrotic skin ulcer in a 22-year-old diabetic male with a white count of 500. The key thing here you're looking for is diabetic that is neutropenic, and they have a skin infection. I'll say that again. Diabetic, that is neutropenic, with a skin infection. If you see that, you should. I want you to think of pseudomonas. This is the thing you probably memorized when you were studying for step one, called ecthema gangrenosum. Ecthema gangrenosum. Ecthema gangrenosum. And then chronic nodular infection of the distal extremities in a fish tank trainer. This person cleans fish tanks, right? So notice, it's kind of like sporotrichosis, but it's water, fish tank exposure. If you see this, I want you to think of Mycobacterium marinum. Mycobacterium marinum. I 
you think about infection with mycobacterium marium. Now, question 32 says we have a 72-year-old, two-pack per day, 40-year smoker, right? With bilateral calf pain, he's a postal worker, right? So we're seeing a person, right, they've smoked, and now they have bilateral or extremity pain, right, when they walk, right? This is easy, right? This person has peripheral arterial disease. They have a PED, right? Now, what's your initial diagnostic test for a person that has PED? Well, I hope you're saying, oh, divine, we're going to do the ankle brachial index, the ABI, right? So you take the ratio of the blood pressure in the ankles, the blood pressure in the arms, right? If it's less than 0.9, that's all you need. The person has PED. That's pretty much it, right? Now, what if you get an ankle brachial index and you notice that, oh, this person's uh, ABI is 1.6. You're like, man, you're having all these symptoms and your ABI is better than good. This is going to be a diabetic. Right? The reason you're getting those falsely elevated regions is they have calcification of their arteries. This is something on MVM exams that's called Monkeberg. Monkeberg, that's an E. So Monkeberg calcific sclerosis. Monkeberg calcific sclerosis. Usually, your next step for those people is to do something called the TDI, the toe brachial index. Check out their toes. You'll get more accurate readings there. Right? You do the toe brachial index. Right? So what's your first management step for PED? Well, you're going to do, again, supervised exercise. Right? So a supervised exercise program. Right? So supervised walking. Right? Supervised exercise program. Right? That really helps. But again, unfortunately, most of the people are going to keep smoking. So they're not going to get better. So what do you then do? What's your second management step for these people? Well, the second management step for these people is you're going to add celostazole. Celostazole is an antiplatelet drug that's a very great vasodilator. It's like super awesome. Dilates vessels, right? So it helps in these people, right? Now, before these people go to surgery, right? Because obviously, if it doesn't work, if all these things don't work, you're going to take them to surgery. Well, notice so far, all you've done is your also wonderful med student EDI, right? No surgeon is going to touch a person <laughs> without getting imaging, right? So the thing that's going to happen here is you're going to do some kind of angiography, right, or arteriography before these people are taken to surgery. So angiography, arteriography, before you're taken to surgery. And BRF means biggest risk factor, right? Biggest risk factor for PED is going to be smoking. The biggest risk factor for PED is going to be smoking, right? And then one other thing I want to say about PED is that these people, they're supposed to be placed on statins as well, and aspirin. PED is actually an example of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So those people need high-intensity statin therapy. And they also need daily aspirin, again, for, for prevention. Okay. Now, question 33 says, recent MI and sudden onset severe left lower extremity pain and absent pulses. So you see a person, they've had an MI, or they have a history of AFib, Right? And then you notice that, oh, they have sudden onset. So this is not a chronic problem. It's a sudden problem, right? Pain in a, in a lower extremity, absent pulses. This is acute limb ischemia, right? This is acute limb ischemia, right? So what's going to be your first step for these people? You're going to actually place them on heparin, right? And then at the same time, you're going to get a geography of the lower extremities, right? To find the occluded vessel. And how do we treat this? We're actually going to perform an embolectomy. 
right? Because those people, because they've had an MI or EFIB, they formed the clot in the heart that flicked off and with an occluded a vessel, okay? So that's why they have problems. Now, question 34 says, we have a 65-year-old male with an MI that underwent a successful cardiac cath five days ago. So for this question, I want you to realize the temporal association with recent cardiac catheterization, right? So they had an MI, right? They got a successful cardiac cath. But you notice this person's creatinine has gone up. They have vision loss. And they have this net-like discoloration of the extremities. That's something called livido reticularis, okay? Livido reticularis. And then urinalysis, that's what I mean by UA, right? Check their urine. And you see eosinophils. And then uh, they tell you that, oh, they've also had an episode of transient vision loss, right? And then you see a golden body on fundoscopic exam. So you see like these gold crystals. Those are actually cholesterol crystals. They actually call these things Hollenhorst plaques on MBMEs. Hollenhorst plaques, right? So if we see this, right, what happened? Basically, when we did the cardiac cath, we dislodged cholesterol crystals that then went and started embolizing vessels in this person, right? So this person has something we call aortic atheroembolic disease. Aortic atheroembolic disease. Don't worry about treatment. Treatment is like well beyond the scope. This is like cardiology board stuff. It's well beyond the scope of the USMLEs. So that's literally all you need to know for the USMLE exams. Again, I'm not going to inundate you with information that is like not useful for your test. Okay. Now, question 35 says we have a 23-year-old college student. Comes to the ED complaining of pain in his right arm. He went spelunking with a few friends, right? Going to a case. It's usually not a smart idea, right? And believes he may have been beaten by a bat. What is the next best step in management, right? So we're worried about rabies here, right? So remember, we're going to give this person the rabies immune globulin, right? And we're going to give the rabies vaccine. And remember, you need to give it in separate extremities. You don't want to give it in the same extremity. If you give it in the same extremity, the immune globulin will bind up the vaccine and make it not effective, right? So you're going to give the rabies immune globulin in one extremity and the rabies vaccine in the other extremity. Okay. Now, question 36 says we have a 27-year-old, 4-foot-tall female. Maybe it's a short female, she has turners, right? That's kind of like a standard thing on exam, right? So this person has turners, right? So she pre presents with severe, sudden-onset chest pain. And then you notice this person has a unilateral pleural effusion, right? And she has never had menses. Again, she has turners. If you see this, I hope you're saying, oh, divine, and this person has aortic dissection. Aortic dissection. Right? Again, they can give you these diseases in unusual patients that are actually predisposed to it. Now, what kind of diagnostic testing are we going to do uh, for this patient? Well, it depends on if the person is stable. And again, they'll give you more information than this in a question. Right? If a person has aortic dissection, if they are stable, then you're going to do a CT chest angiography right? to make the diagnosis. But if they are unstable, you're not going to spend time doing that. You're going to do a TEE, not TTE, a TEE. A TEE is going to be done by anesthesia in your operating room. Now, what are the two forms of aneurytic dissection? What are the two forms of aneurytic dissection, right? Remember, aneurytic dissection, we can have type A and type B, right? Type B involves the descending aorta only. The descending aorta only. But 
Type A involves at least the ascending aorta. At least the ascending aorta. So if you have involvement of the ascending and descending aorta, that's still type A. Once there's ascending involvement, A in ascending for A in type A, right? But type B only involves the descending aorta, right? So what's your initial management step for all forms of aortic dissection? You're going to give them beta blockers, right? Beta blockers. Give them propranolol or whatever. That's fine, right? But what is the subtle management difference, right? What is the difference in management of type A versus type B? Type A, these people are going to get taken to surgery after you've given them a beta blocker. Type B, they only need beta blockers. You don't need to take these people to surgery. Type B, medical management is usually just fine, right? Now, what is the specific drug you're supposed to avoid in a person with aortic dissection? I don't know why med students, they have a love for this drug. We are not supposed to use it in aortic dissection. It's hydralazine, right? Because hydralazine is a vasodilator, right? So it's going to cause a reflex tachycardia. And whenever your heart is slaving away big time, right, that's going to increase the shear stress on the wall of the aorta, right? So that's why you don't do that for these people. Hydralazine is like it worsens morbidity in aortic dissection. Never pick that as an answer ever for aortic dissection. Now, why will a person with aortic dissection be hoarse? Why would they be hoarse? The reason they'll be hoarse is because they've had involvement of the recurrent laryngeal nerve. They have involvement of the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Remember, that's a branch of the vagus, right? So, if remember, the left recurrent laryngeal nerve loops around the aortic arch, right? So, they can have involvement of the recurrent laryngeal nerve. That's a classic MBN exam question. Now, question 37 says, recent DVT and then stroke. Right? Well, think about it. The person has a DVT. You're supposed to get a PE afterwards. Right? That's what's supposed to happen in life. Right? If you notice that, hmm, this person had a DVT. Now they have a stroke. That means there's some communication between the right and left sides of the heart. Right? This person has something that we call, let me use a different color for this. This person has something we call a cryptogenic stroke. Cryptogenic. We're talking about Bitcoin here, right? So this person has a cryptogenic stroke, right? So usually you're going to do a bubble study, right? You're going to do an echocardiogram with a bubble study to see if there's communication between the right and left sides of the heart, right? So you perform an echocardiogram with a bubble study, right? If you see gas bubbles that you put in the right atrium shop, in the left atrium suddenly, right? That tells you that this person has a PFO, right? Now question 38 says, holosystolic murmur at the left lower sternal border with an epicodastolic rumble, right? Holosystolic murmur, left lower sternal border, epicodastolic rumble is pretty classic for a VSD, right? The reason they have that epicodastolic rumble is because blood is flowing from the left ventricle to the right ventricle, right? So they have blood flowing from left ventricle to right ventricle. So the right ventricle is seeing more blood than it's used to, right? So it will send those that blood through the pulmonic system right, to the left atrium, right, so the left atrium is seeing more blood than it's used to, as that blood is flowing across the mitral valve, you'll have a flow murmur from just that increased blood volume, that's what causes that apical diastolic rumble associated with, with VSDs, okay, that's what causes that apical diastolic rumble, okay, so I'm going to erase this, and uh, let's move on to the next uh, question here, 
See, we're kind of keeping our tools in cardiology big time here. Okay. So question 39 says, we have an IV drug user, right, with a two-week history of malaise, fatigue, fevers, and a new left lower sternal border murmur, heard on auscultation, right? So we, excuse me, we see stuff like this, right? We know this person has infective endocarditis, right? This person has endocarditis, right? So what's going to be your next step in management? Before you ever start treating a person with endocarditis, you're going to make sure to get those blood cultures, right? You're going to get blood cultures, okay? Now, what are three groups of people with endocarditis where, let's say, they're going for a surgical procedure, they need antibiotic prophylaxis? This is very high yield to know, right? Remember, if a person has a prior history, a prior history of endocarditis, those people are going to need antibiotic prophylaxis. Another group here on Indian exams are people that have an unrepaired cyanotic congenital heart defect, an unrepaired cyanotic. If you see me write CHD, I mean congenital heart defect, right? So an unrepaired cyanotic congenital heart defect, right? And then the third group are people that have a foreign body in the heart. So they have a foreign body in the heart. Right? So let's say you have like a valve or something like a prosthetic valve or whatever, right? Those people need antibody prophylaxis before they go for surgery. Now, what are the classic chest x-ray findings in people that have endocarditis? Right? Remember, these people have those septic emboli, right? They have those septic emboli. Sometimes those things can even cause strokes, right? And remember, in endocarditis, they can have like these, uh, you know, these rough spots on the retina. Many times they will say that, oh, the person has like bilateral retinal hemorrhage, right? Bilateral retinal hemorrhage. That's pretty classic for endocarditis, right? Now, what kind of diagnostic imaging? So after you've done the blood cultures, what kind of imaging do you get of your chest? Usually you can do this after you've studied antibiotics. We're going to do a TEE, a transesophageal echocardiogram, okay? Now, what are some bugs with blood cultures that need future colonoscopy? So, you know, there's a point you're doing endocarditis, you do those blood cultures, you see these bugs and you're like, Ugh. Let's get a colonoscopy. We have colon cancer, right? Again, there's the classic one most people know, and then there's a new kid on the block that most people don't know. And your friends at the MBMEs expect you to know, right? So the classic kid on the block that most people remember is strep bovis, right? I'm sure many people, they're probably like, you know, building this into your head is pretty comprehensive in med school, right? Well, the new one you need to know for MBME exams is Clostridium septicum. Clostridium septicum. This one, very important to know for tests. Clostridium septicum. Now, question 40 says, we have a four-foot-tall female with chronic lower extremity claudication. Again, this is that Turner's patient, right? And they have lower extremity claudication. In fact, sometimes there's this thing they do, they'll say that, oh, they have like, like muscle hypertrophy in the upper extremities and muscle atrophy in their lower extremities. But the upper extremities look amazing. They're like, wow, this person is like really good. And then down there, like in the lower extremities, you're like, oh, gee, do you, do you walk at all, right? Are you, do you use crutches? You see stuff like that, right? When you think of coarctation of the other, right? Many times you have like a delay between palpating a pulse in the upper extremities versus lower extremities. So they'll say like, oh, they have a brachial femoral pulse delay or radio femoral pulse delay because again, it's just not sending blood appropriately, right? This coarctation of the other. 
right? Remember, this is usually associated with that three sign on a chest X-ray. And there's literally no drug that will help you here. These people need surgical intervention. That's the only thing that will fix the problem. Okay, right? Remember, the reason they have that three sign is, you know, your body is like, ooh, I need to send blood around this obstruction, right? So they'll start forming these intercostal arteries, right? And those intercostal arteries, right, because they're arteries, they have pulsatile flow. Those pulsations are going to be literally like wearing away your ribs, wearing away your ribs, wearing away your ribs. So that's why you see that three sign on imaging. Okay. Now question 41 says, rolling thunder murmur heard throughout the cardiac cycle in a kid with mom having an upper respiratory infection right, during pregnancy. Labs are unremarkable, right? You see all these things. I want to pay attention to this. Look at the blood pressure, 110 over 42, right? The thing is, a normal blood pressure is 120 over 80. The spread between those two numbers, which is your pulse pressure, is 40. Look at this person, 110 over 42. If I'm doing my math, the spread here is about 68. That's a wide pulse pressure. Whenever you see a wide pulse pressure on an MD exam, it means one of two things. Right? Once I see this and they give me the audio, I'm like, oh, I'm not going to listen to this audio at all. Right? It's either going to be aortic regurge, which is not what this child has. Right? This child has a PDA, a patent ductus arteriosus. Those are the two white pulse pressure murmurs you need to commit to memory for your exam. This is floridly high yield to know. Right? PDA, which this child has. Right? Again, that machine-like murmur, sometimes they do that. But that's something you pretty much not expect anymore. Right? They can call it a machine-like murmur. They can call it a rolling thunder murmur. They can say, oh, we hear a murmur throughout the cardiac cycle. All means the same thing. That's a PDA. Now, the next one says, white thick split of the S2 heart sound. This is easy, right? This, this is an atrial septal defect, right? This is an ESD. Okay. Now, question 42 says, hematuria and flank pain with a blood transfusion. Right? So you see a person, they're getting a blood transfusion, Right? And you start having flank pain, you see blood in your urine, right? And it's oh, maybe five minutes after the transfusion started. If you see this, I want you to think of an acute hemolytic transfusion reaction. Acute hemolytic transfusion reaction, right? We're gonna treat this with IV fluids, right? But you're also gonna do a Combs test to figure out like who's the clerk that messed up here. Basically, whenever a person has any transfusion reaction, you always need to do a Combs test. It doesn't matter what the transfusion reaction is. You always have to do a Combs test, right? This is actually a type 2 hypersensitivity reaction, okay? Next one says shortness of breath and strider with a blood transfusion. So you see a lot of airway problems, right? If you see this, right, this is going to be an anaphylactic transfusion reaction. Anaphylactic transfusion reaction, right? Remember, this one is a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction. Right? It's not type 2, it's type 1, right? It's IgE-mediated. So how are we going to fix these people? We're going to give them epinephrine. We're going to give them epinephrine, right? Now, fever and chills two hours after a blood transfusion. So they are completely normal, but they have fevers and chills. I want you to think about a febrile non-hemolytic transfusion reaction. Febrile non-hemolytic transfusion reaction. And literally, all these people need is acetaminophen. Just give them something that will reduce their fever. But again, you still need to do that direct Combs test. Okay? Any transfusion reaction, and they're asking for a diagnostic test, always do the direct Combs test. That's very important. Now, question 43 says Down syndrome with heart failure at birth, right? 
Whenever you see a person that has Down syndrome and they have heart failure, always think about an endocardial cushion defect. An endocardial cushion defect. Sometimes they may call this an AV canal, like an atrioventricular canal defect. Okay? AV canal defect. Now, question 44 says, what is the long-term measure that you're supposed to do in a person that has a prosthetic aortic valve? Well, these people are going to be on warfarin for life. All right? Now, remember, for this warfarin, you do have a therapeutic target. Right? You don't want their uh, INR being like 5 to 7. No. Right? It's going to be between 2.5 and 3.5. But if you notice that, huh, this person just got an aortic valve, like a prosthetic valve, and then they have indirect hyperbilirubinemia, right? You're like, huh, are these people hemolyzing, right? You want to think about valvular hemolysis. These people are basically sharing their red blood cells. They're basically sharing their red blood cells, okay? Now, question 45 says, high-pitched mid-systolic click at the apex, right? So high-pitched mid-systolic click at the apex. If you see this, right, it's going to be mitral valve prolapse, right? Mid-systolic click. Right? Now, the thing with mitral valve prolapse is this is what happens in mitral valve prolapse. Like, literally, your mitral valve leaflets are prolapsed, right? So, you're going to have a lot of uh, regurg, right? Mitral valve prolapse is actually the most common cause of mitral regurg, right? So, if we could, by some chance, if we could, by some chance, Get these two things to get, like, we could maybe make the left ventricle, because this is the left ventricle, right? These are the mitral valves. If we could make the left ventricle bigger, then we could have better acquisition of these valve leaflets, and there will be no more regurg, right? So, if we could increase the left ventricular volume, that would basically take away the prolapse, Right? If you take away the prolapse, then you have less regurg, right? So that would decrease your murmur intensity. Because you see people, they memorize all these maneuvers. Again, I don't, I'm not a big memorization fan, right? So what happens with preload-reducing maneuvers, right? So preload-reducing maneuvers, let's say you, you're lying down and then you stand up, right? Anything that reduces preload is going to put less blood in the left ventricle, right? That's going to increase the murmur intensity. Right. Remember, we just defined that, oh, if you increase the left ventricular volume, the murmur intensity will go down, right? But if you have an afterload increasing maneuver, like the hand grip, if you do the hand grip, right, that's going to increase afterload. Right? That's going to put more blood in the left ventricle, right? So that's going to decrease the murmur intensity, right? Now, question 46 talks about MI complications, right? So complications of myocardial infarction. So if you see a patient and they die intraoperatively, during percutaneous coronary intervention, two hours after the onset of chest pain with ST elevations on EKG. So they had an MI, they died pretty quickly, right? This is going to be VFib, right? Although sometimes your friends at the MDME will just put ventricular arrhythmia. VFib is the most common cause of death, first 24 hours after an MI. Now, sudden onset shortness of breath with bilateral crackles on long auscultation. And then you notice that they have a holosystolic murmur at the apex. Holosystolic murmur at the apex, right? That's like a VSD murmur, right? So what must have happened? Oh, sorry, at the apex, it's not at the left lower border. At the apex, that's the mitral area, right? So you're like, huh, 
why is this person having mitral regurg? Like, why, right? That's because they've ruptured the papillary muscle, right? So these people have papillary muscle rupture. Papillary muscle rupture. Next one says, sudden onset shortness of breath with bilateral crackles on long auscultation. Now, we have this holosystolic murmur, but it's at the left lower sternal border, right? Again, that's a VSD murmur. Whenever you see a VSD murmur, in the setting of a recent MI, that's the temporal association, right? These people have ruptured the interventricular septum, right? So this person has an interventricular septal rupture, an interventricular septal rupture. Right? Now, what if they have a low voltage EKG and pulseless electrical arrest? Right? Low voltage EKG and a PEA. Right? Whenever you see that, that means mm, there's probably fluid around the heart. Right? The heart is pretty much dancing. Right? In fluid. Right? Fluid around the heart. So why would the heart? Why would there be fluid around the heart? Well, the reason is these people have probably ruptured the ventricular wall. Right? These people have a ventricular free wall rupture. Ventricular free wall rupture. Right? Free wall rupture, right? So that's why they have like tamponade like EKG findings, right? In fact, this is why you don't give NSAIDs after an MI, right? Because NSAIDs or steroids after an MI is associated with an increased risk of a ventricular free wall rupture. Now, question 47 says opening snap at the apex, right? If you see an opening snap at the apex, this is easy, right? This is mitral stenosis. Mitral stenosis, right? And what's the biggest risk factor for mitral stenosis? This is easy. That's rheumatic fever. Rheumatic fever is the biggest risk factor for mitral stenosis, right? So what's the most common arrhythmia present in people with mitral stenosis? Well, what does mitral stenosis cause, right? It can cause AFib because your left atrium becomes enlarged, right? And we'll talk about AFib in a bit, but because these people have mitral stenosis and they have AFib, they have valvular AFib, they have AFib, because the valve in the heart is shot. It's not working well. So for these people, I'm going to put them on warfarin. We'll talk, we'll see some more things about AFib in a bit. Now, question 48 says, wide pulse pressure. That's what I mean by PP. Wide pulse pressure and left axis deviation on ECG in a 55-year-old female with a diastolic murmur heard at the left sternal border, right? Again, this is an old person, right? An old person is not going to have a PDA, right? I would hope that someone was able to figure out that you had a PDA before you hit 55, right? So this person has aortic regurge, right? And the reason they have the left axis deviation is because they have like dilation of the left ventricle, right? They have like an eccentric dilation of the left ventricle. Now, question 49 says, syncopal episodes, again, in our Turner's patient, right? With a systolic murmur heard at the right upper sternal border. That's the aortic area, right? So what do people that have aortic, uh, I mean, turners get in the aorta, right? Remember, these people can have a bicuspid aortic valve. This person has a bicuspid aortic valve, right? So this person has aortic stenosis. Because remember, normally the aortic valve has three cusps, right? But if the aortic valve has only two cusps, then it's going to get damaged. Like two people are handling the job of three people. That's going to accelerate the damage, Right? So this person has a bicuspidiotic valve, right? Again, many times it's going to be from calcification of the valve, right? It's going to be from calcification of the valve. Remember, in mitral valve prolapse, the problem that these people have is that they have myxomatous degeneration. Myxomatous degeneration, right? But in aortic stenosis, 
is calcification that actually damages the valve, right? So what kind of stress test do you avoid this? This is actually, again, something you don't find in many resources, but it's very high yield to know for MBME exams, is these people, they're not going to do any kind of exercise stress test because they can have a syncopal episode and die during the test. You obviously don't want a patient dying on your watch as you're doing a stress test on them. Right? That would not be very awesome. Okay. When I raise this, we still have some time. So let's just do a few more questions and then I'll take people's questions. I'm going to erase this. Um, let's see. Okay. So let's hit up question 50 here. So question 50, it says, migratory arthritis with painless nodules under the skin, elevated ESR, CRP, in a 12-year-old female, right? She had an upper respiratory infection 12 months prior, right? So we're seeing this, like, oh, this person had, like, a, a URI, and then they have, like, this migratory arthritis. If you see this, don't you think of rheumatic fever? This person has rheumatic fever, right? So how do we treat rheumatic fever? You're actually going to treat rheumatic fever with penicillin and an NSAID. Penicillin and an NSAID, right? Now, what is the most likely future valvular anomaly? Right? We've talked about this already. Rheumatic fever is the biggest risk factor, right, for mitral stenosis. It's the biggest risk factor for mitral stenosis, right? This is a pediatric question. So you notice, oh, they have coriform movements, right? And then it resolves, right, in a child, right? When you see a child that's had rheumatic fever in the past, and then they're having coriform movements. I want you to think about something called PANDAS, right? PANDAS. Is like pediatric autoimmune neuropsych disorder associated with group A strep. I'm just gonna call it PANDAS. You can you know look up the acronym, the meaning, but it's called PANDAS, right? Basically, in group A strep, the, the many things happen, right? Many times your body makes antibodies, but those antibodies they begin to attack things in your body, right? Like they can attack like the basal ganglia, like basal ganglia proteins, right? This process is what's called molecular mimicry molecular mimicry, right? So molecules in your body look a lot like molecules in the base strep. So your body starts attacking them with antibodies, okay? Now, question 51 says HIV and vaccine strategies, right? So people that have HIV, right? What are you supposed to do from a strep pneumo perspective? Remember, you're supposed to give them the PCV13 vaccine first. And then afterwards, you give them the PPSV23 vaccine to complete the pneumococcal series. Now, how about HPV? Remember, HPV, if a HIV patient is between the ages of 9 to 26, although for the most part that has been extended to 40, right? They should also get the HPV vaccine, right? Now, remember, these people, if a person has HIV, right, again, they have a cell-mediated immunodeficiency, right? You don't want to give these people um, the intranasal influenza vaccine, right? Because remember, that's a live attenuated vaccine, right? That's a live attenuated vaccine. It's not a great idea in these folks, right? Now, even more HIV questions. We're not going to be able to finish this. You know, I'll just do a few of them. So watery foul swelling diarrhea in a HIV patient. So you see a HIV patient with like watery diarrhea. This is easy, right? It's going to be cryptosporidium, right? Cryptosporidium. Now, what's the treatment for cryptosporidium? Well, I hope you're seeing, oh, divine. We're either going to use nitazoxanide, 
nitazoxanide, right? Or you can use this drug called paromomycin. So nitazoxanide or paromomycin. And many times, you're going to find like acid-fast organisms. This is actually an acid-fast organism. So you find acid-fast oil cysts in the person's stool. That's how you diagnose cryptosporidiosis. That's how you diagnose cryptosporidiosis. Okay. So let me go ahead and take people's questions, and then we'll, we'll continue from there. Okay. Okay. So let's continue. All right. So question 52, right? So we've done the first one. Second one says, local rigidity and high fevers in an HIV patient, right? So only HIV patient have meningitis. But I hope you're saying, oh, divine, it's going to be cryptococcus, right? So this person has infection with cryptococcus neoformans, right? With cryptococcus neoformans. And the way we're going to diagnose this, right? We're going to take, do a lumbar puncture, get the CSF, right? And we're going to do this thing called the latex particle agglutination acid. The latex particle agglutination acid. Right? We're going to treat these people with amphotericin B. Amphotericin B, right? And flucytosin. Amphotericin B and flucytosin. Right? But then after they recover, we're going to put them on fluconazole for about 9 to 12 months. Right? Fluconazole for about 9 to 12 months as prophylaxis. Okay. Now remember, you know, this thing also has this India ink. But again, most people don't do India ink anymore for crypto. Okay. Next one says, three-day history of shortness of breath, non-productive cough, and look at this, interstitial infiltrates on a chest x-ray, right? So this is a HIV patient. They have pneumonia, but it's not a lobar consolidation. It's interstitial infiltrates, right? It's going to be PCP pneumonia, right? It's going to be pneumocystis gerovetsi. We're going to treat this with Bactrim, right? Trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazone. Right now, next one says two week history of shortness of breath, productive cough with a chest x ray revealing a right upper lobe cavitary lesion. Right, this is going to be TB. Right, you see, like a you know, like a same side pleural effusion. Right, this person has TB. Right, we'll talk about the treatment of TB later, but we all know that TB we treat it with a ripe regimen, right, and vitamin B6, right, rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, ethambutol, right. And vitamin B6. Next one says three day history of shortness of breath, high fevers, and a lobar consolidation on chest x ray. Right? This is strep pneumo. This is strep pneumo. Right? And again, remember, triaxone. Now, how about a dinophagia in an HIV patient? It's an HIV patient with painful swallowing or difficulty swallowing. I want you to think about candida. Right? I want you to think about candida. And how are we going to treat this? We're going to treat this with an easel. Usually, you're going to use like an oral ether. But the thing is, many of us know cough drops, right? Low cough drops are called lozenges. So sometimes your friends at the NBA, just to kind of scare you a bit, they'll put ether lozenges, right? If you see that, that's still treatment for, for candida, right? It's like a cough drop, like an ether cough drop. Now, what if you see a HIV patient with eye problems, right? Blurry vision, right? This is going to be CMV, right? This is going to be CMV retinitis. <coughs> CMV retinitis, right? Remember, CMV, we're going to treat it with gancyclovir, right? Gancyclovir, right? That's a C, gancyclovir. Okay, 
Now, what if an HIV patient has a low CD4, right? Less than 250. So what kind of thing are you supposed to prophylax them against, right? Remember, if your CD4 is less than 250, you have to be living in the bad area, right? So you need to be living in the southwestern United States, right? So it's not every HIV patient that this applies to. So you need to be living in like Arizona, Texas, right? California, New Mexico, right? Or Nevada, right? If you see this, then you're going to prophylax against coccidiomycosis, right? And then you're going to do that prophylaxis with atraconazole, right? Atraconazole. Right? Now, what if your CD4 count is less than 200? That's easy, right? They're going to prophylax against PCP. And we know that, again, we do this with Bactrim, right? Trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole, right? Trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole. Now, CD4 count less than 150. Again, this one you need to leave in the susceptible area, right? So, again, it doesn't apply to everybody that has HIV, right? So, this is a person that lives in, like, Kentucky, right? Ohio, Illinois, Missouri, right? If you live in any of those areas, you're going to be prophylaxing against histoplasmosis. Histoplasmosis. And again, you're going to use what? Itraconazole. What if your CD4 count is less than 100, right? That's prophylaxis against toxoplasmosis, right? We've talked about this already. And that uh, prophylaxis is going to be with Bactrim, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. Remember, toxoplasmosis treatment is with pyrimethamine and sulfadiazine. But prophylaxis is with trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. Okay. Now, what if a person has a CD4 count less than 50 and they're on highly active antiretroviral therapy? Do we do any prophylaxis? No. No prophylaxis. No prophylaxis, right? But if your CD4 count is less than 50 and you're not on antiretroviral therapy, then you need to give those people ezithromycin, right, to prophylax against mycobacterium avium complex, okay, against that mycobacterium avium complex. Now, question 53 says, GVD, blood pressure goes from 120 over 80 to 101 over 70 with deep breaths, right, so they are inspiring, right? When you inspire, your blood pressure, your systolic blood pressure is not supposed to go down by more than 10. But look at this, it's going from 120 to 101. So it's going by, down by 19 with inspiration. Right? If we see this, it's going to be pulses paradoxes, right? Pulses paradoxes, right? And they have a low voltage EKG. Well, what's causing this, right? I hope you're saying, oh, divine, this person has cardiac tamponade, right? This person has cardiac tamponade. So how do we treat cardiac tamponade? Well, they're going to do a pericardiosynthesis. And we'll see some more things about cardiac tamponade actually tomorrow. Right? Tomorrow is where, uh, maybe I'll talk about it later, what we're going to be doing tomorrow, but you'll see what I mean later. Now, what's the other EKG finding besides this low-voltage EKG? Well, remember, these people usually find this thing called electrical alternates. Electrical alternates, right? So you'll have, like, fluctuations, right? Like Because the heart is literally dancing in flow. So sometimes the heart will dance toward your EKG strip. you get a big signal, right? And then the heart will dance away. And you get a small signal, right? So you get big amplitude, small amplitude. Big amplitude, small amplitude, right? Alternating electrical amplitude. Now, what's the chest X-ray finding? Remember, these people's hearts, right, will look like a water bottle. You'll have a water bottle-shaped heart, right? Now, the next one here says, loud diastolic heart sound. 
with more prominent JVP waves on inspiration, right? So think about it when you inspire, right? Again, some of us, you know, that we're chemistry majors, and remember this from general chemistry, right? When you inspire, your diaphragm goes down. If your diaphragm goes down, the volume of your thoracic cavity is going to go up, right? So if your volume goes up, according to Ball's law, right? I'm sure, I'm sure some people will be like, wow, you can see this in the MCAT, right? Ball's law, right? The volume of your thoracic cavity goes up, the pressure is going to go down, right? So your right atrial pressure goes down when you inspire. So the thing that's supposed to happen is, because your right atrial pressure goes down, you're you know, creating a gradient of pressure. So blood will want to fall into your right atrium, right? So on inspiration, your jugular vein is actually supposed to collapse, right? It's supposed to collapse on inspiration. That's the normal thing. But if they become more prominent, if you're like, your jugular veins are bulging with inspiration, that is not normal, right? It means the person's heart has some kind of dysfunction that is making it not admit blood. This is something called Cosmos sign. It's something called Cosmos sign. Cosmos sign can apply to many pathologies. But on MBM exams, I want you to think of it as applying to only one pathology. It relates to constrictive pericarditis. Constrictive pericarditis. Right? And for these people, you're going to see calcification. Calcification around the heart. You're going to see calcification around the heart. And how do we treat this? We're going to treat this with a pericardiectomy. They're going to basically resect the pericardium, right? So that you can fix that diastolic dysfunction of the person's heart, right? So you're going to perform a pericardiectomy, okay? A pericardiectomy. Very high yield to know that for exams. Okay. We're going to erase this so we can move on up. All right. Okay, so let me just beg you, before I start this page, just pay attention. I'm telling you, if you know what I'm going to talk about on this page and some of the next page, pretty much any arrhythmia question you see, you will get it right, right? I'm going to teach you some rules. Maybe like, yeah, linkage is a joke on these exams, literally, right? You'll see that there are certain rules I'll teach you. Maybe like, man, this stuff is actually not really hard, right? All you just have to do is what? Pay attention. That's it. That's it, okay? So please, 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 like really, really pay attention. I promise you, you will see questions on this stuff on your exams. All right. Okay. So question 54 says, acute onset stabbing chest pain alleviated with sitting forward. Right. So you sit forward, the pain gets better. Right. This is easy, right? This is going to be acute pericarditis. This person has acute pericarditis. Right. So what are the EKG findings in acute pericarditis? Well, you're going to see diffuse everything. Right. So you're going to see a diffuse ST elevations, diffuse ST segment elevations, right? But then you're also going to see diffuse PR depressions, diffuse PR segment depressions, right? Now, how do you treat this, right? So acute pericarditis, you actually treat it with NSAIDs and colchicine, not one or the other, both NSAIDs plus colchicine. Right? But again, all those people that were asking questions about, like, oh, how do we treat pericarditis as we know MIs? We actually use aspirin. We actually use aspirin. Right? We use aspirin. We use aspirin. Okay? Not a regular NSAID. We use aspirin. Now, key arrhythmias. Right? So let's talk about arrhythmias. I love cardiology. Right? So I'm going to break it down for you, make you an expert. Right? Okay. At least for the USMLE exams. Now, 
Let me teach you some rules. If you follow these rules, arrhythmia questions will become a joke to you. Be like, oh, come on, seriously, MBA, like, it's going to be this easy, right? So let's talk about it. Right? So the first rule I'm going to talk about is the fifth rule. Is the fifth rule. Whenever you see the word fib in the name of any arrhythmia, whenever you see the word fib, it means that there is unequal spaces between the QRS complexes. Unequal spaces between the QRS complexes, right? So like V-fib, right? You'll see unequal spacing between the QRS complexes. A-fib, unequal spacing between the QRS complexes. That's it. Now, what's the TAC rule? Well, this just means any arrhythmia that has the word TAC in its name, right, tells you that there's equal spaces, equal spaces between the QRS complexes. There's equal spaces between the QRS complexes, right? Now, rule number three is the above the ventricle rule. What do I mean by that, right? Above the ventricle rule. If an arrhythmia is from above the ventricle, like a supraventricular arrhythmia, right? Your QRS complex will be narrow. Your QRS complex will be narrow. But if an arrhythmia is from within the ventricle, right, your QRS complex is going to be wide, right? Your QRS complex is going to be wide. Okay. Now, the less than 60 plus hemodynamically unstable rule, right? So again, these rules really help you on your exam. If a person has any arrhythmia, it literally doesn't matter what the arrhythmia is. Literally doesn't matter what it is, right? But they are hemodynamically unstable. They're going to pace these people. They're going to pace those people. Now, if a person's heart rate is more than 100, it doesn't matter what the arrhythmia is, and they are hemodynamically unstable, the right thing you're supposed to do is a synchronized cardioversion. Synchronized cardioversion. Going forward, I'm going to call this SCV, right? Remember, synchronized cardioversion is also called direct current cardioversion on MDM exams. Or sometimes they call this direct current countershock on MDM exams, right? So direct current cardioversion, direct current countershock, right? If you follow these rules, you'll be in good shape. So let's apply them, right? So VFIP. Right, so ventricular fibrillation, so it's a ventricular arrhythmia, so the QRS has to be wide, and it has fib in the name, so the spaces between the QRS complexes have to be unequal. That's literally it. The person has V-fib, they're very close to dead, or they're essentially dead. So what do you do for these people? You're going to do unsynchronized, unsynchronized cardioversion, right? Remember, unsynchronized cardioversion is also called defibrillation. On exams, right? Now VTAC, VTAC, right? Ventricular, so the QRS will be wide. TAC, the spaces between the QRS complexes will be equal. You see, it's very easy to analyze these EKGs if you know these rules, right? If you see VTAC, right, there are three groups of people that can have VTAC. A person can have VTAC and have no pulse. Again, if a person has no pulse, they are practically dead for all intents and purposes, right? So for those people, you have to do unsynchronized cardioversion, again, which is also called defibrillation. But if a person has VTAC and they are hemodynamically unstable, that's group B, they are hemodynamically unstable. Well, remember, it's a tachyarrhythmia and they are hemodynamically unstable. All you need to do is apply this hemodynamically unstable, right? For those people, all they need is what? 
Synchronized cardioversion. That's it. Right? Group C are people that have VTAC and they're hemodynamically stable. The person has VTAC and they're hemodynamically stable. You know, they are not hypotensive. They don't have altered mental status. They are not very symptomatic. For those people, all you need to do is give the drug amiodarone. That's it. Now, SVT, look at this, supraventricular tachycardia, right? Supraventricular. So it's above the ventricle. So because it's above the ventricle, the QRS has to be what? Has to be narrow. That's it. It has tack in the knee. So it's a narrow QRS, and the spaces between the QRS complexes are equal. That's it, right? Simple, just, again, life many times goes well to people that follow the rules. People that disobey the rules are the ones that usually get in trouble, right? So SVT. What's the first thing you're going to do for an SVT? You're going to do a vagal maneuver. Right? You can massage their carotids. You can put their heads in cold water. You can tell them to blow into a straw. It doesn't matter. Right? Now, if that doesn't work, the next thing you're going to do is you're going to give adenosine. Right? You're going to give those three doses of adenosine. Again, the specific dosing doesn't really matter. Right? They do 6, 12, and 12. No, Again, that's, that's, that's for residents. Now, the third thing you're going to do for an SVT, right, is you can't say, oh, I've given you adenosine, I've aborted the arrhythmia, so bye, do see you later. No, you're not going to do that because the arrhythmia will come right back. So you're supposed to put these people on a beta blocker or verapamil slash deltiazem. Verapamil or deltiazem. Those non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers to maintain them in normal sinus rhythm. Okay. Now, if it, two easy paths, right? So the thing is, I know once I say the word if it, some people are probably hyperventilating, they're like, oh, oh, the van is about to teach me like some crazy ginormous algorithm, right? Many of those crazy ginormous algorithms, let me tell you something. They're not going to help you on MDM exams. They may help you in QBanks, but not on MDM exams. If you understand what I'm going to teach you now, you can pretty much answer like 99% of the if questions you see on your exams. So there are two groups of if people on exams. Always put them in one of these two categories. So, who is pile number one? These are people that have new AFib. So, that's AFib that they've had for less than two days, for less than 48 hours. That's group one. Also, in this group one are people that have hemodynamically unstable AFib. That's it. That's it. And we already know what to do for people that have hemodynamically unstable any tachyarrhythmia, right? Group two is everybody else. Everybody else, right? So how do we treat AFib power one? Well, this person has a hemodynamically stable tachyarrhythmia. We're going to do synchronized cardioversion. That's it. Well, group two, what do you need to do for these people? You need to put them on a beta blocker or verapamil or deltiazem. Plus anticoagulation. Now, anticoagulation, you can use anything you want. Any anticoagulants, DOA, warfarin, blah, blah, blah. But if they have AFib because of a valvular problem, so let's say they have like mitral stenosis, for example, right? Or they have a prosthetic heart valve, then the only option you have for anticoagulation is warfarin, right? That's literally it. That's literally all you need to know about AFib. And the way you manage AFib, the way you categorize AFib, 
is the same thing for A flutter as well, right? But A flutter, remember, you're going to see that sawtooth pattern on an EKG, right? And A flutter is treated again, same as A fit. Those two categories, everything. That's literally it. That's literally it. That's literally all you need to know about EFIN. Okay. Now, the next one says MFAT. Right? MFAT means multifocal atrial tachycardia, right? Multifocal atrial tachycardia. Multifocal atrial tachycardia. The big thing here is you'll see more than three P wave morphologies, right? More than three. So three or more. P wave morphology. So if you see like a P wave that looks like this, and then you see the QRS, right? And then you see another P wave that kind of looks really weird, then you see a QRS. And then you see another P wave that looks really weird, and then you have a QRS, right? Once you see three different kinds of P waves, that's MFAT, okay? And we treat MFAT with verapamil or deltiazem. Verapamil or deltiazem. Deltiazem. Right? Because usually we find people that have COPD. You don't want to give a non-selective beta blocker like propranolol to a COPD patient, right? At least I, I would hope we're not trying to, you know, like close their airways and kill them, right? So you're not going to do that, right? Yes. Now, heart blocks, right? So again, heart blocks. So what's the thing with a first-degree heart block? Again, these people, they just have PR prolongation, right? They just have PR prolongation, right? But they have no... Uh, missed QRS complexes. All the QRS complexes are there. That's it. Now, Mobit 1 and Mobit 2, they are both examples of second-degree heart block, right? In Mobit 1, the PR is going to be prolonging. So it's going to go longer, 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 right? And then you'll miss a QRS. That's what people say, oh, this person has a drop beat. You'll miss a QRS complex. So a P wave will not be accompanied by QRS complex. Mobits two, excuse me, the appearing interval is also prolonged, but it's going to be a fixed amount of prolonged. It's going to be prolonged, prolonged. It's going to be a fixed amount, prolonged, fixed amount. And then they will miss a QRS complex. Right? Now, a third degree heart block, the big thing with that is, you know, you'll hear about this dissociation. People are like, dissociation, dissociation. They throw that term around. What exactly does that mean? Let me tell you the easy way to identify this. First, these people, you'll notice that they miss some QRS complexes. Right? And then the second thing you're supposed to look for is look at the PP intervals. So check one P wave to the next P wave. One P wave to the next P wave. Right? You'll have the same distance between them. Or... If, it's, if you prefer this, you can say, oh, you know what? I'll check the QRS to QRS intervals. Those also have the same distance between them. So if you notice that some QRS complexes are missing, well, these QRS complexes that are still there, you check, oh, this QRS to this QRS, same distance. This one to this one, same distance. That's a third degree heart block, right? So how do we manage these folks? Well, it's actually easy. From Mobitz 1, and first degree, right? You do nothing. Right? But from Mobitz 2 downwards, all the way to third degree, these people need pacemakers. Right? 
It's literally hard blocks for you on exams. Now, torsad the quant, that's what I mean by TDP. Many of us also know this as polymorphic VTAC. Polymorphic VTAC, right? So look at the name. VTAC, right? So ventricular. So the QRS complex is going to be wide. TAC. The spaces between the QRS complexes are equal. But look at it. It's called polymorphic. Polymorph means multiple looks. Looks different. So you notice that the QRS complexes, they are all wide, but they all look different. So you may have something like this. Maybe you have something that is like this. Right? You notice, oh, the QRS complexes are all wide, same distance between them. But they all kind of look different. Because the VTAC we've talked about already is monomorphic VTAC. But torsada point is polymorphic VTAC, right? Multiple morphologies. We're going to treat torsada point with IV magnesium. I've actually seen this once in my, in my career. Uh, it's pretty scary when it happens, but the uh, person ended up being fine. So the person was like extremely old. Okay. Now, WPW, Wolf Parkinson White. Remember this is going to be the delta wave, right? It's going to be the delta wave. Right? So you're going to have the delta wave. And then you have your QRS, right? And sometimes instead of saying delta wave, they'll actually describe it to you on the exam. They'll tell you that the person has a short PR interval, right? And a wide QRS. Short PR interval plus wide QRS is MDME code word for delta wave on exams, right? And how do we treat these folks? We're going to give them prokinamide. We're taking the exam, right? And let's say I had a child and I was like, oh, go and take this exam. Make sure you know the stuff on this page before taking said exam, right? All right. So I'm going to erase this so we can move to the next page. All right. Yeah, that's why I try to really slow down, really, really slow down there. Okay. So let's do page. I mean, next, I mean we're still on, on the same question. It's a pretty large question. So TCA toxicity, what are the signs of TCA toxicity on an EKG? That's easy, right? We're going to see a YQRS, right? And many times they'll also have a prolonged QT. But what is the big one to know is this one, YQRS. And how do we treat this? I'm going to give them sodium bicarbonate. Because TCAs, they are sodium channel blockers, right? So if you give sodium bicarbonate, you can overcome that sodium channel blockade that's causing the cardiac issues. Now, how about low potassium? So hypokalemia, hypocalcemia, hypomagnesemia. How does that show up on an EKG? That's easy, right? It's going to show up as a prolonged QT, right? How about hyperkalemia, right? Remember, in hyperkalemia, you're going to see those tall T waves, right? You're going to see that white QRS, right? So tall T waves, you're going to see that YQRS, you're going to see that, right? And if you don't fix it in time, then this person will have a sinusoidal waveform on an EKG, right? It looks like a sine wave. <laughs> One person looks like a sine wave, and you're like, ooh, let's, let's keep dancing while the potassium is going up, right? And the person will, you know, then die as you're dancing, right? You'll go to a system. So how do you treat hyperkalemia? Remember, the first thing is always calcium gluconate. Calcium gluconate is always the first thing you do when a person has hyperkalemia. 
literally, or if calcium gluconate has not been given, doesn't matter how bad your situation is, you must give it first, right? So you give calcium gluconate first. After that, you can then give albuterol, right? Remember, that's a beta-2 agonist. After that, you can then give insulin plus glucose, right? Basically, albuterol and insulin plus glucose, what they do is they increase the activity of the sodium-potassium ATP spot, right? I'll say that again. They increase the activity of the sodium-potassium ATP spot. What does that help you accomplish? The thing that that helps you accomplish is that it moves potassium into cells. So you're basically redistributing the potassium, right? If that doesn't work, right, you're going to give the person K-exalate. K-exalate. Remember, K-exalate makes K exit out of your body. I'll say that again. K-exalate makes K exit out of your body. That's a nice way to remember that. You know, you can also do dialysis as well. Okay. Now, how about hypercalcemia? How does hypercalcemia show up on an EKG? Well, it actually shows up as a short QT. As a short QT, right? How about hypothermia? They love to ask this. And they love to pin med students on this on the words as well, right? Hypothermia is associated with something called a J-wave on an EKG, right? A J-wave is just a small divot that will come after the QRS complex. So this is your QRS complex. And then this is your G-wave. Is associated with hypothermia. You don't need to know the pathophys behind that. Just recognize it. Okay. Now, what's the biggest risk factor for multifocal atrial tachycardia? It's actually going to be smoking, right? Many times you find MFAT almost exclusively in people that have COPD, right? Now, what if a person has AFib with Wolf Parkinson White? So they have AFib with Wolf Parkinson White. This is one exception to AFib management, right? These people. Because people that have WPW, if you block the AV node, which is what is done by a beta blocker or verapamil or deltiazem, you're going to throw those people from having AFib into VFib if they have WPW. So you don't do that. So if it were WPW, right, is managed with prokinamide. Is managed with prokinamide, right? But again, just to make sure you're still following these rules, the person has WPW and they are hemodynamically unstable, need to follow the tachyarrhythmia hemodynamically unstable rule, we're going to do synchronized cardioversion. Now, what are the drugs that improve survival in CHF? What are the drugs that improve survival in CHF? Remember, we're going to look along the lines of ACE inhibitors, right? <clears throat> beta blockers, right? So ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, right? Um, and, you know, you can probably lump ARBs into this category as well, right? ACE inhibitors, ARBs, beta blockers, Right? Remember, um, aldosterone antagonists like spironolactone and implerinone also improve survival. Right? And then don't forget in African Americans, right? The combination of hydralazine, hydralazine and isosorbide dinitrate, right? Isos that's what I mean by ISDN, isosorbide dinitrate. That helps, right? And then another thing that helps is. The combination of an ACE inhibitor and a neprilysine inhibitor. An ACE inhibitor plus a neprilysine inhibitor. The combination of those two drugs, right? So like a classic one you may see on exams is the combination of this drug, Valsartan, or it can be an ARP plus a neprilysine, right? But a big one they love on exams is Valsartan plus Sacubitril, right? 
For those of you that watch TV, if you see how often you watch TV as a medical student, you probably heard of the drug Entresto. Entresto is, is and they call them RNAs, right? ACE inhibitor plus neutralizing inhibitor combo. Okay. Now, how do we manage CHF exacerbation? Oh, sorry. What are you supposed to give to a person that's going through a CHF exacerbation? Well, you're going to give them furosemide, right? You're going to give them ACE inhibitors, right? And then you're going to give them nitrates. That's how you manage CHF exacerbations on exams, right? I remember with the word fan. So if you have, like, if your name is fan, <coughs> I hope you can remember that, right? You have a fan in your room or something, right? That's an easy way to remember that. Furosemide, ACE inhibitors, and nitrates. Okay. Question 56. We have a 31-year-old male. He's brought to the ED with a 24-hour history of worsening headaches and local rigidity. Okay. He was admitted one week ago for cryptococcal meningitis that responded to liposomal amphotericin B and 5-flucytosin therapy. Okay. He was discharged on antiretroviral therapy. Okay. His most recent CD4 count obtained a month ago was 25, right? So it's really low. So now we're like, huh, does this person have meningitis again? But we do the latex assay and it's negative. Whenever you see a person, right? So the thing is before, they used to do this a lot with pneumocystis gerbetsi. But again, you know that people have wisened up to that, right? So basically, whenever you see a person with a very low CD4 count, they start getting treatment and then their situation gets really bad. I want you to think of something called iris, right? Iris, immune reconstitution syndrome. It's almost like you're waking up their sleepy immune systems. So the immune system is like, ooh, we're back with a bang, right? And then they cause problems, right? Immune reconstitution syndrome. Immune reconstitution syndrome. Okay, question 57 says we have a 46-year-old male with a 25-year history of HIV. It's brought to the physician by his daughter right? With a formal history of poor concentration and impaired cognition, okay? His only medications are multivitamin. He's not being treated well. CD4 count is 10. That's extremely low, right? Neurological exam shows a diffuse impairment in upper and lower extremity motor activity. What's your diagnosis? How do we manage this, right? So many of us probably remember something that was previously called HIV dementia. Well, these days, this thing is called HIV-associated neurocognitive disease, HIV-associated neurocognitive disease, right? We're going to manage this with highly active antiretroviral therapy. That's it, okay? Now, question 58 says ACS management. So how do we manage acute coronary syndrome, right? How do we manage acute coronary syndrome? What are the drugs that we're supposed to give acutely, right? Remember, the first drug you give is going to be aspirin, right? We're going to give the Big dose of aspirin, 324 milligrams, right? And then, you're going to give this person heparin as well, right? And then you're going to give this person clopidogram. You've probably heard of this term, dual antiplatelet therapy, right? Aspirin is the first antiplatelet. Clopidogram is the other one. You can use any other antiplatelet besides clopidogram, okay? Now, what do you give them for chest pain? Remember, for chest pain, you can use either a nitrate or morphine, right? You can use either a nitrate or morphine, right? Now, what are you supposed to avoid in a right coronary artery infarction? Remember, that's 2,3-EVF, right? Remember, you're supposed to avoid nitrates. 
Because people that have an RCA infarct, those people, they need preload bad. They really, really need that preload. So you're not going to try to be killing these people's preload. That would be an awful idea, right? So you avoid nitrates because, again, nitrates are venodilators, so they kill preload. Now, cabbage. Who gets cabbage? Who do we do like a coronary, coronary artery bypass graft for? Who do we do that for? Remember, we usually do this for people that have left main coronary artery, so left main coronary artery disease. So like the actual like left main coronary artery is, is occluded, right? So left main coronary disease, or if a person has three vessel disease. So let's say, for example, their LED, their left circumflex, and their RCA is all affected. Those people need cardiac surgery, right? Another group of people that need cabbage are people that have those MI complications. So let's say they have like a ventricular free wall rupture associated with their MI, or let's say they have like a papillary muscle rupture. Those people need, need a cabbage. Okay. Now question 59 says we have a 32-year-old female with a history of migraines and acute onset chest pain, right? And usually they'll tell you that, oh, this person is a smoker and the chest pain is worse at night. If you see this, I'll probably be saying, oh, divine, this person has variant angina. Many times these people will come in for an MI, you'll see ST elevations and stuff, you take them to the cath lab, and then you notice that, huh, they have only like 30% stenosis. 30% stenosis is not going to cause you an MI, right? You need like 99% stenosis. So these people, they have variant angina, right? Which, again, many times, or back in the day, was called Prince Metal Angina. Right? So these people, they have coronary vasospasm that's causing their problems. So how do we treat these people? Well, we're going to treat them with verapamil or deltiazem. Although you can even use those dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. All those things work just fine for these people. Don't use beta blockers for veratangina. Beta blockers can cause vasoconstriction, right? Don't use beta blockers for variant angina. And also, these people should avoid sumatriptan, right? Because remember, again, sumatriptan is a drug for migraines, right? And look at what I did here to you. Ding, 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 migraines, right? So you avoid sumatriptan in these people because, again, Sumatriptan is a vasospastic agent. It can cause vasospasm, and that can throw them into having an MI. All right. So let's go to the next page. There is this. Okay. Okay. So question 60, right? Question 60. So we have a 37-year-old female smoker on OCPs with sudden onset chest pain shortness of breath, right? This person is kind of asking for it. They're over 35, they smoke, and they're on OCPs, right? They're kind of asking for a PE, right? This person has a pulmonary embolus. person has a pulmonary embolus, right? So what are some ABG findings in people that have a PE? Remember, if a person has a PE, you're going to be short of breath. You're going to be blowing off air, blowing off air, blowing off air, blowing off air. They're hyperventilating, right? So I hope you're saying, oh, divine, these people have a low PCO2. Right? So because they have a low PCO2, their pH is going to go up. Right? They're going to have a respiratory alkalosis. Right? They're going to have a respiratory alkalosis. Now, whenever you have a respiratory alkalosis, right, your blood right, becomes very basic. And because your blood is very basic, right, you're putting all these negative charges on albumin. Well, negative charges 
love to attract positive charges, right? So these people's calcium and potassium will both go down because those negative charges on albumin are attracting them. So what's your next best step in diagnosis? Right? This person has really, really bad PE, right? They are high risk. Right? You're going to be messing around with a D-dimer. Basically, you're going to go straight to a CT chest angiography, right? Remember, CT chest angiography is not the same thing as pulmonary angiography, right? CT chest angiography is very different from pulmonary angiography. Pulmonary angiography is the gold standard test for PEs, but it's almost never the right answer in exams because it can torture your kidneys. Okay. Now, what is the next best step in management? Well, we're going to put this person on IV heparin, right? So when are we supposed to give TPA? When do we give TPA? We give TPA when the person becomes hemodynamically unstable or you see some sign of right ventricular dysfunction. So let's say they tell you that, oh, wow, this person is having JVD. Uh, you do an echo and you notice that their right ventricle is big or whatever. That's where you can start TPA. Well, most people will respond very nicely to IV heparin. Okay, question 61. We have a 61-year-old female with a recently deceased husband. Her husband just died. She has the sudden onset of severe chest pain with elevated troponins. And then we perform a percutaneous coronary intervention, and there is no coronary obstruction. If you see this, I want you to think of this person having takosubo cardiomyopathy, right? That's what's called broken heart syndrome, right? Takosubo cardiomyopathy. Takosubo cardiomyopathy, right? And remember, the classic echocardiography finding in these people is you're going to find apical balloon. So the apex of the heart will look like a balloon, right? Apical ballooning, right, of the apex of the heart. Now, question 62 says, sensory neural hearing loss in a patient that received therapy for chorionionitis. As you will see when we get to the OB-GYN portion of the course, chorionionitis is treated with ampicillin plus gentamicin. So why will a person get sensory neural hearing loss after taking gentamicin? Well, remember, gentamicin, can cause a drug-induced hearing loss. So what are some other drugs that cause drug-induced hearing loss? Well, the MDME, they love this list. Vancomycin is a big one, right? Aminoglycosides like gentamicin, we've talked about that, right? Remember, your loop diuretics also can cause sensory, sensory neural hearing loss, right? And then also remember the drug cisplatin. That's an anti-cancer drug. It's a platinum, it's a platinum agent, right? also causes sensory neural hearing loss. Okay. Now, question 63 says, oral fullness, right? So they full, feel full in your ears, like their ears are like bulging, right? Spinning sensation, so they have red go and they have ringing in their ears, right? If you see this, I hope you're seeing oh, divine. This is Meniere's disease, right? But again, your friends at the MDME, why call it Meniere's disease? Then you can call it endolymphatic hydrops. That's an alternate name you may see for Meniere's disease on your test, right? Endolymphatic hydrops, okay? That's something you need to keep in mind for exams. You'll see me give you many alternate names for things based on things that your friends at the MME care that you should know, okay? Just just trust me on this, that that is something your friends at the MME care that you should know. Don't ask me how, just trust me on that. All right, okay. Now, question 64 says, spinning sensation on morning awakening, right? Worsened by head movement. Right? So you see this person, whenever they move, their vertigo gets really bad. Right? So their vertigo is positional, right? Their vertigo is positional. 
This is something called BPPV, right? Benign Paroxysmal Positional Vertigo, BPPV, Benign Paroxysmal Positional Vertigo, right? So how do we diagnose this? How do we diagnose this thing? Remember, we're going to do an exam maneuver called the Dix-Hall-Pike maneuver, right? That's how you make the diagnosis. And the way you treat this, right, you basically do something to, like an exam maneuver, to get those crystals back to their right spot, right? So you can do that with something called the Epley maneuver, or you can do something called the Samant maneuver on MDM exams. That's how you handle BPPV. All right. Now, question 65 says we have a 47-year-old female with a history of breast cancer, right? She presents with a two-week history of severe left lower extremity weakness, okay? Babinski sign is positive. Right? So we're seeing a lot of low extremity issues, right? A person that has breast cancer, right? this person has meds, right? This person has spinal metastasis. <coughs> this person has spinal meds, right? So what's going to be your immediate next best step in management? Well, your immediate next best step in management is going to be that you're going to give IV steroids, right? So the person doesn't become paraplegic, right? You have like spinal cord compression, right? You have spinal cord compression, right? So your treatment strategies for these people, right? These people actually need neurosurgical evaluation. Neurosurgical evaluation, right? Because sometimes they may want to do a fixation of that person's spinal cord, okay? Now, question 66 says, we have a 25-year-old male with progressive right-sided hearing loss. That's what I mean by HECHA. With the Weber test, vibration is louder in the right ear. Right? And then with the Rene test, bone conduction is greater than air conduction. And then there's a family history of hearing loss. I specifically put this here to remind you that understanding the Weber and Rene test is not high yield at all for the USMLE exams. Most times you can get the question right by just reading the question carefully. Right? So whenever you see a person having hearing loss and you have a family history of hearing loss, I want you to think of otosclerosis on your exam. I want you to think of otosclerosis on your exam. Now, question 67 says we have a 35-year-old male with a history of NF2, presents with a three-month history of progressively worsening morning headaches. Okay. Now, head CT shows a calcified mass with an enhancing linear projection connected to the dura. Again, I could have made your life easy and said, oh, person had this mass has a dural tail. But again, our friends at the NBM know that we live in what? An Anki generation. So what do they do? Instead of saying dural tail, they say, oh, calcified mass, enhancing linear projection connected to the dura. That's a dural tail, right? This person has a meningioma. This person has a meningioma, right? I remember meningiomas are associated with Samoma bodies on histology, right? Samoma bodies. Right? Remember, those Samoma bodies, sometimes they call them laminated calcifications on exams, right? They call Samoma bodies laminated calcifications on exams. Okay, now question 68. Recurrent episodes of acute otitis media. Physical exam reveals non-specific debris behind the tympanic membrane. He has chronic smelling discharge from the affected ear, right? So the person has recurring episodes of acute otitis media, right? And then you're seeing all these debris behind the tympanic membrane, right? And then you're having this chronic drainage, right? If you see this, 
I hope you are saying, oh, divine, this person probably has cholesteatoma. Cholesteatoma. Right? So that debris you are seeing behind the tympanic membrane is just like keratin stuff, right? That's destroying the ossicles of the middle ear. So how are you going to diagnose this? You're actually going to do a CT of the head to make the diagnosis. And this is treated with surgery. If you don't treat it with surgery, ultimately those, ker those keratin, uh, the keratin debris will damage the person's uh, middle ear ossicles, your malleus incus and stapes, and then cause problems, right? Cause a conductive hearing loss. All right. Now question 69, pain, redness, and swelling behind the left ear. So you're seeing pain behind the ear, right? Pain behind the ear should tell you that you're dealing with mastoiditis, right? So this person has mastoiditis, right? So what's going to be your next best step in management? How do we diagnose this? Again, I'm going to do a CT of the head, right? Remember, it's an infection of those mastoid air cells, right? And you're usually going to treat this with vancomycin, right? Vancomycin. Or you can use ampicillin plus sorbactam on exams. Ampicillin plus sorbactam. Ampicillin plus sorbactam. Okay. Now, question 70 says, blunt kidney trauma algorithm. Right? It's probably the easiest algorithm you ever learn in all of medicine. It's very easy. If a person was like, you know, has been hit with a baseball bat in the flank or whatever, you're like, oh, blunt trauma to the kidneys. What is the first thing you're always supposed to do? You're going to get a urinalysis first. Right? You're going to get a urinalysis first. That's the first thing you do. If that urinalysis is positive for blood, then you need to get a CT of the abdomen and pelvis with IV contrast. CT of the abdomen and pelvis with IV contrast. But if you don't see blood, right, if there is no blood, then the person goes home. That's literally how you manage blunt kidney trauma on MDME exams. That's about as much as you need to know for MDME purposes. Okay. So since we still have a little time, let me just go to the next page and do a few of those. So I'm going to erase this. Let's see. All right. Okay. So next one says, painless scrotal mass that transilluminates with a pen light, right? So the scrotal mass, it transilluminates with a pen light. This is easy, right? It's going to be a hydrocyl. Right? Remember, hydrocells, right? It's because your processus vaginalis remains patent, right? Processus vaginalis remains patent. It's supposed to close, right? So your processus vaginalis remains patent. Now, question 72, right? says projectile non bilious vomiting 30 minutes after a feed, right? So just after they eat, right? And it's a newborn, right? And this person is at seven weeks, right? This person is seven weeks old. If you see this, right, this is easy, right? This is going to be uh, pyloric stenosis. Pyloric stenosis, right? And typically for these people, you're going to do an ultrasound, right? You're going to do an ultrasound to make the diagnosis, right? You're going to do an ultrasound to make the diagnosis, right? And then typically they'll want you to fix the electrolyte problem. You fix the electrolyte problem first, and then you then take them to surgery to fix it. Now, question 73, this last question, I'll take questions after this, right? So, newborn with abdominal viscera to the right of the umbilicus versus through the umbilicus. Right? If it's to the right of the umbilicus, that is going to be 
gastroschisis. Gastroschisis, right? What if you're seeing the defect through the umbilicus? That's actually going to be an umphalo seal. Right? Remember, an umphalo seal is sealed. An umphalo seal is sealed. It's covered by peritoneum, right? But gastroschisis is not, right? Now, the thing, though, is gastroschisis tends to be an isolated defect. Usually, there's nothing else going wrong besides that. But an, uh, uh, an umphalo seal tends to be associated with more defects. Right? So even if follow still like the GI problem is not that bad, but these people tend to have many other issues like cardiac problems, limb problems, and stuff like that. Okay, so let, let me go ahead and take people's questions and then we'll, we'll continue from there. Okay, so question 74. Down syndrome with fail, what I mean by FTPM is failure to pass meconium, right? If you see a Down syndrome patient and they have failure to pass meconium, that's easy, right? This person has Hirschsprung's disease. Hirschsprung's Hirschsprung's disease. Right? Person has Hirschsprung's disease, right? Now remember, Hirschsprung's disease is associated with a red gene mutation, right? Just like NEN2AM2B is also associated with a red gene mutation, right? So how do you diagnose Hirschsprung's disease? Well, you're going to do a biopsy of the rectum, right? So you're going to do something called a suction rectal biopsy, and you'll notice that wow. And you don't see any do ganglion cells, right? So you see like no ganglion, no myenteric nerve plexus, no myenteric nerve plexus, right? And is that part of the bowel that you're going to reset to treat the person's first problems? Now, question 75 says, painless intermittently palpable groin mass in an infant, right? If you see this, right, this is easy, right? This is an inguinal hernia. This child has an inguinal hernia, right? Now, what is the most common kind of hernia in females? Remember the word F-E, I mean the two letters F-E in females, right? It's going to be a femoral hernia, right? So remember, femoral hernias are common in females, right? This one is usually going to be under the inguinal ligament on exams, under the inguinal ligament. And many times, this one you don't wait. You don't do watchful waiting for femoral hernias, right? You need to fix it relatively quickly, right? Because again, they have a very high risk of becoming incarcerated, okay? They have a very high risk of becoming incarcerated. Now, pay attention to this one. You're going to see some of these questions on your real exam, right? So thyroid. So what is your first step in working up thyroid nodules? The first thing you always want to do, right, is you always want to measure their TSH, right? You always want to measure the TSH, right? Now, what is your next best step in the management for a person that has a hot nodule? So, remember, a hot nodule is a hot nodule that is secreting a ton of thyroid hormone, right? So, those people's thyroid hormone is high, so their TSH will be low, right? So, whenever you see a person that has a low TSH, right, and they have a thyroid nodule, your next step is going to be a RYU scan, a radioactive iodine optic scan. We'll talk about that in a bit here, okay? But if you notice that hmm, this person's TSH is normal or increased, right? That means they have a cold nodule, right? Whenever you see that, you need to do an ultrasound of their thyroid gland. And then you follow that up with an FNE, right? Because we're worried about cancer in these people. We're worried about cancer. Now, let's talk about some RYU scan results, some radioactive iodine optic scan results. And remember, 
Orion scan on exams is also called thyroid scintigraphy. Thyroid scintigraphy. Just another name for the exact same thing, right? <laughs> now, what if you see one hot spot on Orion scan, like one hot spot? If you see that, right, I want you to think of a toxic adenoma. A toxic adenoma, right? So you just basically have like a group of cells that have decided to go rogue and start producing their own thyroid hormone. But if you see multiple hot spots, right, like many, 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 many hot spots, then I want you to think about like, oh, it's almost like the person has like many toxic adenomas. This is something that is called a toxic multinodular goiter, right? This is a toxic multinodular goiter, okay? Now, what if you notice that, wow, this person has a hot nodule, when you do the right scan, you see no optic, no optic at all, right? And their thyroid is like very tender, very, it hurts a lot when you press on it. Then this person has the Quervain's thyroiditis, right? The Quervain's thyroiditis. Remember, this is also called granulomatous thyroiditis on MDM exams, right? So it's called the Quervain's thyroiditis or granulomatous thyroiditis or subacute thyroiditis. Again, we can't seem to agree on one name for this thing, right? Subacute, the Quervain's granulomatous, all the same thing. Now, what if you see hyperthyroidism in a healthcare worker? Ooh, right? If you see this, right, this is factitious, right? Factitious hyperthyroidism. The person is snacking on synthroid, right? The person is snacking <laughs> on synthroid, that way, right? Snacking. Please don't snack on synthroid. Trust me, it's not a good thing to snack on. Right? It's going to destroy the person's life. Okay, right? Now, remember, these people, they will have low levels of thyroglobulin. Low levels of thyroglobulin. Remember, thyroglobulin is like the C-peptide of a person's thyroid gland. I'll say that again. Thyroglobulin is like the C-peptide of the thyroid gland, right? So the thyroid hormone that you steal from the Pixis machine, it doesn't have thyroglobulin in it, right? So when you check your thyroglobulin levels, right? Believe it or not, I actually had a patient that had the stuff during med school. I got extensively pimped on this stuff, right? But obviously, thank God I knew it, right? But this person had very, very low thyroglobulin, Right, and they were literally snacking on. That's why. That's where I came up with this term, snacking on synthroid. Right, that was what we used to discuss in our in our medicine team you know, back in the day at Hopkins. Right, so this person was, you know, had very low thyroglobulin. That was factitious because again, they are hyperthyroid. Right, but again, it's not coming endogenous. Okay. Now, what's the most common cause of a cold thyroid nodule? What's the most common cause of cold thyroid nodule? It's actually going to be a colloid cyst. But again, we still biopsy these things, so colloid. So that's C-O-L-L-O-I-D, a colloid cyst, right? We still biopsy them, though, because sometimes, again, it could be cancer. Now, what if a person has swallowing issues after you've cut out part of their thyroid gland? Why would they have swallowing issues? Well, unfortunately, you've messed up their recurrent laryngeal nerve. Again, you see, this is the second time I'm mentioning this. Recurrent laryngeal nerve is a very high-yield nerve to understand for exams. It kind of goes around the neck, right? So you got to be careful when you're doing neck surgery. Now, what is the most common thyroid cancer, right? That's weird. So what's the most common thyroid cancer? This is easy, right? It's going to be papillary thyroid cancer. Remember, papillary thyroid cancer is popular. Papillary thyroid cancer is popular. So nice to remember that. And this, surprise, surprise, also has samoma bodies. Right? So we've talked about some bodies for papillary thyroid cancer. I've talked about it for meningioma. Right? 
Again, remember those things are also called laminated calcifications. Now, the next one says prolonged QT on an EKG with thyroid cancer, right? So all the person have thyroid cancer and have a prolonged QT. Well, that means maybe they have an electrolyte problem like low calcium that is prolonging their QT, right? And what is the thing that lowers your calcium is calcitonin, right? Remember, calcitonin tones down your blood calcium levels, right? So what kind of cancer makes a ton of calcitonin and is a thyroid cancer? It's medullary thyroid cancer, right? So this person has medullary thyroid cancer, right? Now, laminated calcifications, again, some of bodies talked about this many, many times already, right? That's going to be papillary thyroid cancer, right? Now, how does papillary thyroid, how does follicular thyroid cancer spread? <laughs> this actually spreads hematogenously. I know you may think that, oh, divine, this is so low yield to know. <laughs> I wish you all the best. It is not low yield by any stretch, right? Because many times they'll say, oh, how do you treat this, right? And then they'll give you an answer that involves doing surgery and a lymph node dissection, and that would be wrong. You don't do lymph node dissections for follicular thyroid cancer because it does not spread through lymph nodes. Why increase that person's risk of lymphedema? Right? You're not going to do that. But papillary thyroid cancer spreads through lymph nodes. Papillary thyroid cancer loves to spread through lymph nodes. So you need to do a lymph node dissection, right? Now, what is the unique staining with medullary thyroid cancer? That's what I mean by MTC, right? Remember that Congo red business, right? Because that calcitonin can come together and form amyloid, right? So you have that apple green birefringence or Congo red stain. Now, old guy, if you see an old guy with thyroid cancer and, you know, you have lesions everywhere, if you see this, I want you to think about anaplastic thyroid cancer. I want you to think of anaplastic thyroid cancer. Now, next one says prophylactic surgery with MEN2 syndromes. Right? So if a person has a family history of MEN2, what are they supposed to get? They're going to get a prophylactic thyroidectomy. Because it's not if they will get medullary thyroid cancer. It's just a matter of when, right? If a person has... <coughs> sorry, excuse me. If a person has a family history of MEN2, if they live long enough... <coughs> Excuse me. They will for sure get medullary thyroid cancer, right? Okay. Now, question 79 and 80. What is the likely nerve lesion? Right. So, the first one says lateral thigh numbness in a basketball player who has required right thigh casting for a sports-related injury, right? So, they've done a lot of casting of the thighs. They notice the lateral thigh has anesthesia. If you see this, I hope you're saying, oh, divine, this person has injury to the lateral this one is very easy to remember. Lateral femoral cutaneous nerve. Lateral femoral cutaneous nerve. Again, but sometimes our friends at the MBME, they like to be wise. So instead of doing that, they'll tell you that this person has neuralgia parasthetica. Neuralgia parasthetica, right? If you see that, that is lateral femoral cutaneous nerve injury. Next one says, Flattening of the thinner eminence, sensory loss on the ventral surface, right? So ventral surface, lateral hand, this is easy, right? This is a median nerve problem, right? This person has carpal tunnel syndrome. So that's a median nerve problem, right? That's a median nerve problem. Now, what if a person has weakness in finger spread, right? Weakness in finger spread. Those are your interosseous muscles, right? 
Those are your interosseous muscles. That's a problem with the ulnar nerve, right? That's a problem with the ulnar nerve, right? Next one says, we have a 51-year-old male with a six-month history of numbness and paresthesias <laughs> in the left foot radiating to the left great toe, right? So you know this person has like pain under their feet and it's going to the left great toe. Again, it's not an acute problem. It's going to be a chronic problem. It's not gout, right? This person actually has something on Indian exams that we call tarsal tunnel syndrome. Tarsal tunnel syndrome. It's almost like... Uh, I saw this on a test question. It's almost like uh, carpal tunnel syndrome, but it's in the legs, right? This is a problem with the tibial nerve. It's a problem with the tibial nerve. So you see all those T's, tarsal, tunnel, tibia. Easy way to remember that. Now, next one here says, we have a 37-year-old male cyclist. He has been unable to train for the past four days. Okay, that's not good. He had a sore throat and rhinorrhea that resolved 10 days ago without treatment. So they had some kind of mucosal infection. And then now they cannot cycle. They can't use their lower extremities anymore. If you see this, I hope you're saying, oh, divine, almost got me there. This is Guillain-Barré syndrome, right? This person has Guillain-Barré syndrome, right? Again, remember, it's an ascending paralysis, right? So this person will not be able to use their lower extremities. That's where it will start. And then it will go all the way upwards, right? So how do we treat Guillain-Barré syndrome on exams? Well, we're going to treat these people with plasmapheresis, that's first line, right? Or IVIG. IVIG is second line, right? Now, let me tell you this. What are you never supposed to give to people that have Guillain-Barré? Never give them steroids. Remember, steroids are not good for Guillain-Barré, and they're not good for scleroderma, right? Again, many studies have shown a worsening of outcomes with steroids in Guillain-Barré syndrome. Okay. And these people, you need to keep checking their FEV1, Right? You need to keep checking their FEV1 because if their FEV1 starts dropping, oh, that's not good, right? That's not good because it means that those people, their diaphragm is about to say bye, 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 right? And then they go into respiratory failure and die, right? So these people, you need to consistently monitor their FEV1. If it starts going down, that's an indication for endotracheal intubation, okay? If your FEV1 starts going down, that's an indication for endotracheal intubation, okay? We're going to go to the next page. Let me erase what is here. All right. Okay. The next one says, trouble smiling on one side of the face. Right? So this person, they can't smile on one side of their face, right? They have weakness of facial muscles. This is going to be Bell's palsy, right? It's going to be Bell's palsy, right? And remember, Bell's palsy, typically for these people, right? We're going to give them steroids. Uh-huh. But you only give steroids if they present at within three days of the onset of their symptoms. After three days of symptom onset, steroids don't do squat for those people. Okay? Steroids will not do squat for those people. Now, question 183, right? So, buffalo hump, diabetes, osteoporosis, and amenorrhea, right? This is going to be a big discussion, right? So, when okay. people that have this, obviously, they have cushions of some sort, right? So, let's talk about how you manage cushions, right? Again, endocrine, we love you to understand stepwise processes, right? So, the first thing is you need to screen the person, right? So, what's going to be your first diagnostic test? It's going to be a screening test, right? So, that screening test, you can do one of three things, 
Wow. You can either do a 24-hour okay. urinary cortisol, okay. right? And that's going to be elevated. Or you can do the late-night salivary cortisol. The late-night salivary cortisol. Right? The late night salivary cortisol, that's something that, because at night you're usually relaxed, you're like, hmm, tend to watch Netflix and unwind, right? So your cortisol is supposed to be low and not stressed then, right? But if you notice that, wow, this person's late night salivary cortisol is high, that's worrisome for cushions, right? Or another thing you can also do is you can do the low dose dexamethasone suppression test. So you can do the low dose. You can do the low-dose dexamethasone suppression test. You'll notice that, oh, wow, the next morning, the person's cortisol did not suppress, right? That tells you this person has cushions. But after you're done with that, you then need to proceed to the second diagnostic test, right? Your second diagnostic test is that you're going to measure ECTH levels, right? Because the thing is, sometimes people get cushions because they are making a ton of ECTH, which is then driving that cortisol production. On the other hand, people can also have cushions because they just have a ton of cortisol, right? That will obviously suppress the ECTH. So if you notice that, wow, you measure the ECTH and the ECTH is low, that means these people have an adrenal adenoma. They have an adrenal, so let me just separate these. They have an adrenal adenoma. Or they're taking steroids. Mm-hmm. Right? That is making cortisol. So that adrenal adenoma making cortisol, right, is going to suppress the ICTH. Usually for these people, they're going to go ahead and do a CT or an MRI of the abdomen to find that adenoma. That's it. But if you measure the ACTH and you notice that it's high, you're like, ooh, okay. So this person, it's high ACT that's driving their hypercortisolism. So what do you do next? Your third diagnostic test then will be to do the high-dose dexamethasone suppression test. You're going to do a high-dose dexamethasone suppression test, right? So what are some results you can get from that? Well, the results you can get from that are, you notice that, oh, the cortisol suppresses. So if you notice that, oh, well, the, if you do the high-dose dexamethasone suppression test, the person's cortisol gets suppressed. If you see that, then that tells you that, oh, okay, this person has Cushing's disease. This person has Cushing's disease. So they have a pituitary adenoma, right, that is producing a ton of ECTH, right? So obviously for that, you're going to do an MRI of the brain to find the adenoma. But if you notice that their cortisol stays elevated, it doesn't suppress, then we're worried about small cell lung cancer. Right? Ectopic ACTH. We're worried about small cell lung cancer. So what do we do for these people? We're going to get a CT of the chest to find the lung cancer. Right? And in general, for hypercortisolism, you're usually going to treat it with ketoconazole. But again, that treatment, they almost never tested on exams. That's more of a step one concept. I don't really worry much about that. Okay. Because it will inhibit the synthesis of that cortisol. Right? It inhibits like desmolase. Okay. Now question 84 says... So part A says, nasty watery diarrhea with electrolyte imbalances. So notice a person, they have watery diarrhea, and they're having all these electrolyte imbalances, like, you know, let's say they have, like, um, low potassium. 
If you see this, I want you to think of a VIP UMA. Right? A VIP UMA. Right? So they have something that's making vasoactive intestinal peptide. Sometimes they call this WDHA syndrome. WDHA syndrome. So what exactly does that mean? The WD means watery diarrhea. Watery diarrhea, right? The H stands for hypokalemia. And then the A stands for low chloride. You have achlohydrin, right? WDHA syndrome. For the most part, we're just going to give these people a triotide. It will decrease the secretion of that somatostatin. Now, jejunal ulcers, right? You see like ulcers like in weird places. like Because most times when people have ulcers, it doesn't go beyond the duodenum. It's not seen in a weird place like the jejunal, right? This person has zollinger ellison syndrome, right? This person has a gastrinoma, right? ZE syndrome, right? And remember, for these people, we're going to give them PPIs, right? Proton pump inhibitors, right? We're going to give them proton pump inhibitors, right? And then we're going to take them to surgery as well. Because that gastrin is triggering acid production. Now, episodic headache and hypertension, this is easy, right? This is going to be a pheochromocytoma, right? This person has a feel, right? This person has a feel. And how do we diagnose feels? Remember, we diagnose feels by noticing that they have elevated serum or urinary metanephrines. Right? Elevated serum or urinary metanephrines. Right? So they'll have elevated serum or urinary metanephrines. Okay? Now, remember, pheochromocytomas, if you are taking these people to surgery, surgery is how you ultimately fix a feel. But first, you need to give these people an alpha blocker first. Right? And then you give them a beta blocker next. The reason we give that alpha blocker, right? Remember, you give the alpha blocker because if you give a beta blocker, you have unopposed alpha stimulation, right? And that can really, really, really raise their blood pressures, right? So you try to avoid that by giving the alpha blocker first before the beta blocker. Okay. Now, question 85 says, given the following vignettes, what is the most likely diagnosis? These are all bleeders, right? So the first bleeder here, right, is... Painless, massive bloody bowel movements in a 65-year-old female. This person is old, right? And they have painless bloody bowel movements. If you see this, I want you to think of diverticulosis. It's the most common cause of a lower GI bleed in the elderly, right? Next one says we have a 69-year-old male with a history of PAD, right? Peripheral arterial disease. Has a three-month history of severe left lower quadrant pain that is worsened with meals. Right? So this is going to be a guy that is, you know, he's a vasculopath, right? And then they have, like, severe pain around their sigmoid area, right? And it's worsening with males, right? These people have vascular disease of their inferior mesenteric artery, right? This person has sigmoid colitis. Sigmoid colitis. Right? That's why they have that pain. Because when they eat, it's almost like you're working out your GI tract. Yeah, but if your GI tract doesn't have good blood supply, you're going to have symptoms. Okay. Now, next one says, I have a 72-year-old female with a hemoglobin of 8. And a fecal occult blood test is positive. And then an injection murmur radiating to the carotids is heard on auscultation. This person has aortic stenosis and they have GI bleeds. Right? This is a dyad. Aortic stenosis... 
and GI bleeds. If you see this, I want you to think of something called Heidi syndrome. Heidi syndrome, right? Sometimes you may see this referred to on exams as colonic angiodysplasia. Colonic angiodysplasia. So the thing is, people actually don't really understand the pathophase here. But one thought that you see in the literature is that these people, because they have aortic um, stenosis, as their blood is flowing through the aortic valve, the have Willebrand factors are being destroyed. They are being sheared by the calcified aortic valve. If you don't have a Willebrand factor working, I don't know how you're going to do any kind of primary hemostasis. So you're going to be predisposed to bleeding. I'm fairly certain that that's ultimately what people will agree on as the pathophase, right? But that's what you can learn from the literature. Okay. So again, the stenotic valve is sharing the von Willebrand factor, which is causing problems. Now, what if you see a hemoglobin of seven, three months after a triple A repair? So you just refix that abdominal aortic aneurysm, you put a stent, and then you notice that, huh, this person is having a GI bleed. If you see that, I want you to think of something called an aortoenteric fistula. Aortoenteric fistula. Basically, these people have formed a fistula between the stent, right, from the aorta and the GI tract. So they are literally bleeding straight on into their GI tract. Now, the next one says chronic bloody bowel movements with small vascular malformations visible on the buccal mucosa, right? So it's still a person, they have like chronic bloody bowel movements. And they have all these, all these telangiectasias, right, on their lips and on their buccal mucosa. If you see that, I'm sure some of you have heard of this before, I want you to think of hereditary, hereditary, hemorrhagic, hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia, right? Sometimes you, you may see this referred to as osler Viborandu syndrome. osler Weber, I'm sure many of you have seen this disorder somewhere in the, in the distant past. Osler Weber Rondu syndrome. Okay. Now, sudden onset of painful hematemesis, 30 minutes after weight lifting, right? So the person like lifting is like, right? That's a forceful activity. Or the person has an eating disorder, so they retch, they vomit a lot. If you see this, I'll probably be saying, oh, divine, this is probably a Mallory Weiss tear, right? This is a mucosal tear, right, in the esophagus. Okay, right. Notice I didn't say anything about subcutaneous emphysema, so you shouldn't be assuming that this person has Berhaf syndrome. Okay. Now, question 86 says, eczematoid breast lesion. Right. This is easy, right? This is going to be Paget's disease of the breast, right? Now, what is the most common kind of breast cancer? What is the most common kind of breast cancer? Remember, that's going to be infiltrating ductal carcinoma, Right? infiltrating ductal carcinoma, right? And then you see erythema, skin edema, and a tender breast. This is easy, right? This person has inflammatory breast cancer. This person has inflammatory breast cancer. Now, question 87 says, to determine the metastatic potential for breast malignancy, what is the initial diagnostic test that is performed? Right? So you want to determine that, oh, wow, this breast cancer has metastasized. What are you supposed to do first? Remember, the first thing you're supposed to do is something called a sentinel lymph node biopsy. A sentinel lymph node biopsy. So you basically find the first, you know, one or two lymph nodes that train the cancer and biopsy them, right? If you see malignant cells there, that's bad. If you don't, then you've spared the woman 
from having to do like a full axillary lymph node dissection, right? But if you notice that, oh, with this endo lymph node biopsy, you see malignant cells, then your next step is going to be an axillary lymph node dissection. An axillary lymph node dissection, okay? An axillary lymph node dissection, right? Now, question 88 says spontaneous bloody nipple discharge, right? If you get this question on your exam and you get it wrong, I want you, when you get home, to cry very hard, right? <laughs> I'm sure you've seen this in, like, many, many exams, right? In fact, maybe babies that are born these days, if you ask them, they probably know the answer to this, right? So please, 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 I will encourage you, don't get this wrong on an exam. If you do, trust me, like, I'll, even I, even if I don't know, know about it, but I will be unhappy, right? Don't get this wrong. I'm sure you've seen this, like, many times, right? You can probably see this in your sleep, right? This person has an intraductal papilloma, right? Has an intraductal papilloma. There are just certain things that you are not licensed to get wrong, like ever, right? That's one of them. Now, look at the next one. Firm, robbery, discreet, well-circumscribed, mobile, non-tender breast mass in a 25-year-old female that grows bigger with a menstrual cycle, right? So we see this mass, and it kind of moves, it kind of grows big with a menstrual cycle, and it's just one mass. If you see this, that's a fibroadenoma. That's a fibroadenoma. But again, our friends at the MBME, they're wise. Sometimes they will literally describe this to you, right? And tell you that, oh, they biopsied it, and they were able to get fluid out. They were able to get fluid out. If you see that, then that's fibrocystic disease. Right? Look at the name fibrocystic. Fibrocystic means it has fluid, cyst, fluid, right? But most times, again, if you just see that description, you don't tell you anything about withdrawing fluid. That's a fibroadenoma, right? Alternatively, for fibrocystic disease, they'll tell you that, oh, you see a lumpy, bumpy breast, like multiple lesions. That's pretty classic for fibrocystic change. Now, question 89 says, post-splenectomy fever, leukocytosis, and a low blood pressure. So this person is septic. We'll talk about sepsis tomorrow, right? You see a person that their spleen has been removed and they have sepsis. I want you to think of strep pneumo as the source of their sepsis. The most common cause of infection in patients that have had their spleens removed is strep pneumo. Now, question 90 says, weight loss, jaundice, steatorrhea, and dark urine in a smoker, right? These people have a palpable, non-tender, Right, but distended gallbladder, right? So you see painless jaundice in a smoker, right? Remember, this is going to be pancreatic cancer. Remember, the biggest risk factor for pancreatic cancer is smoking. I'll say that again. Smoking is the biggest risk factor for pancreatic cancer, right? And when you suspect a person has pancreatic cancer, you're going to go do a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis with IV contrast, right? To see if, again, it's encased vessels and, and stuff like that, Okay. So this is pancreatic cancer. This is pancreatic cancer. All right. Don't worry. In about 23-ish minutes, I will stop blabbing. Okay. I'm going to erase this. I can feel some people are kind of tired. Don't worry. Have a whole two break. Two hours, right? Use that two hours wisely, right? Don't, don't like, maybe you should sleep, you know. Probably sleep. That's probably, uh, you know, not the worst, uh, not the worst idea in the world. Okay. <laughs> Don't worry, we're almost, we're almost done here. Okay, even I need some rest. Okay. 91 says, new onset diabetes.
plus a red blistering rash spreading across the skin. So you see a person have diabetes, and they have a rash, right? And a chronic rash, right? This is something that many of us probably know as necrolytic migratory erythema, right? Necrolytic migratory erythema, right? If you see this, right, this person has a glucagonoma, right? These things are very deadly. The mortality rate is extremely high. Now, 92 and 93 says epigastric pain radiating to the back, right? So, person has epigastric pain radiating to the back, right? This is easy, right? This is acute pancreatitis. Acute pancreatitis, right? So, let's talk about some physical exam findings in acute pancreatitis, right? So, what are some physical exam findings, right? In acute, what are some physical exam findings in this? There we go. In acute pancreatitis, right? The thing is, those physical exam findings, they are just things you find in people that have hemorrhagic pancreatitis, right? So, essentially, all these things you are seeing are examples of ecchymosis. It's just, you find ecchymosis in one place, you give it a, a you slap your name on it, right? So, you find it on a person's head, you slap your name on it and say, oh, I invented this. No, right? They're just different names, right? So, like, for example, if you find the ecchymosis around the flank, right? That's what's called the great honor sign, right? If you find the ecchymosis around the umbilicus, that's what's called the colon sign, right? If you find it around the inguinal ligament, right? That's what's called the fox sign, right? That's what's called the fox sign, right? Just all different signs for acute pancreatitis. If you're going into surgery residency, they love to pick people on this, you know, as a surgery resident, they can expect you to know this stuff. So, how do we manage acute pancreatitis? Well, uh, the mnemonic I teach people is PIN. P-I-N. That's it, right? What does the P stand for? The P stands for pain control. That's going to be with opioids, right? The I stands for IV fluids. That's going to be normal saline. And then the N stands for MPO. Don't let these people eat, right? So that you don't you don't worsen their condition. Now, what are some prognostic factors? What are some things where you're like, hmm, if I see this, this person is going to do poorly in the hospital. Well, the key ones I want you to know, if they have low calcium, right? If they have low hemoglobin, right? Or if their AST, ALT is markedly elevated. These are poor prognostic factors in people that have in people that have acute pancreatitis, right? So how do we manage a chronic pancreatitis? How do we manage chronic pancreatitis? So these people, they've had many, 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 many bouts of acute pancreatitis. The pancreas is like, doo, 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 doesn't work anymore, right? So what do we do for these people? Well, remember, if your pancreas doesn't work anymore, you're going to need insulin. These people essentially have diabetes, right? Also, these people are going to need pancreatic enzyme replacement, right? They don't have pancreatic enzymes. So, code word on MDM exams for pancreatic enzyme replacement is this word, pancrelipase. It's basically pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy so that they don't have malabsorption, right? You don't want them having malabsorption. And again, on imaging, you're going to find calcifications around the pancreas. You're going to find calcifications around the pancreas. Okay. Now, question 94 says, small bowel obstruction with air in the wall of the biliary tree. So it's seen air around the gallbladder, around the bile duct. 
If you see something like this, I want you to think of Goldstone Elias. Right? That air in the wall of the biliary tree, that's something that many of us know as pneumobilia. Uh, right? I don't know for whatever bizarre reason, for those of you taking the complex exam, you love the stuff on the complex exam. Right? It's one of those things you can almost guarantee you're going to see on your complex exam. Right? So how do we treat this? We actually treat this with a procedure. So they don't test the treatment on USMLE exams, but on complex, absolutely. <coughs> the treatment is an enterolithotomy, right? The enterolithotomy is where you basically, you know, make an incision, open it up, bring out the stone, close it. That's it, right? Many times you don't need to do a cholecystectomy for these people, right? And usually this is going to be in the terminal ileum, right? Because the terminal ileum has like the smallest caliber of your entire small intestine, right? So that's where a stone will likely settle. Okay, now, 95 to 97, these are CT, abdominal CT findings. You need to know these things. If you don't know them, again, they are classic questions on exams, right? So 95 says, hypodense hepatic mass with peripheral enhancement on arterial phase and centripetal filling on delete phases, right? So this thing enhances first like this on imaging, and then it starts enhancing towards the center. If you see this, I want you to think of a hepatic hemangioma, right? I want you to think of a hepatic hemangioma, right? Now, question 96 says, stellate scar on abdominal CT. They tell you that, oh, you do like a liver CT and you see a stellate scar, that's easy, right? You're going to do, this is something called a focal nodular hyperplasia. Focal nodular hyperplasia, right? Now, what if you see heterogeneous enhancement, right? They tell you, oh, you see a liver mass and it has heterogeneous enhancement, right? This is going to be a hepatic adenoma, right? And again, as you'll see tomorrow, these people should avoid estrogen-containing OCPs because estrogen makes this stuff grow bigger. And to be honest with you, all these lesions, just reassure the patient, don't touch them. These are examples of do not touch lesions, right? Because you touch them, the person will probably bleed out and die. You don't want that. So just leave it alone. There are some things that are best left alone, right? There are certain fight battles that you're not supposed to fight. Okay. <clears throat> now, I definitely pay attention to 98 to 100. Very high-yield stuff coming in here, right? These are the three Aspergillus syndromes, right? These are the three Aspergillus syndromes. They love to test them on exams. Okay, let's look at the first one. Elevated serum IgE and eosinophils with very difficult to control asthma and interstitial infiltrates on chest x-ray. Right? So you're like, huh, this person's IgE, eosinophils elevated, and yet asthma just doesn't seem to be getting better. If you see something like this, I want you to think about allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis. Allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis. EBPA, and we're going to treat this with steroids, right? That's it. Next one says, cough and hemoptysis in an IV drug user currently on rifampin and isoniazid therapy. CBC is notable for marked serum eosinophilia, right? So notice that, wow, this person has a lot of eosinophils in their serum, right? But they are being treated for TB. So maybe they have an OTB cavity that is harboring a fungus ball, right? This is what is called an aspergilloma. This is an aspergilloma, right? 
And your first diagnostic step here is you're going to do a biopsy. Because sometimes what you think is an aspergilloma is actually lung cancer. And then after that, you're going to surgically remove the mass. You're going to surgically remove the mass. Aspergillomas, you usually don't need antibiotic therapy for that. Okay. Next one says cadaveric renal transplant three months ago on immunosuppressive therapy. <coughs> this person has so this person is immunocompromised. This person has high fevers and leukopenia. And you've given this person broad spectrum therapy. You've given Veng, you've given cefepine, you're not getting better. And then they tell you that you get a CT scan and you see a targetoid hyperdensity with surrounding ground glass attenuation, targetoid. Right? Whenever you see that, that's something called the halo sign. The halo sign. Halo sign. This person has invasive aspergillosis. They'll give you a story of like, you know, this person is having infections, they're immunocompromised, we're doing broad spectrum therapy for days, they're still having fevers, they're not getting better. That's invasive aspergillosis. What is the drug of choice for invasive aspergillosis? It's going to be voriconazole. So first line is voriconazole. Voriconazole works better than amphotericin B for invasive aspergillosis. Second line is amphotericin B. So always try voriconazole first before you go to amphotericin B for aspergillosis. Now, 101 says severe abdominal distension and bloody bowel movements in the 39-year-old male with a history of bloody diarrhea, right? So you see a young guy has had chronic bloody diarrhea, right? So young guy, chronic bloody diarrhea. And then they have this acute onset like abdominal distension. If you see this, right, this person obviously has ulcerative colitis, right? This person right now has toxic megacolon. Toxic megacolon. Remember, you can also get toxic megacolon with C. diff, right, on exams. So what's the diagnostic criteria for toxic megacolon? Right? How do we diagnose this stuff? Well, you're going to get an abdominal X-ray. And the thing you're going to notice is that the transverse colon is at least 6 centimeters in diameter. That number, you do actually need to commit it to, to memory. Now, question 102 says, sigmoid versus sequel volvulus via imaging. Right? We know that if you see a volvulus, the big thing you're thinking about is that they're going to have the coffee bean sign. They're going to have the coffee bean sign, right? But the thing is, you can have that coffee bean oriented towards the right lower quadrant. Or you can have that coffee bean oriented towards the left lower quadrant. <coughs> if it's oriented towards the left lower quadrant, I want you to think about a sigmoid volvulus, okay? But if it's oriented towards the right lower quadrant, I want you to think of a sequel volvulus, right? So how do we manage volvulus on MBM exams? Well, the way we manage volvulus is first, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to do sigmoidoscopy. Sigmoidoscopy plus a rectal tube. You're basically setting up, many of us know what an, an NG tube is. This is like an NG tube for the ass, right? <laughs> you set it up, hook it up to wall suction, and just keep sucking it out of your ass, right? I imagine this is probably not the most pleasant, it's like a good classic med student duty. Okay, right? So you do, see more, that's with a rectal tube. That doesn't work. 
We're going to proceed to a colonoscopy. There are many more variations in management, but for the most part, this is what you need to know for your USMLE exams. Now, what if a person suffers a bite wound? What are you supposed to do when a person suffers a bite wound? Well, a bite wound, remember, is classically associated, uh, you know, the person comes, they get bitten, and we'll say some more things about this later in the course. When a person suffers a bite wound, right, first, they're supposed to debride, right? And then, you're supposed to leave the wound open. Right? Don't close it because many times it's anaerobes that cause those infections. So if you leave the wound exposed, oxygen will keep going into it and that will inhibit the growth of those anaerobes. Right? So you debride and you allow it to heal by secondary intention. By secondary intention. That's how you to know. So again, that means you don't let it close. You don't close it yourself. Don't suture it. Just let it go. Now, what is the most common cause of death? in refeeding syndrome. Why do people that have refeeding syndrome die? The reason they die is because of low phosphate, right? Hypophosphatemia. So what's the pathophase there? Well, when you've not eaten for a long time, your insulin is very low. And then you're like, hmm, let me start eating again, right? When you start eating, then your body will be like, ooh, food is here. Wow, okay. Insulin will then spike up a lot. And we know insulin's job description in life is to drive things into cells, drive things into cells. So you can drive your phosphate into cells. So you don't have enough phosphate available for your heart to work. Those people can get bad arrhythmias and die, right? So hypophosphatemia, that's very high you to know. Hypophosphatemia is the most common cause of death in refeeding syndrome. Now, question 105 says we have a 42-year-old female with fever and right upper quadrant pain, Right? plus a distended hepatic duct, right? So fever and right upper quadrant pain with a distended hepatic duct, right? With a distended hepatic duct. What's the big thing to know there? So let's say this is a person's gallbladder, right? We know that the gallbladder drains into the cystic duct, right? And typically when people have cholecystitis, the obstruction is in the cystic duct. Right? Remember, from your liver comes your common hepatic duct. But sometimes, people can have obstruction that is so bad that the cystic duct gorges and begins to impinge on the common hepatic duct. Right? If your cystic duct impinges on the common hepatic duct, then your common hepatic duct is going to dilate. Right? It's going to dilate, dilate, dilate. Right? It's almost like an external compression by the cystic duct. This is something called Meritzi's syndrome. Meritzi's syndrome. They love to, this is a classic NBN exam question. Meritzi's syndrome. Okay. Now, 106-107 says, we have a 29-year-old male with mild right upper quadrant pain and sclerolictors. So look at this. This person has right upper quadrant pain and jaundice, but they have no fever. So this is not an itis. Right? They have right upper quadrant pain, they have jaundice, but no fever. If you see this, this person has cholidocolithiasis. Cholidocolithiasis, right? This is an obstruction of the common bowel duct. Basically, ascending cholangitis starts as cholidocolithiasis, right? So the obstruction here is in the common bowel duct, right? So what do we do for these people? We're going to make the diagnosis first with an ultrasound. We'll see obstruction of the common bowel duct. And then after that, we're going to do an ERCP, right? 
we're going to do an ERCP to remove the obstructing stone. Okay? We'll look at question 108. This person has fever, they have right upper quadrant pain, and they have jaundice. Right? So they have the triad. The presence of fever in the setting of jaundice and right upper quadrant pain tells you that, ooh, this is ascending cholangitis. Right? And ascending cholangitis, you're not going to be messing around because this thing has a very high morbidity, very high mortality. So you're going to do an ERCP. And ERCP is both diagnostic and therapeutic for ascending cholangitis, right? And ERCP is both diagnostic and therapeutic for ascending cholangitis. Okay. So let me move to the next page. Right, don't worry, we're almost taking our break, which will be nice. Okay. So question 109 says 105 pack year smoking history. This person has smoked a lot. With rapidly developing digital clubbing and diffuse joint pain. Right? If you see a person that has smoked a lot and then they develop arthritis very rapidly over a few weeks, I want you to think of something called it's a paraneoplastic syndrome. It's called hypertrophic hypertrophic pulmonary osteoarthropathy. Hypertrophic pulmonary osteoarthropathy. Right? Your next step usually is to get chest imaging to find the lung cancer they have. Now, question 110 says small cell lung cancer. Right. So all the person with small cell lung cancer have hyponatremic seizures. Well, remember, that's going to be from SIDH, right? We'll talk about SIDH later. But if you have SIDH, your ADH is high. So you're reabsorbing a lot of water from your urine, right? If you're absorbing all that water, that's going to lower your sodium and cause seizures. Now, difficulty combing hair, right? Remember, if you're trying to comb your hair, right, you're using your proximal muscles, your proximal muscles, your proximal muscles, okay? If you have difficulty combing your hair, then I want you to think of Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome, right? We'll talk about Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome later in the course. Again, just hang on with me. We're going to be done in about five, four, five minutes here, right? You know, take those questions and then we'll take a break. Now, question 111 says, facial swelling, headaches, and bilateral GVD. So you see a person, they have lung cancer, right? So we're basically doing a bunch of lung cancer questions. You see their face is swollen, they have headaches, right? And those headaches will be bad when they put their head forward, right? Those headaches tend to be bad when they put their head forward. I'll say that again. Those headaches tend to be bad when they put their head forward, right? If you see this, I want you to think about superior vena cava syndrome, mm -hmm. right? SVC syndrome. And how do you treat SVC syndrome? We're going to use radiation. Radiation, right? This is one of those radonc emergencies. This is one of the few reasons why you will call radonc to come in overnight and help the patient. Okay. Now, question 112 says, two millimeter left-sided pupils with a droopy eyelid and left-sided hand pain, right? So we're seeing like ptosis, meiosis, stuff like that, right? This is going to be Horner's syndrome, right? And this Horner's syndrome, right, is from a pancoast tumor. Now, one thing I want to point out here that's high yield to know for MBM exams is pancoast tumors tend to be associated with squamous cell lung cancer versus SVC syndrome, that tends to be associated more with small cell lung cancer, okay, with small cell lung cancer. Now, question 113 says, respiratory rate of 8, 
and the BMI of 45 with heavy snoring, right? This person is hypoventilating. That's a key thing that helps here. They're hypoventilating, they're really fat, and they snore. This is obesity hypoventilation syndrome. Obesity hypoventilation syndrome. Obesity hypoventilation syndrome, right? So what's the diagnostic hallmark? Well, these people, because they are not breathing often enough, right? These people are going to have something called daytime hypercapnia. Daytime hypercapnia, right? So they are retaining a lot of CO2, right? They have daytime hypercapnia. And think about this. These people are chronically hypoxic. They're chronically hypoxic. They're chronically hypoxic. So what's going to happen? They're going to make a ton of EPO, right? So these people's EPO is going to be high. And if your EPO is high, you're going to get a polycythemia, right? These people are going to have a polycythemia. Now, question 114 says, fired for napping at work with low-hanging uvula and loud snoring, right? So this person has an obstruction, right? This person has obstructive sleep apnea, right? OSA. People that have obstructive sleep apnea, they usually don't have that hypoventilation during the day or daytime hypercapnia. They won't have that. That's how you differentiate OSA from OHS, right? And because there's a sleep problem, right, you're going to do a polysomnogram. You're going to do a sleep study, right? So you're going to perform polysomnography, polysomnography, right? Polysomnography. Right? And we're going to treat this with CPAP or BiPAP. So CPAP or BiPAP. CPAP or BiPAP. Okay. So let me take people's questions. Okay. So we'll start at question 115. So it says, we have a 27-year-old male. He's brought to the ER with shortness of breath. He is found to have worsening hypoxemia. And a rapid COVID-19 test is positive. This will be the first of many discussions on COVID-19. His PO2 is 100 and 100% FiO2. That's a problem, right? If your FiO2 is 100%, your PO2 should be at least greater than 300, right? And that's not even great. So this person has uh, ARDS, right? So this person has ARDS, right? This person has ARDS. Now, what's the most common cause of ARDS? That's actually going to be sepsis. Most people that have ARDS get it because they were septic, right? And unfortunately, this person has to be placed on a ventilator, right? And again, when you place these people on a ventilator, you need to use long protective strategies, right? So you're going to use low tidal volume. And you're going to use high PEEP. So low tidal volume and high PEEP, right? And remember, ARDS, why do these people's lungs get trashed? Well, they have this systemic inflammatory state, right? With that systemic inflammatory state, we have an increase in vascular permeability. An increase in vascular permeability in the lungs. This is something they love to test a lot, right? Increase in vascular permeability in the lungs, right? So that's why we have that pulmonary edema. It's like a non-cardiogenic kind of pulmonary edema. Okay. Now, question 116 says, next best step in management in a long nodule seen on a chest x-ray, right? So if you see a person, you see a long nodule on chest x-ray, the thing is you need to better characterize that nodule. So how are you going to do that? You're going to do that by getting a chest CT, right? You're going to get a chest CT. Now, there are certain lung cancers, as we know, 
they are central sonar peripheral. So how do you biopsy those central lesions? Well, the way you're going to do that is by doing something called a mediastinoscopy. Mediastinoscopy. Although, one other thing you can do is something we know as EBUS, endobronchial ultrasound. So you can perform an endobronchial ultrasound. Right? That's something you can do. But if it's a peripheral lesion, it's going to be really hard to get there from the mediastinum. Right? So if it's like an abnocarcinoma, in those situations, the thing you're going to do is you're going to do a percutaneous CT-guided biopsy. This is usually done by interventional radiology. Right? So you perform a percutaneous CT-guided biopsy. Right? And when a person has a pleural effusion and they have lung cancer, right? you're going to perform a thoracentesis. You're going to perform a thoracentesis. Right? Because if you find malignant cells in thoracentesis fluid, the person has stage 4 lung cancer. That's the end, right? Person is pretty much, that's game over, right? Now, if you're doing a needle, right? You're trying to do a thoracentesis and you're using a needle. Again, so of this stuff, I know it may be something you think that always oh, going with step one, but guess what? It's very important for step two, CK step three. You need to go above the margin of the rib, right? Because you don't want to, in, you don't want to injure the intercostal bundle. You don't want to injure the intercostal vein, artery, and nerve, right? So you need to go above the region of the rib. Now, before lung cancer resective surgery, so what do I mean by this? If you're ever doing any kind of resection of the lung for any reason, literally, what are you only supposed to do? Well, you always want to make sure that you check their FEV1, right? Usually you want their FEV1 to be greater than one to two liters. Because the thing is, if it's really small, right? then they won't have enough lung, lung left to uh, respirate after, their, after they, they come out of surgery, right? Those people are going to not make it out of surgery. They're going to be like, go from the OR to the morgue. You don't want that, right? So in those circumstances, the smart thing to do is to, again, check the FUD more. Now, the next one says thick pleura and hemorrhagic pleural effusions, right? So thick pleura and hemorrhagic pleural effusions. So you see there's a pleural abnormality. And many times this malignancy, likes to cause hemorrhagic pleural effusions. If you see this, this is a mesothelioma, right? Remember, mesotheliomas are associated with samoma bodies, right? They are associated with samoma bodies, right? Now, question 119 says, treatment differences in small cell versus non-small cell lung cancer. The big thing I just want to emphasize here is that small cell lung cancer is only treated with chemo. Because the thing is, it's considered to be metastatic a diagnosis. So you're not going to like, oh, let's irradiate the whole human being, right? That's ridiculous, right? So we're not going to do that. But non-small cell lung cancer, all treatment options are open, including chemo and surgery, right? So again, if a person has small cell lung cancer, don't pick radiotherapy as an answer, right? That would be wrong. That would be wrong. Okay. Uh, question 120 says, two-week history of fevers, night sweats, and hemoptysis. And a 31-year-old immigrant graduate student, right? The person is an immigrant, right? So they probably have some kind of TB exposure, right? So this person has TB, right? And again, remember, because this person has active TB, we're going to give them the right regimen, right? Rifampin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol, right? Plus vitamin B6. Okay. Now, question 121 says, what is the major determinant of successful TB treatment? 
So what is the thing that makes you see, oh, okay, this person will likely recover from this? It's actually medication adherence. Remember, it's TB, right? Many times you have to be on medications for a long time, right? So medication adherence is actually the most important determinant of successful treatment. Now, 121, the second part says, what is your next best step in management with a positive TB skin test and a negative chest x-ray? Right? So if your TB skin test is positive, you have a negative chest x-ray, well, that tells you that this person has lethent TB. Right? True, if yeah. a person has lethent TB, how do we treat them? Again, there are many regimens. Well, there's only one regimen your friends at the NBA mm -hmm. want you to know. Right? And that's going to be isoniazid plus vitamin B6. Right? I'm going to do that for nine months. That's pretty much it. Okay? Now, question 122, right? They love making a military question from this. So, it's a 25-year-old male. He's brought to the ED after being found comatose on a military base. He just returned from deployment on a peacekeeping mission in the DRC. That's the Congo. His friends report that he had a back cold for about five days. So, you have like viral URI symptoms for a while. But then, started having bloody bowel movements yesterday. Right? Anything that can go wrong with this person is going wrong. The PT, PTT, bleeding time, AST, ALT, all elevated. Kind of like a DIC picture, right? Yeah. And the person's creatinine is really high, right? This person has Ebola. Ooh. Oh, damn. This person has Ebola, right? So you see like a very bleedy person with a oh, DIC-like picture yeah. after like a viral upper respiratory infection, right? And you notice that they've, you know, recently been to like some African yeah, country. Wow. Right? And your next step in management, you're going to give IV fluids, right? And then you're just going to do supportive care and pray very hard, right? Because as you know, many people do not survive Ebola, right? Ebola is awful. It is terrible. I'll tell you that. Okay. So I'm going to erase this so we can keep going. Okay. So 123, 124. Now, it says... I have a 26-year-old female. She comes to the physician's office complaining of severe bilateral elbow and knee pain. So you see like a lot of bones are hurting. She just returned from a six-month deployment. Her symptoms were preceded by six days of high fevers. Physical exam is notable for low extremity PTKI, right? So you see this person, they have like a lot of just bone pain, bone pain, bone pain, like painful bones. Painful bones, painful extremities. If you see this, I want you to think of chikungunya. I know some of you may be like, oh, divine, hey, just hang on first. I'll, I'll get to your concerns, right? So this is chikungunya, right? So how could you have prevented this person from getting chikungunya in the first place? Well, the thing is, on MBM exams, you want to pick the answer that says that, oh, these people should have used mosquito netting, right? They should have used mosquito nets. Right? So that's how they could have prevented that, right? And what is the close MDME exam causing, right? That's going to be dengue. Huh. Dengue and chikungunya, they present almost identically on exams. But the big thing you will see with dengue is you'll see a lot of hemorrhage. You will mention something related to bleeding in the Q-stem, either the bleeding from somewhere. That's why it's called dengue hemorrhagic fever, right? And it can even give you a co-infection question because... Both of these bugs are carried by the Aedes mosquito, right? So you know how the NBME loves to do co-infection questions. We'll talk about some of those, I believe, tomorrow, right? The Aedes mosquito can give a person chikungunya and dengue at the same time. Okay. Now, question 125, 126, right? It says, shortness of breath 
with the first one says long bone fractures. So you see a person, they are short of breath and they've just had like an orthopedic surgical procedure or something, right? That's pretty classic for fat embolism syndrome, right? That person has fat embolism syndrome, right? Because that yellow marrow inside their bones has disseminated and is now causing little infarcts in blood vessels. Okay, remember as you get older, your bone gets filled with yellow marrow, no more red marrow. It's now yellow marrow. That's fat. That's what's called fat embolism syndrome. Now, what if you see a person that's short of breath and a central venous catheter was just inserted? But you check your chest because I know some of you are like, oh, divine pneumothorax. But look at this. The chest x-ray is normal. If you see this, I want you to think of an air embolus, right? So air embolism. So what are we supposed to do for these people? Actually, these people, we want to put them in the left lateral, the cubitus position. Left lateral, the cubitus position. There are many other things you do, but that is like extremely beyond the scope of the USNLE exams, so the right? We basically put them in that position so that you're essentially like just trying to keep it from like going to the brain or causing like really, really bad problems. Now, recent labor and delivery, you see a person, they're short of breath, they're super hypoxic, and they just delivered a child, right? And many times they'll give you a DIC picture, right? If you see this, I hope you're saying, oh, divine, this is an amniotic fluid embolus. So this is amniotic fluid embolism. Now, how about a person that's short of breath and they have a history of infective endocarditis? This is easy. This is a septic pulmonary embolus. Right? So septic pulmonary embolus. Now, question 127 says, asymptomatic patient with an INR of 9, that's crazy high, right? This person is super therapeutic on INR, right? And they're taking warfarin. Well, remember warfarin, if a person gets super therapeutic, the way you're going to help those people is you're going to give them the four-factor prothrombin complex concentrate, 4-FPCC, the four-factor prothrombin complex concentrate, right? And then you can also give them oral vitamin K. Because remember, if you're super therapeutic on, on warfarin, you can begin to form all these weird hematomas in different parts of the body. Like, you can have, like, a duodenal hematoma. They can get a rectus sheath hematoma, Right? They can just get hematomas in rare places when they're super therapeutic. So you need to take it seriously, right? And usually their hematocrit will be dropping because they are bleeding somewhere. Now, question 128 says, we have a 19-year-old male. He presents with a sudden onset of severe right upper quadrant pain and progressively worsening abdominal swelling, okay? So this thing is sudden onset, right? So look at this. He has a history of chronic hematuria, Okay. And then look at this. His labs are, his hemoglobin is low, his white count is low, his platelets are low. So this person has a pancytopenia, right? It's a young male, right? Pancytopenia in a young male. If you see this and the, the pee blood, especially in the mornings, I want you to think about PNH. Because when you sleep, when you sleep, right, you're not breathing as fast, you're hypoventilated. So that will cause a respiratory acidosis. Respiratory acidosis increases the activity of your complement cascade. That's why these people, when they wake up in the morning, it's like red urine central for these people, right? <laughs> That's very high yield to know. So this person has PNH. So what's the pathophase behind PNH? PNH actually arises from something called a PIG-A gene mutation. It's a gene, PIG-A. If you unscramble these words, you'll actually get GPI anchor, GPI anchor. 
right? So it's a PEG mutation. So you form these GPI. You don't have these GPI anchors. If you don't have them, the thing is these things are like little sticks, right? They're like little sticks that help you hold things like CD55, which we also call decay accelerating factor, and CD59. So CD55, CD59 on the surfaces of your red blood cells, right? So they help you kind of hold those things up. If they hold those things up, that protects you from complement, from that membrane attack complex. So if those sticks are not there because you have the PGG mutation, complement will come and ping, 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 explode all your red blood cells, right? And then you're going to get in trouble. Right? So again, the gene mutation, again, is the PA gene mutation. And this is actually not heritable. Not heritable. Right? It's actually like a spontaneous somatic mutation that arises that causes this problem. Right? So it's actually not heritable. Right? It's actually not heritable on MBME exams. Now, how do you diagnose this? You're actually going to do flow cytometry. You're going to perform flow cytometry. Right? And in performing that flow cytometry, you'll notice that, oh, wow, they have an absence of that CD55 and CD59. Right? So the thing is, how do we? treat these people. We've talked about this in the morning, right? We're going to treat these people with eculizumab, right? Eculizumab is a monoclonal antibody against the C5 complement protein, right? So the membrane attack complex never forms, so they don't explode their red blood cells anymore, right? And remember, these people, because of that constant hemolysis, right, they have a high risk of cholelithiasis. Any disorder, even like hereditary spherocytosis, whatever, that increases your risk of hemolysis, can cause you to have all these pigmented gallstones, right? So that can cause cholelithiasis, okay? Question 129 says, we have a 65-year-old male with a six-month history of progressively worsening dyspnea, dry cough, and bibasilar fine crackles heard on long auscultation, right? So see this old guy, you know, fine crackles, six-month history is a chronic problem. If you see this, I want you to think of IPF, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, right? And how do we diagnose IPF? Well, you're actually going to do a high-resolution CT scan of the lungs. So you're going to do a high-resolution CT scan of the lungs. Now, question 130, 130 says, African-American female with a six-month history of dyspnea and dry cough, right? So what do we expect the labs to look like? How do we treat this, right? So African-American female, dry cough, this is easy, right? This woman has sarcoidosis sarcoidosis, right? So remember, people that have sarcoidosis, they tend to have elevated levels of angiotensin-converting enzyme, right? And they also tend to have hypercalcemia. So remember, the reason they have hypercalcemia, remember in sarcoid, sarcoid is a granulomatous <coughs> disease, right? So those macrophages, those epithelioid macrophages that surround the granuloma, they make one alpha hydroxylase. They make one alpha hydroxylase. So if you make a ton of 1-alpha-hydroxylase, you'll make a ton of vitamin D. So because of they're making a ton of vitamin D, they have hypercalcemia. So that's the mechanism there, right? Now, how do we treat sarcoid? Most times, sarcoid, we don't need to treat. But if they're symptomatic, you can give them steroids. And it will literally melt away their symptoms very quickly. Now, question 131 says, patient above, so this sarcoid patient, right? with tender erythematous nodules on the shins, right? This pretty much shows up on essentially every Indian exam, right? It's going to be erythema nodosum, right? Erythema 
no dosum, right? Now, what of how about sarcoidosis patients? You notice that they have like violet colored lesions, like on the cheek, on the nose, on the ears, right? You can see it's kind of like a lupus distribution, right? It's like on the cheeks, on the nose, on the ears, everything. If you see this, it's actually something that's called lupus perineal. Lupus perineal is something that's associated. It's like a malar rash distribution found in people that have sarcoidosis on exams. Now, 132-133 says, we have a 31-year-old female uh, presents with a two-day history of fevers and chills. She has a history of intermittent severe pain on her forehead and maxilla that is well controlled with anti-epileptic therapy, okay. right? So this person has tic de la rue, right? Trigeminal neuralgia. Because you see, they have like that intermittent pain, right? In a trigeminal distribution. Then look at this. The hemoglobin is fine. But look at her white count. is really low, right? And her platelet count is normal for the most part, right? If we see this, right? How do we treat trigeminal neuralgia? It's going to be carbamazepine, right? Remember, we treat trigeminal neuralgia with carbamazepine, right? So because this person, their white count is low, I would hope you're saying, oh, divine, this person potentially has agranulocytosis, right? Agranulocytosis. So what's going to be your next step in management? Well, you're going to do blood cultures. Whenever a person has agranulocytosis, you're going to get blood cultures. But at the same time, you're going to put them on an anti-pseudomonal antibiotic. An anti-pseudomonal antibiotic, like cefepine, ceftazidine, you know, stuff like that. Now, what are some other things that can cause agranulocytosis? Well, in psych world, remember we have clozapine, right? We have clozapine that can cause this problem. And remember, we also have chloramphenicol. Chloramphenicol can also cause agranulocytosis, right? So clozapine, chloramphenicol, right? Now, again, we've talked about this already. If you're seeing a low white count like neutropenia, right? Well, this person has a history of chronic morning stiffness and spleen, splenomegaly, right? That's Felty syndrome, right? We've talked about that in association with, with rheumatoid arthritis. Now, question 134 says we have a 67-year-old male presenting with a two-day history of recurrent epistaxis, right? His hemoglobin is low. His MCV is high. So this is a macrocytic anemia. But look at this. His leukocyte count is low. His platelet count is low. So that can tell you that hmm, this person's bone marrow is not doing well, right? But look at this. B12 and folate levels are within normal limits. A blood smear sample shows nucleated erythrocytes and hypolobulated neutrophils, right? This hypolobulated neutrophils is very helpful, right? Sometimes they call these things hyposegmented neutrophils. So remember, B12 folate deficiency is associated with hypersegmented neutrophils, but this one is hyposegmented neutrophils, right? Sometimes this is also called the pseudo pelger hewitt anomaly. The pseudo pelger hewitt anomaly. In fact, sometimes they call these things bilobe neutrophils. You see the four different ways your friends at the end of me can come after you with this thing, right? Bilobe neutrophils, almost like a neutrophil wearing glasses, right? So just think of me wearing glasses. You have a very good uh, mental picture of that, right? So hypolobulated, hyposegmented, bilobed, pseudo-algorithmic, all the same thing, right? So what's the diagnosis here? The diagnosis here is actually myelodysplastic syndrome. Myelodysplastic 
Milo dysplastic syndrome, right? So what's the big, big, big complication of this? This can actually become an acute leukemia. This can actually become an acute leukemia, okay? can become an acute leukemia. And again, I've talked about the PMN morphologies. And then one last thing I wanted to say on this page is this person that has PNH, right? The reason they have this sudden onset right upper quadrant pain is because they have Bott-Chiari syndrome. I'll talk about this some more tomorrow, right? But they have Bott-Chiari syndrome. Remember, PNH has a very solid association on MBN exams with Bott-Chiari syndrome, okay? With Bott-Chiari syndrome. Okay, uh, let's keep going. Wait, this guy is this? No, it's up there, so it goes with 128. Okay. So question 135, right? So we have a 47-year-old female presents with a six-week history of fevers, night sweats, and weight loss. Okay. Now, physical exam is notable for splenomegaly. Look at our Y count. It's really high. But look at this. Blood smear revealing granulocytic cells in all phases of maturation. Granulocytic cells in all phases of maturation. So you're seeing things like myelocytes. You're seeing things like metamyelocytes. Because many people, they say, oh, divine, how am I going to differentiate this condition from CLL? If a person has CLL, CLL is the lymphoid malignancy. So your white count will be high. It will be predominantly lymphocytes. Here, the white count will be high but it is not predominantly lymphocytes. This is a myeloid leukemia, right? So this person has CML, right? And we're going to treat this with imacnib. We're going to treat this with imacnib, right? Remember, this arises because you have a 922 translocation, right? So you're going to create that Philadelphia chromosome, right? Where you make this BCR-able fusion protein, right? So that fusion protein, right? That's the thing that causes those cells to keep proliferating like in an uncontrolled fashion. And then that's how that person ultimately gets in trouble. Now, question 136 says we have a 62-year-old male presents with a one-week history of blurry vision, right? So this is an old guy, right? Nice demographic there. Blurry vision, severe headache, okay? He has been taking daily ibuprofen for severe joint pain in his hands and feet. He has splenomegaly and mark tenderness on palpation of the small joints of its hands and feet with overlying erythema. Look at this. His hemoglobin is low. His white count is low. But, ooh, his platelet count, 950,000. That is astronomical, right? So whenever you see everything low, but one thing really, 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 really high, right? I want you to think of this person having essential thrombocythemia. It's one of those myeloproliferative disorders. So the thing that is the highest is going to be the problem, right? So this person has essential thrombocythemia, right? So what's going to be your next best step in management? The thing is you need to get this person's platelet count down so they don't get a stroke or an MI and die. So how do you do that? You're going to do something on MBM is called platelet phoresis. You're going to perform a platelet phoresis, a platelet phoresis, right? And again, because this is one of those myeloproliferative problems, right? This is going to arise from a JAK2 mutation, right? A JAK2 mutation. Now, 137 says, we have a 61-year-old male, has a hemoglobin of 8, MCV is 83, okay? So it has a normocytic anemia. Now, 
of peripheral smears shows teardrop-shaped erythrocytes. So those erythrocytes, those red cells look like this, right? Sometimes these things are called dacrocytes on exams, right? And giant platelets. And this person has massive hepatosplenomegaly. Whenever they tell you that, oh, you see like teardrop-shaped erythrocytes, they're telling you one thing on your exam, right? This person has primary myelofibrosis. This person has primary myelofibrosis, right? Now, what is the mechanism behind the hepatosplenomegaly? Again, this is something I don't know for whatever bizarre reason. The USMLE, they just really, really love the stuff, right? The thing is, these people's bone marrow has completely been taken over by fibrosis, right? They fibrose their bone marrow. So if your bone marrow is gone, well, you, you need red cells from somewhere, right? So you're going to start employing other people, right? Like just like people that were radiologists, they had to start working in the ICU during COVID. That's essentially what happens here. Nobody's like, guys, all hands on deck. Bone marrow, gone. But we need red blood cells. So you're going to take your spleen and your liver because you can actually make red blood cells there, believe it or not, right? So the mechanism, the buzzword you're looking for in your exam is extramedullary hematopoiesis. Extramedullary hematopoiesis. Extramedullary hematopoiesis. Now, question 138, 139 says, what is the diagnosis given the following in a 31-year-old female who had ataxia and difficulty speaking two years ago that resolved over a three-week period? So there's a female in her 30s, has neurological problems that come and go, come and go. This is easy, right? Mm -hmm. This person has MS. Mm -hmm. This person has multiple sclerosis, right? So now let's see a few more things about MS here. So what if you see a person with a history of MS and they have pain with eye movement, right? So they have like painful vision loss, painful sudden onset vision loss. What is this? It's going to be optic neuritis, right? This person has optic neuritis, right? And optic neuritis, how do you make the diagnosis? You're actually going to do an MRI of the brain with IV contrast. An MRI of the brain with IV contrast, right? We're going to treat this with IV steroids. We need to treat it quick so that this will not become permanently blind. Now, what if this person has nystagmus when they're told to look to the right? So you tell them, oh, look right, and then they have nystagmus. Look right, and then they have nystagmus, right? The thing is, they will usually have an adduction nystagmus. Adduction nystagmus. Right? So what's causing that adduction nystagmus? If you look at my eyes, right, and I'm looking right, right, so if you notice, one eye AB dots, the other eye AD dots, right? If, they, if I have nystagmus in the AD ducting eye, right, that means there's a problem with the medial longitudinal fasciculus. The medial longitudinal fasciculus. Right? So what does this person have? This person literally has internuclear ophthalmoplegia. Internuclear ophthalmoplegia. Internuclear ophthalmoplegia. Right? Internuclear ophthalmoplegia. Right? So, and again, the affected MLS will be on the same side as the eye that has the abduction nystagmus. So, if they have, like, the nystagmus in the left eye, the left eye is not abducting well, right? It will be the left MLF that is affected, okay? So, the nystagmus is going to be in the affected abducting eye, 
Now, why will this person have chronic leakage of urine, right? And then look at this post-void residual. It's 400 milliliters, right? So this person has urinary incontinence, right? I don't know, for some reason, this is like one of the MDMA's best kept secrets. Helps you get answer questions like this, like they become very easy. Whenever a person's post-void residual is in the hundreds of milliliters, that's overflowing continence. We'll talk about the other kinds of incontinence tomorrow, right? Well, this person has overflow incontinence, right? Overflow incontinence. And overflow incontinence, how do we how do we manage it? Well, basically, these people's detrusor muscles are hypotonic, right? So their detrusor muscles do not sense when the bladder is full. They have like detrusor hypotonia. Sometimes you may see it called detrusor hyporeflexia, right? Whenever the trusor muscles are like that, you need to, you know, kind of encourage them to move along. So how do you do that? Well, you're going to do that by giving the thanicol. The thanicol is a muscarinic agonist, right? Or you can give carbacol, right? Those are muscarinic agonists that will stimulate those detrusor muscles, right? And then another drug you can also use is neostigmine. Neostigmine is a muscar is a you know, acetylcholinesterase inhibitor that can help you, you know, reduce the breakdown of acetylcholine so you have more acetylcholine and that will encourage the trusor contraction. Now, for this patient with MS, right, so how do we diagnose MS? Well, you're going to do an MRI of the brain and spine. MS is an imaging diagnosis, right? Now, what's the classic CSF finding? Remember, you're going to see those oligoclonal bands, right? You're going to see those oligoclonal bands, in the CSF, right? And if they have acute exacerbations, you can give them steroids, right? Steroids are great for treating those acute exacerbations of MS, right? And then chronic management, right? The big drugs you want to remember for your exam are interferon beta, right? And gladiramer. Again, there are many other drugs you'll hear of. You don't really care about those on exams. The major ones they care about, interferon beta, that's it. Okay. Now, high yield. So this, I'm going to make my apology. I should probably make this bold uh, in the future, right? What's the high yield side contraindication? This, I'm just using this to talk about interferon alpha. It has no relationship to what we're talking about here, but it's not a good place to put it, right? Interferon alpha. The key thing I want to tell you about interferon alpha is that interferon alpha is used for hep C, right? Well, the thing is, there are certain people that have, people, for some reason, start having like a lot of suicidal ideation when they are placed on interferon alpha, right? So if you have a history of major depressive disorder, that's a relative contraindication to being started okay. on interferon alpha. <laughs> now, what's the preventive medicine pearl, right, for MS? Well, people that have MS, they need to be on vitamin D, right? Taking regular vitamin D actually improves morbidity, not mortality morbidity in people that have multiple sclerosis. Now, question 140 says vertical diplopia with papilledema and a brainstem mass, right? Whenever you see a person have a brainstem mass and they, they have trouble looking up and down, looking up and down, right? Then you want to think about parinode syndrome, right? Parinode, parinode syndrome, right? This person essentially has a pineloma a pineloma, right? Remember, the pineal gland is just above your superior colliculus, right? 
So if that pineal gland gets big, it will compress your superior colliculus. So you have that vertical deblocking because your superior colliculus controls a lot of your ability to look up and down, right? Your vertical conjugate gaze. But remember as well, if you have a problem with the superior cerebellar artery, if you have a problem with the superior cerebellar artery, that can also increase your risk of Parinode syndrome. That's like a vascular cause. Well, why is that? Your superior cerebellar artery is the blood supply to the superior colliculus. I'll say that again. Your superior cerebellar artery is the blood supply to the superior colliculus. Okay. Now, question 141 says, we have a 32-year-old female with a chronic history of diplopia and bulbar weakness. She's brought to the ED with significant shortness of breath. She was recently started on oral gentamicin for symptomatic pyelonephritis. She is hypoxic, right? What is your next best step in management? Right? So we see this person. This person is crashing and burning, right? This person probably has myasthenia gravis, right? Young person or maybe a woman like in a middle-aged like middle female, right? And she's having this diplopia, bulbar weakness. And then you notice that, hmm, she's getting short of breath, right? Your next step for this person is you're going to go ahead and intubate them. This person needs emergent intubation, right? Because this person, they're about to go into respiratory failure, right? And what is the thing that triggers this person's respiratory failure? It's actually taking this aminoglycoside. Aminoglycosides, this is very high you to know for the USMLEs. Aminoglycosides are contraindicated in myasthenia gravis. Because in myasthenia gravis, right, your uh, nicotinic acetylcholine receptor is already blocked, Right? Aminoglycosides are nicotinic receptor blockers, right? They block neuromuscular receptors, right? So if a person has a neuromuscular disease like myasthenia gravis or like Lambert Eaton, you're giving them an aminoglycoside. I wish you all the best, right? This is why it's actually important to know certain things. Because if you're taking care of a patient that has myasthenia gravis, give them gentamicin, you may be sending them to the ICU from that, right? So be very careful with that, right? Because again, aminoglycosides are neuromuscular uh, blocking agents. So now, let's differentiate myasthenia gravis from Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome, right? Let's differentiate those two. So what's the pathophys of myasthenia gravis? Remember, myasthenia gravis, right? We're going to form autoantibodies, right? Autoantibodies. But this time, you're forming them against the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. In Lambert-Eaton, you're also forming autoantibodies, Right? But these autoantibodies are against the presynaptic calcium channel, right? So if you think about it, if those presynaptic calcium channels don't work, you're not going to be able to release neurotransmitter into the circulation, right? Into the, uh, into the synapse, right? So the person is going to have muscular weakness, right? Now, in terms of distribution, myasthenia gravis mostly affects the head, the neck, and the diaphragm. Right? So the head, the neck, and the diaphragm, right? Well, Lambert Eaton affects proximal muscles. It mostly affects your extremities for the most part, your proximal muscles, right? Now, remember, myasthenia gravis gets better. I mean, gets worse with use, right? So as you keep stimulating the muscle, keep stimulating the muscle, keep stimulating the muscle, right? You deplete the acetylcholine that is in the synapse. If you deplete that acetylcholine, then that blockade by those bad antibodies will become more pronounced, 
right? But again, instead of doing that better with use, worse with use, these days on MDMA exams, they test these things through repetitive nerve stimulation, right? So for my senior gravities, these people have a decremental response with repetitive nerve stimulation. You keep stimulating the nerve, you get a worse response. But lumbar eating, you get an incremental, you get an incremental response with repetitive nerve stimulation. You keep, the more you stimulate, the more you stimulate the muscle, I mean the nerve, the more you bring more calcium, you bring more calcium, you bring more calcium around that calcium channel. Those calcium ions will outcompete those antibodies and then you will have better muscle contraction. Okay. And then for my senior gravis, remember my senior gravis, uh, you have normal deep tendon reflexes in my senior gravis, right? But in Lambert Eaton, you're going to have a decrease in your deep tendon reflexes, right? In Lambert Eaton, you're going to have a decrease in your deep tendon reflexes, right? And really, the way you treat Lambert Eaton, I mean, the way you diagnose Lambert Eaton is you're basically finding those antibodies, right? You're finding those anti-presynaptic calcium channel antibodies, right? In my senior gravis, again, it's also the same thing. You're also finding those anti, you know, nicotinic acetylcholine receptor antibodies, right? So that's how you diagnose it. And my senior gravis, you're going to treat it with pyridostigmine. Pyridostigmine, right? Because basically, pyridostigmine is an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. If you inhibit acetylcholinesterase, your acetylcholine levels will go up, right? If your acetylcholine levels go up, that will then outcompete those bad antibodies, right? So you're going to give an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor so that you can boost your acetylcholine levels and outcompete those nasty antibodies, okay? And then, Lambert eating, you're going to treat the underlying lung cancer they have, right? There's really no cure, unfortunately, for, for Lambert eating. Now, what are some addendum? I have some addendum questions here. The first one says positive Romberg in a vegan. Positive Romberg in a vegan, right? Remember, this is going to be B12 deficiency, right? B12 deficiency. So, what, what's the deal with this B12 deficiency business? Well, let's talk about this. The thing is, remember when you have a B12 deficiency, and I'll write something at the top here, right? You can affect your dorsal columns, right? In fact, in B12 deficiency, you have this thing called a subacute combined degeneration of the spinal cord, right? A subacute combined degeneration of the spinal cord. It's a combined degeneration, so that means two things are affected, right? First, it's going to be your dorsal columns and also your lateral corticospinal tract. So your dorsal columns and your lateral corticospinal tract are both affected, right? Your dorsal columns and your lateral corticospinal tract are both affected, right? So, if your dorsal columns are affected, right, you're going to have problems with the Romberg test. Because remember, the Romberg test is basically a test of dorsal column function, right? Because remember, for you to know where your joints are in space, you need two out of three of the following to be working, right? Those three things are either you you have your vision, you have cranial nerve eight, and you have your dorsal columns. You need at least two out of three to be working at every point in time for you to know where your joints are in space, right? So if your dorsal columns are gone, you're fine if your eyes are open, right? But then you tell those people, oh, come, because if your dorsal columns are gone from B12 deficiency, that's not working. That's a problem, right? 
But then you now tell them, okay, close your eyes, put your feet together. When they close their eyes, you're taking their vision away. And their dorsal columns is already not working. So instead of having two out of three, you now have one out of three, they're going to fall over, right? That's the Romberg test. The Romberg test is our dorsal column testing test, okay? Now, next part of question 142 says paraplegia after a triple A repair, right? So paraplegia after a triple A repair. The key thing I want you to think about here, because remember, if you fix an abdominal aortic aneurysm, right, there, there is this artery that comes from the abdominal aorta called the artery of Adamkowitz. The artery of Adamkowitz. The artery of Adamkowitz, right? And remember, one of the things it does is it supplies the anterior spinal artery for many levels in the spinal cord. It supplies the anterior spinal artery for many levels in the spinal cord, right? So the thing is, if in the process of fixing a triple leg, your anterior spinal artery um, is infarcted, right? Then you're going to have anterior spinal artery syndrome. And that's going to be a huge problem, right? Because if you have anterior spinal artery syndrome, then basically everything in your spinal cord won't work. The only thing that will still be working, so minus your dorsal columns. Your dorsal columns will still work, but every other thing, oligospinal tract, spinothalamic, everything, gone. Okay. Now, question 143 says we have a seven-month-old boy that is losing motor milestones and has fasciculations, right? So the seven-month-old boy is losing motor milestones, he has fasciculations. Whenever you see a child that is less than two-year-old losing motor milestones, they will tell you in the question that he has fasciculations. I want you to think of spinal muscular atrophy. So this child has spinal muscular atrophy. Right? This is something that you may see referred to as Wernick-Hoffman disease. Wernick-Hoffman disease. Right? So basically, this disease, you essentially destroy all your lower motor neurons. This is a pure motor disorder. All the person's lower motor neurons, they're all destroyed. Right? So how is this inherited? This actually is inherited in a chromosomal recessive fashion. Right? It's a gene called the survival model neuron 1 gene that is not working. If your SMN1 gene doesn't work, then your lower motor neurons will literally not survive, right? This is actually a problem on chromosome 5. These are all things they love to test on the MDMEs in relation to spinal muscular atrophy. Okay, so I'm going to erase this so we can move on up. All right. Okay, so question 144. Okay, so question 144 says, we have a 55-year-old male with difficulty swallowing for the last three months, right? He has three plus deep tendon reflexes in his upper extremities and hyporeflexia in his lower extremities. So we're seeing both upper and lower motor neuron problems, okay. right? And again, he's a middle-aged guy. Right? So this is a pure motor disorder. These people will have no sensory problems. If you see this, I want you to think of ALS, mm -hmm. right? Amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. This is Lou Gehrig's disease, right? This is Lou Gehrig's disease, right? And how do we treat ALS? We're going to treat it with Rylusol, right? If you see any sensory problems, it's not ALS. ALS is a pure motor 
and so on. Now, question 145 says we have a 24-year-old male that passes out during a marathon, right? And this person has a left sternal border systolic murmur that decreases with squatting, right? So this is an athlete, right? And then they pass out while they are working out or playing sports. I want you to think of HCM, right? Hypertrophy cardiomyopathy, right? So what's the mode of inheritance of this disorder? This thing is actually inherited in an autosomal dominant fashion, okay? This is inherited in an autosomal dominant fashion, right? And for the most part, these people have mutations in sarcomere proteins, right? They have mutations in sarcomere proteins. That's why they get, they get in trouble, right? And to be honest with you, to make your life easy, HCM is just like mitral valve prolapse. Anything that increases the volume of the left ventricle, right, is going to decrease the murmur's intensity, right? Because if you notice here, this person, essentially, when you squat, what are you doing? You're literally squishing on the femoral arteries and femoral veins. So you're increasing afterload, but at the same time, you're increasing preload. So you're putting more blood in the heart, and then you're preventing that blood from leaving the heart. So that blood is just going to stay in the heart. Whenever the blood stays in the heart, that anterior mitral valve leaflet that occludes the outflow tract is no longer able to do that. So you essentially are almost like fixing the problem in a sense, right? So the big thing to remember is if you put more blood in the left ventricle, that will make the murmur less intense. Okay. Now question 146 says, we have a 63-year-old male with a three-week history of progressively worsening pruritus that has not improved with diphenhydramine administration, right? So this person has been itching, 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 right? And you see this person, your spleen, you're only supposed to operate in the left upper quadrant, not in the left lower quadrant, right? So this person has splenomegaly, right? And look at the hematocrit. It is crazy high. This person's hematocrit is really high. If you see this, I want you to think about polycythemia vera, yeah. right? This person has polycythemia vera. And how do we treat this? We're going to treat this with phlebotomy. You're going to basically bloodlet the person on a frequent basis, right? Oh, to get rid of that excess, of those excess red blood cells. And this is another presentation of Bart-Chiari syndrome on exams, right? Again, P-Vera and PNH, those two Ps, P-Vera, PNH, they are common things that cause what carry syndrome on exams. Now, 147, 148 says we have a 22-year-old male. He was in a motor vehicle accident two hours ago, right? Now, so the temporal association here is recent trauma, right? Recent trauma, recent trauma. Now, this person is in the ER, and they have sharpness of breath, low PaO2, and they have bilateral pulmonary interstitial infiltrates, right? If you see a person that was in trauma, now they're hypoxic and you find infiltrates in the lungs, I want you to think of a pulmonary contusion. I want you to think about a pulmonary contusion on MDMA exams. But if you see the same thing, they're in trauma, but you notice that it's their heart that is not working well. Because remember, cardiac output and cardiac index, they're pretty much the same thing. If your cardiac index is low, it means your cardiac output is low. Literally, cardiac index is cardiac output divided by body surface area. If you see this, I want you to think about a myocardial 
contusion, right? This person has a myocardial contusion. Now, question 149, and then I'll take people's questions, right? It says, we see this person receive continuous insulin therapy with a glucose of 907, right? Mm -hmm. So their glucose was really, really high. And then you bring down their glucose really fast. But then you notice that, wow, this person becomes comatose and they have blown pupils, right? This person actually has edema of the brain. That's why whenever a person has hyper disorders for like very big time electrolytes, you don't fix that problem too quickly, right? You probably remember that if you fix hypernatremia too quickly, you can cause cerebral edema and explode the person's brain. That same rule applies to hyperglycemia. If a person's glucose is high and you fix it too quickly, you can literally explode their brain, right? So again, never fix hyperglycemia too quickly. So let me go ahead and take people's questions and then we will go on from there. So we're going to keep going from 150. So question 150 says, the three key ingredients in DKA HHNS management, right? So what are some big things to know there? Well, the first thing we know is when a person comes in with DKHHNS, the first thing I'm going to give them is IV fluids. Okay. And that's going to be normal saline, right? The second thing is you're going to start them on regular insulin as an infusion, right? Now, the third thing you're going to do is potassium. The potassium, people find it very hard to memorize, but it's extremely easy to memorize, right? The key thing I want you to remember is this range, 3.3 to 5.5. If a person is in DKA or HHNS and their potassium is greater than 5.5, you don't need to add potassium to the fluids you're giving them. You don't need to. But if their potassium is between 3.3 and 5.5, right, you need to add potassium to their fluids, right? If they're between 3.3 and 5.5, add potassium to their fluids. On the other hand, if their potassium is less than 3.3, then the thing you need to do is you need to stop the insulin infusion and give them potassium, right? Until their potassium rises above 3.3, don't continue the insulin because insulin can worsen God, the hypokalemia. Arguing with my attending one time because okay. I was like, no, now question 151, 152. They love these hypoglycemic agent contraindications. Like the high so let's work on that. So hypoglycemic agents contraindicated in, so let's see the first one. 55-year-old male with an S3 heart sound and three plus bilateral. Um, again, let's hold off on things in the chat box. Um, okay, so DK versus HHNS presentation. Okay, the big thing I want to say there is in DKA, your bicarb will be low. But in HHNS, your bicarb is going to be roughly normal. Roughly. So it can be a little low, but your bicarb for the most part is normal. That's literally the only, the big way to differentiate those two. The, the glucose number literally doesn't mean nothing, Right? Because many people, they use the glucose number to try to differentiate. The NDME messes people's heads up with that. Just look at the bicarb. The bicarb is low, is DKA. Usually if it's less than 20, it's DKA. It's over 20, it's HHNS. Okay. So we see this person has heart failure. What diabetes drugs should we not give them? Well, I hope you're saying divine. We don't give these people TZDs, right? So these are those drugs that all end in glitazone, 
rosiglitazone, pioglitazone, stuff like that. Right? Those glitter drugs. Now, this person is getting contrast. Remember, contrast can torture your kidneys. So is there a drug you shouldn't take that's going to be metformin, right? Because again, metformin, you can get a really bad lactic acidosis, right? If you have renal dysfunction. Now, family history of MEN2A, MEN2B. Well, I hope you're saying, oh, divine, for these people, we don't give them GLP-1 agonists, right? So remember, your GLP-1 agonists are drugs like liraglutide, liraglutide, and exenactide. So drugs like liraglutide and exenactide. So why do we not give them? The thing is, when they were making these drugs, they did a bunch of rat studies. They gave these rats these drugs, and they all got medullary thyroid cancer. So you're like, oh, gee, maybe we shouldn't give this thing to do that can get medullary thyroid cancer, right? So you stop doing it. Because remember, if you have MEN2, you will get medullary thyroid cancer. So you shouldn't be on a GLP-1 agonist, right? Again, it's the rats that give us those clues. And then the highest weight gain risk, right, is with your sulfonylurates, right? So like, you know, your glyburide, glipizide, things like that. Now, 153 says infertility and heteronymous hemianopsia. So see this person, this person has tunnel vision. But then you're infertile. If you see this, I want you to think of a prolactinoma. This person has a prolactinoma, right? So it's basically compressing the optic chiasm, right? Compressing the optic chiasm and causing tunnel vision. And remember, we're going to treat these with a dopamine agonist, right? A dopamine agonist like bromocryptine, bromocryptine, right? Like bromocryptine or carbergoline. That's how we treat these folks. Now, 154 says new onset diabetes in a 61-year-old male, right? With increased spacing between the teeth, right? This is pretty easy. This person is, is an adult, right? And they obviously have growth hormone excess. So we can see this person has acromegaly. Acromegaly, right? So this person has acromegaly. Now, what's your next best step in diagnosis for a person with acromegaly? I know some of you may be like, oh, divine, let's check the growth hormone levels. Mm -mm. Remember, growth hormone is secreted in a pulsatile fashion, right? So you're going to get like messed up values if you do that, right? The way you're going to diagnose this is you're going to check the IGF-1 levels, right? The IGF-1 levels will be increased. That's your screening tests. So if you notice that it's increased, how can you diagnose this? Well, you're then going to do an oral glucose suppression test right in general as a general rule of endocrinology right, it's very high yield whenever you have excess of something the confirmatory test is usually going to be a suppression test of some sort as a general rule in endocrinology whenever a person has a deficiency of something you're going to do a stimulation test as your confirmatory test right so acromegaly too much growth hormone right so you're going to do a suppression test to confirm the diagnosis, right? And you'll notice that these people's growth hormone fails to suppress. Their growth hormone fails to suppress. So that tells you, oh, gee, this person has acromegaly, right? So the way we're going to treat this, or, you know, diagnose this, after you've done, like, the IGF-1 and the suppression test, you're going to get an MRI of the brain, right, with IV contrast to establish the diagnosis. And then we're going to resect the tumor. We don't do pro like prolactinomas, right? Like you can resect the tumor. 
So you're going to do a transphenoidal. I've actually been in on one of these surgeries, right? So I did a neurosurgery rotation back in the day. Right? So you're going to do a transphenoidal resection. A transphenoidal resection, right? So you're going to resect the tumor. But let's say for some reason you're trying to get you to pick a drug. I want you to pick the drug Pegvisomant. Pegvisomant. Pegvisomant is a growth hormone receptor antagonist, right? Pegvisomant, right? Pegvisomant. It's a growth hormone receptor antagonist that is used to treat acromegaly, right? So P-E-G-V-I-S-O-M-A-N-T, Pegvisomant, right? Although you can also use a triotype, but the Pegvisomant is a very good drug for this. It's a growth hormone receptor antagonist, Okay. Now, question 155 says the urine and serum osmolality quandaries. The urine and serum osmolality quandaries. I'm promising you, you will see this on your exam. In fact, if you take your step 2CK, step 3 exam, a complex exam, and you don't get a question on question 155, something has gone horribly wrong on your test, right? You just did not catch it in the questions you read. I'll tell you that right now. So let's talk about this. So let's talk about different permutations, right? So urine osmolarity and serum osmolarity, right? So let's talk about this permutation where your serum osmolarity is low, your urine osmolarity is low. Or your serum osmolarity is low and your urine osmolarity is high. Or your serum osmolarity is high, let me give some space, and your urine osmolarity is low, right? So let's talk about all these things, right? Let's talk about them one by one. So, look at the first scenario. Oh, wow. Serum osmolarity being low. So, that means they are hyponatremic, right? If you're hyponatremic, the thing you want to do is you want to dump all that excess water in your urine, right? You want to dump all that excess water in your urine. So, that would dilute your urine, right? And that's what is happening here. So, this person is potentially drinking a ton of fluid. They're drinking so much water that brought down their serum osmolarity. So, their body was like, what are you doing? Right? So they dump all that excess water in their urine. So that dilutes their urine. Right? This first person has what we call psychogenic polydipsia. Psychogenic polydipsia. And remember, psychogenic polydipsia is something you can actually see with people that take ecstasy. Ecstasy. Ecstasy causes a psychogenic polydipsia. That's why those people can get hyponatremic seizures on Indian exams. Now, the next group of people here, we see this person's serum osmolarity is low, so they're hyponatremic. But think about it. The urine osmolarity don't make, doesn't make any sense at all. Right? You're like, I thought your serum osmolarity is low. We should be dumping excess water. But no, 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 no. The urine is very concentrated. That means there is something that is causing them to suck water out of their urine. They're sucking, sucking, sucking water out of their urine. If you see that, this is SIDH. Right? They have high levels of ADH, and that's causing them to suck water from their urine. So their urine is concentrated, right? But then, because they are sucking so much water from their urine, they're absorbing so much free water, they're diluting their serum, right? So they have hyponatremia. Now, the good thing about psychogenic polydipsia and SIDH is that they are both treated with fluid restriction. So psychogenic polydipsia and SIDH are both treated with fluid restriction. Now, the final one, this person's serum osmolarity is really, really high, right? It's really, really high, right? So that means they are hypernatremic. 
right? If you're hypernatremic, the thing you want to do is you want to keep as much water as possible from your urine, right? So that you will reverse the hypernatremia. But these people, it's like they're dumping so much water in their urine. So that means EDH must not be working, right? This person has diabetes insipidus. Diabetes insipidus, right? Remember in diabetes insipidus, you're not getting any effects from EDH, right? So because EDH is not working, you're dumping all that water in your urine. So you're losing so much free water. Your urine is dilute, but your serum is very concentrated. And let me teach you something here. I'll talk about diabetes insipidus, I believe, tomorrow. But one thing I want to say is, if a person has dilute urine, they may not give you the urine osmolality. They will be, they, they've got it more creative. Basically, they will give you the person's urine-specific gravity. Urine-specific gravity. If you remember from college physics, specific gravity is a measure of relative density. I, I really love physics, actually. Right. But I don't know. I feel like most people just don't like physics. Like, oh, oh, make it stop, right? But again, physics is it's kind of a fun science, but that's a, that's a different conversation for, for another day, right? But the big thing I want you to remember is if your urine is dilute, your urine-specific gravity will be much less than 1.012, right? It'll be much less than 1.012. It'll be much less than 1.012. Okay. Now, question 156 says, profound hypotension in a lupus patient undergoing surgery that is not responsive to fluid repletion. So let's say this person is taking, has been taking steroids, right? This person has been taking steroids, right? They've been taking steroids for a long time, and then they're getting surgery, and then they're super hypotensive, and nothing seems to be working. I want you to think of these people in an adrenal crisis. Yeah. Right? Because again, they've been taking steroids for a long time, so their HPA axis doesn't work. So because their HPA axis doesn't work, the thing that's then going on now is that when they are getting a larger amount of stress than is normal, let's say from like surgery or from like an accident or illness, they're not able to respond by making more steroid, right? So for these people, you need to give them a stress dose. You need to give them a stress dose of steroids. You need to give them a stress dose of steroids, right? A stress dose of steroids. And I don't know why I put this here, but I've talked about this already. Febrile neutropenia, they're going to give an anti-pseudomonal antibiotic. An anti-pseudomonal antibiotic. Okay. Now, question 157 says... Ejection fraction of 75%, right? That's crazy high. In a 62-year-old male with right thigh pain, and his alk force is elevated, right? His alkaline phosphatase is elevated. Oh, if you wow. see this, I hope you're seeing, oh, divine, Paget's disease okay. of the bone. Okay. And actually, for this, we're going to diagnose this with a bone scan, right? So why is their EF high? The thing is, people that have Paget's disease of the bone, their bone marrow has a lot of blood vessels. So let's say normally in a normal person, the, uh, the heart is like, oh, I just need to supply 1 million blood vessels total in the body. But people that have uh, pagets, their bone marrow becomes hypervascular. So let's say instead of dealing with 1 million blood vessels, their hearts now have to support like 10 million blood vessels. That's a problem because the heart is a muscle. The heart will always have to keep working hard, working hard, working hard, working hard to support, support those extra blood vessels, right? At some point, that heart will give up and die, right? That's high output heart failure. 
high output heart failure, heart failure. So the person goes into heart failure because they operate at a, like a constantly elevated cardiac output. Okay. Now, question 158, 159, right? So MEN1, right? This one just needs to know. Remember, remember this has autosomal dominant inheritance, right? And it's a menin gene mutation. So what are the findings? Remember, these people will have primary hyperparathyroidism, right? So they will have hypercalcemia as a result of that. And then they will also have a pituitary adenoma, right? So they will have pituitary problems, right? And then they will have those pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. We've talked about those, right? Like uh, glucagonoma, insulinoma, stuff like that. Now, MEN2A, on the other hand, in fact, the two MEN2s, they are both associated with a RET gene mutation. And they have autosomal dominant inheritance, right? But remember, MEN2A, again, they're going to get primary hyperparathyroidism. So they'll have hypercalcemia, right? They will have a pheochromocytoma, right? But then, these people can also get medullary thyroid cancer, just like MEN2B as well, right? But in MEN2B, you also get feels, but in MEN2B, you don't have primary hyperparathyroidism, right? In MEN2B, those people, they tend to have mucosal neuromas, mucosal neuromas, right? So it's like growths of like nerve, nerve tissue on their lips and on their buccal mucosa, right? And then these people tend to be very tall, right? So they will have a marfanoid happiness. They'll have a marfanoid happiness, right? Now, next question here says, skin hyperpigmentation, low blood pressure, glucose of 60 in a 32-year-old female with a history of Hashimoto's, right? So we see this person, they have a history of Hashimoto's, right? So remember, many times on MDM exams as a concept, if you have one autoimmune disease, that will increase your risk of having another autoimmune disease, right? In fact, many times when they give you an autoimmune disease question on the MDMs, in the person's past medical history, you'll have another autoimmune disease, right? This person with this skin hyperpigmentation should hopefully tell you that they have Addison's disease. Okay. They have Addison's disease, right? So how do we diagnose Addison's disease? Well, the way we diagnose Addison's disease is we're going to do something called a cosyntropin stimulation test. A cosyntropin stimulation test, Right? So basically, cosyntropin is an ACTH analog, right? It's an ACTH analog. If I give you ACTH, your cortisol is supposed to rise, right? So if you notice that, oh, you give this person people ACTH, and then their cortisol fails to rise. So cortisol fails to rise. That's diagnostic of Addison's disease, right? Basically, these people, they form autoantibodies, Usually, those autoantibodies are against 21-hydroxylates. So that's how they end up destroying the adrenal cortex, right? Antibodies against 21-hydroxylates, right? Against 21-hydroxylates, right? But again, those autoantibodies will damage the adrenal cortex, not the medulla, the adrenal cortex, the adrenal cortex. So how do we treat this? Well, we're going to give them what they are missing. We're going to give them steroids, right? And we're going to give them fludrocortisone. Steroids and fludrocortisone. Steroids and fludrocortisone. Steroids and fludrocortisone. That's very high yield to know. Fludrocortisone is an aldosterone analog. Right? So we're basically giving them that mineralocorticoid 
that they are missing. Remember, these people, they're going to have elevated eosinophils, right? Because steroids normally cause your eosinophils to die, right? Steroids um, cause apoptosis of eosinophils. So if you have a steroid deficiency, your eosinophils are going to have a longer half-life. So you have an elevated eosinophil count, okay? Remember, that differential diagnosis of eosinophilia, Addison's is part of it, right? Again, just the understanding, you don't need to be memorizing random things. Okay, so... Let's go to the next page. You may see me renumbered from number one. This is basically day two. This is a course that's normally four days, but we're essentially crashing into two. So we're going to day two, right? I expect us to go into day two before one, right? So you see we're, a little, we're like 16 minutes uh, behind a little bit. So, okay. But I'd rather we just go over time today than rush. So that's just kind of how it's going to be. So we need to go a little longer. You'll have to hang out with me for a longer time. Maybe I'll keep you here till like midnight so that you guys can like, you know, grow gray hair by the time we're done. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't worry. I won't, I won't keep you till midnight so you guys don't call the police or something. Okay. So first question says, we have a six-year-old male with a six-week history of fevers, night sweats, and weight loss. Oh, that's not good. For six weeks. And then you see this anterior and middle mediastinal lymphadenopathy, right? If you see a child less than 10 years old, and you're having like chronic B symptoms, right? This is ALL. This is ALL. ALL, I've never in my life seen a, an Indian equation of ALL in a kid that's over 10. If it's over 10, and you're picking ALL, I wish you all the very best in your answer selection. Okay. Now, next question says, recurrent DVTs with heparin failing to raise the PTT. So you notice a person, you're like, man, this person keeps getting DVTs. Okay, I'm giving you heparin to not make you have DVTs. Well, your PTT is not rising. Well, that means the thing heparin is supposed to work on is not there, right? This person has an anti-thrombin-3 deficiency. Anti-thrombin-3 deficiency. And remember, anti-thrombin-3 deficiency is something you can also find in people that have nephrotic syndrome. Because in nephrotic syndrome, you literally pee a ton of stuff into your urine. One of the things you pee into your urine is antithrombin 3, right? That's why people with nephrotic syndrome, they have a high risk of a, of a hypercoagulable disease. Now, question three says abnormal restocytin cofactor assay with a normal PTT, right? So let's talk about this restocytin cofactor assay. I'll call it RCA, right? The thing is, in primary hemostasis, there is a step of primary hemostasis called the adhesion step. That adhesion step uses von Willebrand factor and GP1B, right? Uses von Willebrand factor and GP1B. If any of these things are not working well, you're going to have problems. I'll say that again. If any of these things are not working well, you're going to have an abnormal restocytin cofactor assay. So if it's GP1B that is not working well, it's going to be Bernard Soulier disease, right? But if it's von Willebrand factor that is not working well, it's going to be von Willebrand disease. So you may say, huh, define. How do I differentiate von Willebrand disease from Bernard Soulier, right? Because they both have an abnormal restocytin cofactor assay. Remember, von Willebrand factor has a second job description, right? It protects factor eight. It's a protecting group. For those of you, if you remember from organic chemistry, you probably remember learning about protecting group chemistry in OCHEM. Probably like distant past for many of you. Uh, that's another fun subject, by the way. Okay, different conversations. So, 
it protects factor eight, right? If Vomilibran factor is not around, factor eight is going to start having a shorter half-life. So these people's PTT is going to rise. Is going to rise, right? So in this person that has an abnormal risk-to-sitting cofactor assay with a normal PTT, I want you to think about Bernard Soulier disease. It's a deficiency of GP1B, right? This actually has autosomal recessive inheritance. Okay. In fact, I'm going to answer question four, but let me jump to question five real quick. Look at question five. Increased PTT, bleeding time, and an abnormal Ristocytin cofactor assay, right? So we already know, right? Because the PTT is high, this has to be von Willebrand's disease, right? And unlike Bernard Soulier, Willebrand disease has autosomal dominant inheritance, right? So how do we treat von Willebrand's disease? Well, the thing you can try to do is you can give desmopressin. Desmopressin is a drug, right? That's basically like ADH. It's a drug that causes you to release whatever little von Willebrand factor you have, right? So it causes you to have an increased release of von Willebrand factor, right? From your Weibo Palladi buddies. From your Weibo Palladi buddies, right? So you release because many times people that have von Willebrand disease, they don't have a complete absence of von Willebrand factor, okay? Now, um, so let's jump back to question four, right? So notice, this person's platelet count is really low. But every other thing is normal, right? And usually these people would have had like a viral or respiratory infection beforehand. So everything is normal. Your hemoglobin, hematocrit, everything is fine. But the platelet count is super, super low. If you see this, I want you to think about ITP, right? Immune thrombocytopenia, ITP, not TTP, ITP. We'll talk about TTP later, right? So ITP, what's the pathophysiology? Well, it's actually an autoimmune disease. So we usually find it in people that have lupus, but you can also find it in kids. These people, they form autoantibodies against GP2B3A. They form autoantibodies against GP2B3A, right? So basically, these people, their platelet aggregation is not going to work. They're going to have impaired platelet aggregation, right? They'll have impaired platelet aggregation. So for these people, how can we treat it? How can we treat ITP? Well, first line is going to be steroids. But again, sadly, it doesn't work for everybody. Second line is going to be IVIG. But sadly, that doesn't work for everybody. So third line is going to be a splenectomy. If you remove the spleen, then you have less damage, right, of those people's red blood cells. I mean, of those people's platelets, right? So again, splenectomy is a last-ditch effort to treat ITP. Now, question six says, increased bleeding time. Whenever the bleeding time goes up, that tells you it's the disorder of primary hemostasis, right? Tells you it's a disorder of primary hemostasis. The bleeding time is up. Well, notice this. The Ristocytin cofactor assay is normal. So knowing that the Ristocytin cofactor assay is normal, that tells you that it is not von Willebrand disease and it is not Bernard Soulier disease either, right? So this person, what is the only disease that is left? This person has Glanzmann thrombastenia. Glanzmann thrombastenia, right? So this person has Glanzmann thrombastenia. Glanzmann thrombastenia. So what's the pathophase behind Glanzmann thrombastenia? These people actually have a deficiency of GP2B3A. GP2B3A. 
2B3A. So please don't mix this up with ITP. Yeah. In ITP, yeah. you make auto antibodies against GP2B3A. In glandular thrombostenia, you have an actual deficiency of GP2B3A. And we treat uh, Glansman, the mode of inheritance is autosomal recessive. It's an autosomal recessive condition. Okay? It's an autosomal recessive condition. It's an autosomal recessive condition. It's an autosomal recessive condition. Okay. Question seven. Platelet count of 10,000 six days after receiving medical treatment for a PE. Right? So a person just got treated for a PE. Right? A person just got treated for a PE. If you see something like this, yeah. right, they've probably got in heparin, right? And then you notice that, oh, the platelet count has gone down. I want you to think about HIT, right? Heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, right? I want you to think about HIT, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. So what's the pathophase behind HIT? Remember, platelet factor 4 and heparin, they form a complex. And in that complex, you make autoantibodies against that complex. You make autoantibodies against that complex. And that autoantibody is very good at activating primary hemostasis. Activating primary hemostasis. So your platelet count will go down, right? But because you're activating primary hemostasis, you're forming all these clots, right? So it's a hypercoagulable disorder. So how do we fix these people? The first thing you're going to do is you're going to stop heparin. You're going to stop heparin. But after stopping heparin, you need to start them on a factor 2 inhibitor. A factor 2 inhibitor, right? So these are going to be drugs like agatroban, agatroban, or dabigatran. So agatroban, dabigatran, or bivalirudine. Bivalirudine. So agatroban, dabigatran, or bivalirudine. Okay, now, question 8 says, what is the most likely diagnosis given the following presentations of back pain? What is the most likely diagnosis given the following presentations of back pain? So, we will have back pain. So, the first one says, back pain in an old man with leg pain that improves when he gets out of bed in the morning, right? So, notice, when you get out of bed in the morning, you're going from a straight position and then you're bringing your back together. It's almost like you're crouching, right? This is spinal stenosis. This person has lumbar spinal stenosis. Okay. Now, the next one says, back pain. Well, this person has a history of breast cancer. I was treated with chemo. Let me change colors here. Treated with chemo five years ago, right? If you see this, right? This person has uh, spinal cord compression, right? They essentially have bone mets, right? Spinal mets. So spinal cord compression, right? So they have mets to the spinal cord. And again, usually in that acute setting, you're going to give IV steroids. In that acute setting, you're going to give IV steroids. Now, how about low back pain? But look at this. They have fever. In fact, let me tell you this. Whenever you see me write lower abdominal mass, I mean that they have urinary retention. I'll say that again. Whenever you see the term lower abdominal mass in any of these questions that I wrote down, it means they have urinary retention. So that's a neurodeficit, right? So look at this. So this person has fever, back pain, and they have a neurodeficit. Fever, back pain, and a neurodeficit. 
If you see that, I want you to think of uh, an epidural abscess. This person has a spinal epidural abscess, right? And typically, we're going to diagnose that with an MRI, right? We're going to diagnose that with, with an MRI. Now, again, look at this person. Back pain, urinary retention, right? And then notice they were recently started on a blood thinner, on an anticoagulant, a DOAC. If we see this, I want you to think about a spinal epidural hematoma. A spinal epidural hematoma, right? So they have a spinal epidural hematoma. And many of you know this. When people have spinal cord compression, many times you can start them on steroids, you know, to decrease the swelling or whatever. But the thing is, when people have a spinal epidural abscess or a spinal epidural hematoma, you do not give steroids for any of these. For spinal epidural abscess or spinal epidural hematoma, never give those people steroids. They will worsen the condition. Now, question nine says we have a 10-year-old boy with hemarthrosis and an elevated PTT. Right, so this is a boy. This disorder actually has excellent recessive inheritance. Right, so you notice it's bleeding into joints, into muscles, stuff like that. And the PTT is up. If you see this, I want you to think of hemophilia A. Right, remember this is a factor eight deficiency. Right, so you're going to think of hemophilia A. There is no way to differentiate hemophilia A from hemophilia B. So if they give you both, pick hemophilia A because it's more common. And hemophilia B. Okay? Now, how do we treat these people? Well, we're going to give them factor 8 concentrate. We're going to give them factor 8 concentrate. To basically, you're giving them what they don't have. Now, question 10 says, weight loss and a six-week history of severe left lower extremity pain with prior history of teriparatide therapy. Well, what do we know about teriparatide? Teriparatide is a PTH analog. Right? Teriparatide is a PTH analog. The thing is, whenever you give PTH in a continuous fashion, it causes you to resorb your bone. But when you give it in a pulsatile fashion like you do, when a person is taking teriparatide, that's going to build up your bone. It's actually pretty great for osteoporosis. But you can already see a problem there. You're giving a person a stimulating factor for bone. That can increase their risk of malignancy, right? So this person has osteosarcoma. This person has osteosarcoma. This person has osteosarcoma. Now, question 11 talks about the MDME and myoclonus. Right? So the first question here says, so we have myoclonus in a 39-year-old neuropathologist oh, with a five-week history of profound memory loss. So you see this person, you have very rapid dementia, right? Very rapid dementia. If you see this, I want you to think of Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Kreutzfeldt, Kreutzfeldt, Jakob disease, right? So the big thing I want to, uh, the big thing I want to say about Kreutzfeldt, Jakob disease is if you check the CSA, what are you going to find? You're actually going to find increased levels of this thing called the 1433 protein, right? I know it may sound bizarre, but it's very high yield to know for exams. You're going to find increased levels of the 1433 14, protein. Uh -huh. 14, 14, 14. Now, the next one says, myoclonus in a 29-year-old female who was recently started on phenylzine after treatment failure with sertraline for major depressive disorder. Oh, if a person has 
is let's say they've been taking an SSRI. You're supposed to wait for two weeks before you start an MAOI or a TCA. If you don't, you can have a drug interaction. So this person has serotonin syndrome. Serotonin syndrome. Remember, many times for serotonin syndrome, you're going to treat it with a benzodiazepine, right? You're going to treat these people with a benzodiazepine, right? You're going to treat them with a benzodiazepine. You know, you can use ciproheptadine, but that's like a second-line agent. Serotonin syndrome does really well with benzos. Now, next one says, we have myoclonus in a young child with a midline abdominal mass. We'll talk about this some more, actually, later today. But if you see this in a child with a midline abdominal mass, I want you to think about neuroblastoma. Mm -hmm. Sometimes these kids, they may have like some weird eye findings, right? They call it like obsoclonus myoclonus syndrome, right? Sometimes they can even have like redness of their eyes. They can have flushing of their skin. Those are all things you find in neuroblastoma. We'll say some more things about neuroblastoma later today. Now, question 12 says, we have an 81-year-old female with three episodes of pneumococcal meningitis. So you're like, man, does this old person have an immunodeficiency disease? Well, look at this. The white count is 108,000. That's a lot, right? And notice it's lymphocytes that are predominant. This is senior citizens' hematologic malignancy. This is going to be CLL. The person is over the age of 60, 65, and you have a very high white count and it's predominantly lymphocytes. That's CLL on your test, right? And remember, CLL is associated with smudge cells. Smudge cells on, on a blood smear. Smudge cells. Don't worry about the treatment. Okay. Now, question 13 says, given the following presentations, what is the most likely diagnosis, right? Given the following presentations, what is the most likely diagnosis? So the first one says, we have a drug dealer that was found down in his apartment and responded positively to naloxone. So that means this person was overdosed on opioids. So the person is back, but then they're trying to tell him, move your legs, move your arms, move your legs, move your arms. You're like, I can't do that. I can't. They're trying. They are not able to do it. So they are echinetic. If you see this, I want you to think of MPTP toxicity. MPTP toxicity. Remember, if you're not as good as Walter White from Breaking Bad in cooking opioids, right? And then you create MPTP as a, as, you know, as a side thing there, right? That thing is going to explode your substantial migra. And then the person will have permanent Parkinsonism, right? So again, that's MPTP toxicity for you on exams. Now, next one says shoulder and neck hyperextension backwards, right? So the person, right, their neck is just hyperextended, hyperextended, right? They can't really move much of anything. If you see that, I want you to think of a person having like an acute dystonia. We'll talk about acute dystonia some more tomorrow, right? We'll talk about it some more tomorrow. We'll talk about it some more tomorrow. Usually you're going to give like diphenhydramine or benzotropine. It's an extra pyramidal side effect. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Now, the next one says 39-year-old computer scientist with progressive dementia, an increasing number of angry outbursts, this person is around 40, and stereotypical arm movements, right? If you see stuff like this, what should you be thinking about? I want you to think about Huntington's disease. Huntington's disease, right? I want you to think about Huntington's disease. So remember, Huntington's disease has autosomal dominant inheritance, and it's a chromosome 4 mutation, right? It's a chromosome 4 mutation, and remember, your CAG 
trinucleoside repeats, right? Your CAG trinucleoside repeats, right? And if you were to do brain imaging in these people, what are you going to find? I hope you're seeing all the time. I'm going to find atrophy of the caudate. Atrophy of the caudate. You're going to find atrophy of the caudate. Okay. So let's erase this and keep going. All right. Okay. So question 14 to 17, right? So the MBME and strokes, right? So let's talk about some strokes. So when do you give TPA for a stroke? Well, remember you give TPA, right? If they are less than four and a half hours since the stroke started, right? If they're less than four and a half hours since the onset of their symptoms. Now, what is the correct diagnostic test to select in a TIA, right? So for a TIA, remember, you're going to do the non-contrast head CT first. You're going to do the non-contrast head CT first. But after that, you're going to go ahead and do the carotid ultrasound, right? The carotid ultrasound to find if they have carotid stenosis. Now, how do you work up a subarachnoid hemorrhage? How do you work up a subarachnoid hemorrhage? Well, the first thing you're going to do for a subarachnoid, right, is you're going to do a non-contrast, like you do for pretty much every stroke. You're going to do a non-contrast head CT first, right? If you see, like, a lot of whites, that tells you the person is bleeding their brain, right? But if the non-contrast head CT is negative, are you done? No, you're not done, right? You need to proceed to doing a lumbar puncture. Right? Remember, you're looking for xanthochromia. Xanthochromia. So you notice that you keep getting like a lot of blood with each CSF tube. Xanthochromia. Now, next question here says dense paralysis on one side of the body. Right? Dense paralysis on one side of the body. So you notice that, wow, this person has a stroke and they are completely, they have total paralysis on one side. Right on one side, their upper extremities, lower extremities on one side. Yeah, if you see this, I want you to think about a problem at the level of the posterior limb. So that's an O. So at the level of the posterior limb of the internal capsule, yeah. the posterior limb of the internal capsule, right? Posterior limb of the internal capsule, right? This is usually an issue with the lenticulostriate artery. Lenticulo striate artery, right? An issue with the lenticulostriate artery. An issue with the lenticulostriate oh, artery. With the lenticulostriate artery, right? It supplies, you know those things where people have those Charcot-Bouchard microaneurysms, right? If that thing ruptures, you yeah. cause a hemorrhagic stroke of that place, right? And then all your corticospinal tract from one side of the brain crowds in that area and goes down into the brain stem, right? So if you infarct that area, you're going to have problems, right? So, it will be the contralateral, contralateral lenticulostriate artery that's all messed up. Now, the next question says medical management of carotid disease. How do we medically manage carotid disease, right? How do we medically manage carotid disease? Well, the way we're going to do that, if you notice, I put one, two, three. One is to remind you that you start with aspirin, right? But if you don't see that as an answer, then you go to your neck, you're going to go to your next thing, clopidogram. Clopidogram. These are all antiplatelet agents. If you don't see that as your answer, you're going to go to the next best thing. In this case, dipyridamol. Dipyridamol, right? Dipyridamol. 
Now, next one here says medical management of TIA with an irregularly irregular interval on an EKG. So you see a person, they have a TIA, and you notice that, gee, this person um, has AFib, right? So that AFib, their left atrium was quivering, so they formed clot, then it flicked off and went to the brain, right? So for these people, you need to put them on an anticoagulant. Remember, Anticoagulants are not the same thing as antiplatelets. Anticoagulants are drugs that affect secondary hemostasis, like heparin, warfarin, stuff like that. Antiplatelet agents are drugs that affect primary hemostasis. Now, what is the percent cutoff for an indirectomy? Again, the rules keep changing. The big thing I want you to remember is, if a person has more than 70% stenosis of the carotids, right, and they are symptomatic, that's an indication for carotid endarterectomy. Although remember, carotid endarterectomy is a planned procedure. It's not a procedure you ever do emergently. No. It's never a procedure that is completed emergently. Okay. Now, what if a person has 100% stenosis? Then, no endarterectomy. No endarterectomy. No endarterectomy. Endarterectomy. Right? Because they've already formed collateral vessels. So there's no point doing an endarterectomy for 100% carotid stenosis. Now, what must be done before you allow a person with a stroke to eat? Well, you need to do a swallowing study. You need to make sure they can protect their airway. This is a classic MDME question, especially since uh, last year. Now, what is the biggest risk factor for intracerebral hemorrhage? Right? Basically, this is like, what's the biggest risk factor for any stroke? I hope you're saying, oh, divine, it's going to be hypertension. Right? Now, these next two questions are very high yield. They love to show up on exams a lot. So look at this. This person has pain and temperature loss on the right face, or one side of the face. But then you also have pain and temperature loss on the contralateral side of the body, right? These lateral brainstem strokes are very high-value areas to know for MBM exams, right? So you see pain and temperature loss on one side of the face, and on the opposing side of the body. If you see that, I want you to think about a lateral brainstem stroke. I want you to think about a lateral brainstem stroke. A lateral brainstem stroke, right? A lateral brainstem stroke. So, my question then for you is, how do you know that it's lateral pons versus lateral medulla? Well, the way you do that is by using your cranial nerves. You see in this first one, this person is hoarse. That's a cranial 10 problem, right? We know that cranial nerve 10 is in the medulla, right? So this person has a, med a lateral medullary stroke. That's what's called Wallenberg syndrome. Well, this same person, same presentation, but it's the facial muscles that are weak. This is a cranial 7 problem, right? This person has a lateral pontine stroke. So I know you may say, oh, define, how do I know what vessel, how do I know what side? Whenever it's the pons, it's always going to be ICA that's affected, your anterior inferior cerebral artery. If it's your, if it's your medulla, it's always going to be pica or your vertebrals that are affected. But always go with pica if you see it over vertebral. Only pick vertebral if pica is not an answer. So now how do you know what side? Let me give you a simple rule. The correct side will be the same side as the face where they have symptoms, right? So this person has symptoms on the right face. So this is either going to be a right ICA lesion, you know, for this one, 
or right pi collision for this one. Or you can see, oh, it's going to be the opposing side as the body. Either row works. So same side as the face or opposite side as the body. So if you're having symptoms on the right side of your body, it's going to be a left pi cow, I cow, whatever lesion. Okay? That's the way you resolve these lateral brainstem stroke questions. Okay. Now, question 18 says, German teenager with a hemoglobin of 8. Right? So German teenager, right? This person is European and they have low hemoglobin. If you see this, right, I hope you're saying, oh, divine, this is hereditary spherocytosis, right? Hereditary spherocytosis, right? And if you notice, this thing is actually inherited in an chromosomal dominant fashion, right? And basically, the thing that's not working here are like red blood cell membrane proteins. Red blood cell membrane proteins, right? So things like spectrin and anchoring don't work. So things like spectrin and anchorin don't work, right? So if you remember from college, concentration is mass over volume. So these people, their hemoglobin mass is fine. But because they don't have enough red blood cell membrane, the volume of the red blood cell is going down. So if the volume of the red blood cell is going down, then the concentration of hemoglobin in that red blood cell is going to be up, right? That's why the MCHC is increased in people that have hereditary spherocytosis. I'll say that again. The MCHC is increased in people that have hereditary spherocytosis. And then we're going to diagnose this by doing something called the eosin 5 malamide assay, right? We're going to do the eosin 5 malamide assay, although sometimes you can also do this thing called the osmotic fragility test. Osmotic fragility test, right? Or again, you can do that eosin 5 malamide assay. Okay. And then how do we treat this? We're going to treat this with splenectomy. Just cut out your spleens and you'll be in good shape, right? Cut out your spleens and they'll be in good shape. Now, question 19 says, we have a 71-year-old male presents to his PCP with a history of multiple falls, right? Now, this person is having trouble holding a pen, having trouble holding a pen. This is easy, right? This is Parkinson's. This person has Parkinson's disease. And remember, these people, they have problems at the level of the substantia nigra, right? The substantia nigra, right? And Parkinson's disease actually has an association with seborrheic keratosis. It has an association with seborrheic keratosis, right? That's something you want to keep in mind. Right? So how do we treat Parkinson's? There are many drugs, but the big one to know for step 2CK, step 3, is carbidopa levodopa. Carbidopa levodopa. Right? Now, one unique problem you may see on an MDMA exam is how do I treat a person that has Parkinson's or they are psychotic? The thing is, these people, they already have a dopamine deficiency. So unfortunately, one thing that you cannot do, right? One thing you cannot do is to say, oh, you know what? Let me give these people like haloperidol for psychosis. No, that's a terrible thing to do, right? So the way you're going to fix this problem is you're going to give them quethiapine. You're going to give them quethiapine. Quethiapine is a very weak antipsychotic. It's a very, very weak antipsychotic, right? So you, you that's the drug of choice for psychosis in Parkinson's. Many times you try to lower their carbidopa levodopa first, but if that's not working, 
you can just go ahead and give them with IP. Now, let's talk about these Parkinson's plus syndromes, right? Parkinson's plus syndromes, right? So, if you see a person that has Parkinsonian symptoms, and then they have orthostatic hypotension, and they have like ataxia, ataxia. If you see this, I want you to think of something called multiple system atrophy. Multiple system atrophy. Right? Multiple system atrophy. What if this person keeps falling backwards, right? And they have trouble looking up. This one is actually very high yield to know. If you see this, I want you to think of something called progressive supranuclear palsy. Progressive supranuclear palsy, right? Now, what if you see a person, they have Parkinsonian symptoms, but they keep falling down. They keep having all these syncopal episodes. They always have these visual hallucinations, if you see this, this is Lewy body dementia, right? And then if you see a person having Parkinsonian symptoms and, you know, they are taking medication for chemotherapy-induced MSS, I really, really want you to think about drug-induced Parkinsonism, right? Drug-induced Parkinsonism, right? Usually it's going to be from, like, clopromazine, a drug like clopromazine, right? Or... Prochlorperazine. So, propromazine or Okay. Now, question 20 talks about anti-epileptic drug side effects. They love testing this thing on exams, right? So, look at this one. Hyponatremia hypertonic urine. This is caramazepine. Caramazepine likes to cause SIDH, right? It loves to cause SIDH, right? And we also know that caramazepine also causes febrile neutropenia, right? Now, nephrolithiasis, this is actually something you see with topiramate. Topiramate causes nephrolithiasis, right? Now, if you see a person taking an anti-epileptic and their liver basically explodes, I want you to think of alproic acid. I want you to think of alproic acid, right? And you never give alproic acid to a pregnant woman either, right? Never give up acid to a pregnant woman either. Now, question 21 talks about the 35-year-old female with MCPDIP arthritis, right? So this person has rheumatoid arthritis. And you look at their hemoglobin is low, right? And they have an anemia, right? This is anemia of chronic disease, right? So remember, in anemia of chronic disease, there's this thing called hepcidin, right? And hepcidin, the way I think of hepcidin is it makes you keep iron in your bone marrow, or you can't use it. It's almost like, let's say your parents say, oh, we're going to leave $2 million behind for you as our daughter or our son. But then you can't use it until you turn 99. I don't know. That does not seem like an inheritance to me, right? So hepcidin, I know, right? Hepcidin is going to do that to you. So your bone marrow stores are amazing, right? You're going to have a ton of iron in your bone marrow stores. So your ferritin is high. But your ferritin is high, your TIBC is going to be low because your body is like, oh, I have a lot of iron stores. So I don't need to go scouring around for iron, right? And because all your iron is in your bone marrow and it's not on, in your bloodstream, these people have a decreased transferring saturation, okay? They have a decreased transferring saturation. So let me take people's questions and then we will go from there. So let's continue. Now, question 22 says... Um, let's see. Patient with an elevated bleeding time, increased PTT, 
Mm-hmm. Now, abnormal resources in cold factor assay, right? This is from Wilbrand disease. But we notice that their hemoglobin is low. Well, remember, from Wilbrand disease is a bleeding disorder. So if you're bleeding, you're going to get iron deficiency anemia, right? So this person is going to have iron deficiency anemia, right? So in iron deficiency anemia, you literally have no iron, right? So your iron stores are low. So your ferritin is going to be low, right? And if your ferritin is low, well, your body is like, go find oxygen. Go, I mean, go find, go find the iron, go find iron, go find iron. So your TIBC is going to be high, right? If your TIBC is high, your transferrin saturation is low because, again, your transferrin has no iron that comes upon it, right? So you're literally lacking in, in iron. Now, car assembly plant and anemia, right? Well, what do we find in many cars? We're going to find lead batteries, right? So this person is going to have lead poisoning, oh, so right? Lead poisoning, right? So how do we treat lead poisoning? Remember, we're going to treat it with either EDTA, right, or succimer, right? Or you can also use DMSA. You can also use a BAL, right? British anti-lewisite. So either EDTA, succimer, DMSA, BAL, all those things are fine. Now, question 24 says, what is the most common cause of readmission following hospital surgery? What is the most common cause of readmission following hospital surgery? It's actually going to be post-op infection. Post-operative infection, right? So post-op infections are the most common cause of infection after a person has hospital surgery, okay? So let's keep going. Let's see. Okay, so question 25 and uh, 26, right? So we have a 32-year-old male with chronic heartburn that has not resolved with two trials of esomeprazole. Mm-hmm. So you're like, dude, give you PPIs, you're not getting better. If you see this, then your next best step in management, right, is you're going to do an EGD, right? You're going to perform an EGD, right? You're going to perform an EGD to rule out, like you're like, hey, I hope this person doesn't have cancer or anything weird. Right? When they say that EGD is negative, are you done? No. Right? You need to do esophageal pH monitoring. That's the gold standard test for diagnosing GERD, esophageal pH monitoring. So, how do we treat Barrett's esophagus? How do we treat Barrett's esophagus on exams? Remember, you're going to use high-dose PPIs, a high-dose proton pump inhibitor. That's how you treat Barrett's. But if they tell you in the question that a person has Barrett's plus dysplasia, those who are kind of going into cancer world, they're going to go ahead and do an ablation of the esophagus, of that region of the esophagus. You can either use like cryotherapy, right? You can use cryotherapy. Just find the answer that says ablation. You can use heat. You can use radiation, right? There are many things you can do. Just ablate that region of the esophagus. Now, this is super high yield to know. What are the hep C screening guidelines? Remember, between the ages of 18 to 79, you need to get a one-time screening for hep C. doesn't matter what your past medical history is. You're between the ages of 18 to 79. Now, question 27 says, shortness of breath, low oxygen, right? Six hours after a platelet transfusion for symptomatic ITP. And then you're seen bilateral intestinal infiltrates with diffuse crackles. And then you notice that, wow, the pulmonary capillary rate pressure is 14. Yeah. So you're like, huh. Define this looks a lot like an ARDS question, 
right? Yeah. So this person just got a transfusion of blood or a blood product. So like platelet transfusion, blood transfusion. If you see this, I want you to think about trauma. Transfusion related. Transfusion related acute lung injury. Acute lung injury. Trauma. Transfusion related acute lung injury. And you treat it the exact same way as ARDS, right? We've talked about how you put people that have ARDS on a ventilator. Now, question 28 says, and we'll talk about ARDS a lot tomorrow as well. So visiting a malaria-prone country while getting an indirect hyperbilirubinemia, right? So why is this person getting this, right? So let's assume that they probably took, like, prophylaxis. Let's say they took some kind of prophylactic medication. Many of those anti-malarians, right, they can cause a lot of oxidative damage, especially in people that have what? G6PD deficiency, right? G6PD deficiency. So as you're hemolyzing your red blood cells, you're going to form a lot of indirect bilirubin. So this is actually inherited in an excellent recessive fashion, right? So you only see this in boys on exams. You only see this in boys on exams. Now, Nephritic syndrome and nephrotic syndrome, what kind of hypersensitivity reaction is this? This is usually going to be a type 3 hypersensitivity reaction. You're seeing all these antigen antibody complexes form. But there's one exception to that rule, and that's good pastures. Good pastures syndrome. Good pastures, you're actually forming antibodies, right? Against type 4 collagen, against the glomerular basement membrane. That's actually an example of a type 2 hypersensitivity reaction. Good pasture is an example of a type 2 hypersensitivity reaction. Now, question 30 to 34 talks about broken bones and nerves. Broken bones and nerves. So let's say you fracture the neck of the humerus. What nerve have you messed up? Well, you've messed up your axillary nerve. How about the mid-shaft of the humerus, right? The humeral mid-shaft. You've messed up your radial nerve, okay? Now, what if you have a supracondylar fracture of the humerus, a supracondylar fracture of the humerus? If you see that, that's an injury to the median nerve. Now, what if you fracture the medial epicondyle of your humerus, your medial epicondyle? That's going to be injury to the ulnar nerve, right? Now, what if you fracture the hook of the hamate? You fracture the hook of the hamid. It's one of your carpal bones, right? It has a hook, the hamid bone, right? If you fracture the hook of the hamid, that's also going to be honor nerve damage, right? Honor nerve damage. Now, what if a person has tenderness on the anatomical snuff box, right? So they have tenderness in the anatomical snuff box. If you see this, I hope you're saying, oh, pff, divine, this is easy, right? This person has a scaphoid fracture. Remember, the scaphoid bone, right? We need to actually put these people in a thumb spiker cast, right? Because they have a very high, not test, cast. They have a very high risk of avascular necrosis, right? Because remember, the scaphoid bone has a retrograde blood supply. The scaphoid bone has a retrograde blood supply. Now, what if you fracture the head of the fibula? Well, that's going to be a common peroneal nerve, right? That's going to be a peroneal nerve problem, right? That's going to be a peroneal nerve problem. Now, what if a person cannot initiate shoulder abduction? They can't even start it. They literally cannot even start, mm -hmm. right? This is a rotator cuff tear. Yeah, this is a rotator cuff tear. Remember, rotator cuff tears 
are usually on MDA means from a problem with the supraspinatus muscle, right? So supraspinatus tendon, right? So supraspinatus is not working. Now, what if a person has trouble reaching overhead? So they can't go all the way, right? They can't go all the way. They can't go all the way. They cannot abduct all the way. If you see this, I want you to think of a problem with the serratus anterior muscle. Serratus anterior. And also, to an extent, your trapezius muscle, right? Serratus anterior muscle or trapezius. Now, what if a person cannot adduct their thigh? So they can't bring their thigh together, right? They cannot adduct. This one shows up on practically every USMLE exam. It's pretty easy, right? This is an obturator nerve problem. Obturator nerve problem. Okay, question 35. Three hours after initiating therapy for secondary syphilis, a 36-year-old male is found to have a high fever, severe headache, and worsening troncal erythema. His blood pressure is a little low, oh, right? So when you see a person, they've started on antibiotic therapy, either for a gram-negative infection or for a spirochete. I'll say that again. You see a person, they have fever, low blood pressure, headache, right, chills, and they were just started on antibiotic therapy for a spirochete, right, for a spirochete or for a gram-negative. I want you to think of the jarish hexheimer reaction, right? The jarish jarish Hexheimer reaction, the Jarish Hexheimer reaction, right? And for the most part, just supportive care, keep giving them the antibiotics, yeah. they'll be fine. Now, question 36, 37 says, over the past year, a 71-year-old male with a past medical history of diabetes has had his creatinine increase progressively from 1.6 to 3.7. He received a matched renal transplant from his younger sister. Right? He received a matched renal transplant from his younger sister. Right, So we're seeing this person, they have a history of diabetes, right? and their creatinine has been going up. This is more than one year after the transplant. Right, This is pretty easy. Right? This is chronic rejection. Chronic rejection. Right? Now, what's the most likely finding in chronic rejection? You're going to find a lot of fibrosis. Right? But if it was three weeks after transplantation, it's going to be acute rejection. Right? And usually when people have acute rejection, on biopsy, we're going to find lymphocytes mm -hmm. and eosinophils. It's very high yield to know that eosinophil part. You're going to find lymphocytes and eosinophils for acute rejection. Now, what if you see a diarrheal outbreak in a military barrack, right? So like in a military installation, always think of norovirus. Oh, yeah. That crochet business, they still put it on exams, but it's very rare. Whenever you see an outbreak of diarrhea, Always think of neurovirus. Now, question 39 says, flank pain, fever, and pyuria, right? So this person has like flank pain, fever, and you see white cells in their urine, right? Mm -hmm. This person has pyelonephritis. First things first. Now, pyelonephritis, we're usually going to treat it with IV safe triaxone, right? The thing is, if you are being treated for pylo, you're supposed to get better fast, like within like, 24 to 48 hours, you're fine. But if you notice that, man, this person is not getting better. What are you supposed to do next? The next thing you're supposed to do is you're supposed to do a CT abdomen and pelvis with IV contrast because they've likely developed some kind of complication of pyelonephritis. And this is very common in people that are diabetics, right? So what are we thinking about here? We're thinking about things like emphysematous pyelonephritis, 
emphysematous pyelonephritis. This is where you see gas bubbles in the wall of the kidney, right? This is actually a surgical emergency. We need to call a transplant surgeon to perform an nephrectomy, right? A nephrectomy. You're literally going to cut out that person's kidneys. It's that serious. If not, you're going to die for sure. Now, another complication you could see is they may tell you that you are seeing a fluid collection in the wall of the kidney. That is something called a perinephric abscess. A perinephric abscess. A perinephric abscess. For that one, you're going to do an incision and drainage, an IND, an incision and drainage, and that's it. Now, question 40 says fever and back pain. I don't know why I put this again. So fever, back pain, and you see they have neurodeficits, right? Fever, back pain, neurodeficits. If you see this, I want you to think again of a spinal epidural abscess, right? Now, this thing that I put here of substitute one, I just basically mean a triad of fever, but instead of back pain, we're going to make it headache. And instead of, and then they're still going to have neurodeficits, right? So fever, headache, and neurodeficits. If you see this, that's the classic triad of a brain abscess on exams. A brain abscess. So fever, headache, and neurodeficits, that's a brain abscess. And the thing is, how do we diagnose brain abscesses? We're going to use an MRI of the brain, again, with IV contrast. So an MRI of the brain with IV contrast. Now, question 41 says, rash, abdominal pain, and diarrhea. Right? So you see now, if you see a person, they just got a transplant, they're having a rash and diarrhea, rash and diarrhea, rash and diarrhea, right? With recent transplant, I want you to think of graft versus host disease, graft versus host disease, right? That's the diagnosis. And you're going to prevent this by irradiating as many things as possible, right? You reduce the risk of graft versus host disease by just irradiating the things that are moving from one patient to the other. Now, blood test results with a history of T. pallidum, but recovered successfully, right? So if a person has had syphilis, and you notice that hmm, they recovered, right? What test are you going to use to check that they've recovered? Well, you're going to use the RPR and the VDRL tests. Those titers are supposed to decrease as a person gets cured of their syphilis, right? So please don't pick the answer like the MHATP. Those treponemal tests, don't pick MHATP, don't pick FTA, ABS. Those will be wrong, right? Those will be wrong, right? People that have, people that have, uh, 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 people that have uh, uh, syphilis, those treponemal tests will always be positive for the rest of their lives, right? But again, their MHATP and their FTA, ABS, always going to be positive. But RPR, VDRL titers are supposed to go down with, with treatment. Okay, so let's erase this and keep going. Okay, question 43. So question 43 says, decreasing the risk of venous thromboembolic disease in a hospitalized patient. So how do you reduce the risk of venous thromboembolic disease in a hospitalized patient? Well, that's easy. You're going to use an intermittent uh, actually, sorry, you're going to use heparin. We'll get to that shortly, right? You're going to use heparin, right? You're going to use heparin. That's how you fix that problem, right? But 
in an orthopedic surgery patient, what are two things you want to do? Well, one is to use heparin. You know, heparin, low molecular weight heparin, that's fine. But another thing you can also do is you can give, do something called an intermittent pneumatic compression device. An intermittent pneumatic compression device. Intermittent pneumatic compression device, an IPCD. Right? And these November 2020 changes, we're going to go over a ton of them tomorrow as well. Right? Now, question 44 and 45, right? So quality and safety. So what is the most likely healthcare associated complication with TPN administration? Right? So the person getting TPN, what is the most likely complication they will get? They can actually get a clapsy, a central line associated bloodstream infection. Right? A central line associated bloodstream infection, right? They'll try to trick you into picking at a calculus cholecystitis. Don't do that. Pick clapsy. Now, what is the skin precaution, right? If you're doing like a central line, if you're placing a central line, what kind of skin precaution are you supposed to use? You're supposed to make sure you use chlorhexidine, right? You're supposed to use chlorhexidine. Now, what kind of central line access do you want to avoid? You want to avoid a femoral central line, right? Because this one has the highest association of the person getting infected, right? Mm-hmm. A femoral central line has the strongest association with infection. Now, what is the most common cause of preventable hospital deaths, right? So, what is the most common cause of preventable hospital deaths? This is actually venous thromboembolic disease, right? So, venous thromboembolic disease is the most common cause of preventable hospital deaths. Now, what is the most important intervention? In reducing the risk of wrong site, wrong patient, and wrong procedure errors, right? So, like not operating on the wrong limb, for example. The most important intervention on MDMEs you want to think of is the use of something called a pre procedural timeout. The use of a pre procedural timeout, right? Where they say, oh, this is the patient's name, this is their age, this is their indication, this is where we're doing the surgery, right? So, you do a timeout. Now, before a person gets any kind of surgery, what kind of antibiotic prophylaxis are you supposed to give them? Well, I hope you're saying, oh, the vine, they're going to get cefazolin, right? If you've done any surgery rotation, you've probably heard of the drug ANSEF. ANSEF, 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 ANSEF. I feel like surgeons, they probably like take ANSEF for like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm-hmm. ANSEF, 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 right? Cefazolin is ANSEF, right? It's high yield to know that they're supposed to give you 30 to 60 minutes before the surgery starts. So if for some reason the surgery has to be delayed, right, by a few hours, and you've already given the cefazolin, you need to give the cefazolin again, right? You need to give it within that 30 to 60 minute time window before surgery. Now, question 46 says, hemoptysis and a widened mediastinum in a textile factory worker, right? So hemoptysis and a widened mediastinum in a textile factory worker. If you see this, I want you to think about anthrax. Right? I want you to think about anthrax, bacillus anthracis. How do we treat this? We're going to give these people ciprofloxacin for 60 days, right? To cure them of their anthrax. Now, 47 to 49 is a big discussion, right? Chronic headache with muscle weakness and polyuria. Let's say these people have low potassium, right? And let's say they have high bicarb, right? So we see a person, they have like, and you know, they have hypertension. And three different antihypertensives have not worked, right? Three different antihypertensives have not worked. That's not a good thing, right? This person very likely has Con syndrome. 
Horn syndrome. Notice I didn't give you the presence of any kind of flank group, right? But one other thing you can also do to sort out these two conditions is you can check the plasma aldosterone to renin ratio, right? Because if you think about it, if a person has Corn syndrome, they have an adrenal adenoma making a ton of aldosterone. So the aldosterone is going to be really high, right? If your aldosterone is high, that's going to make your blood pressure high and suppress your renin. So these people's plasma aldosterone to renin ratio is going to be greater than 20 on an exam, right? But if you measure the plasma aldosterone to renin ratio, and you notice that, oh, wow, this thing is less than 20, that means the renin is growing at the same time as the aldosterone, right? So these people probably have things more along the lines of like renal artery stenosis or fibromuscular dysplasia, right? Because in renal artery stenosis, you're hypoperfusing your afferent arterial. So you're going to be making a ton of renin, right? So in the same vein, you're going to be making a ton of aldosterone, right? So your renin and aldosterone are both going up. So your ratio will be less than 20. So let's assume we are like, okay, this person has Corn syndrome. How do we work up Corn syndrome? Well, the very first thing you're going to do, right? Again, we know that, oh, Corn syndrome, the plasma aldosterone to renin ratio is going to be more than 20. Well, how do we work this up? Well, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to do something called the salt suppression test. We're going to do the salt suppression test, right? Because, again, it's an over-secretion disorder. So the confirmatory uh, test should be a suppression test. We talked about that principle, right? So you do a salt suppression test. If I give you salt, your aldosterone should go down. So if you notice that a person's aldosterone fails to decrease, fails to decrease, with salt augmentation, that's diagnostic of Corn syndrome, right? So the aldosterone, the person's aldosterone fails to decrease. So when you're done with that, what do you do next? Well, we need to do a CT or an MRI of the abdomen. Or, you know, sometimes they'll say CT or MRI of the adrenals to find the problem, right? But before you treat these people, you need to sort out what kind of disorder they have. Because the thing is, Sometimes people can have Corn syndrome and they will have elevated, it will be like one adrenal gland that's affected, right? So let's say they may have like, you know, their right adrenal gland and their left adrenal gland, right? And it's only one adrenal gland that is affected, right? If it's only one adrenal gland that is affected, let's say it's the right adrenal gland affected, they will have increased aldosterone in this abnormal adrenal gland. But the not the ab, so in the abnormal adrenal gland, the aldosterone will be high, right? If you look at the adrenal vein, this is what's called adrenal vein sampling. Adrenal vein sampling, right? So if you look at the bad adrenal gland, if you look at the adrenal vein for that side, the aldosterone will be high. But for the normal adrenal gland, because the person is so hypertensive, that normal adrenal gland is supposed to be working well. So if you look at the left adrenal vein, the aldosterone should be low. So that tells you this person has unilateral disease. So in the bad one, it's high? Yeah. But if you notice that, oh, you're doing adrenal vein sampling, and you notice that in the right adrenal and in the left adrenal, right, you check the right adrenal vein, you notice that the aldosterone is high. You check the left adrenal vein, you notice that the aldosterone is also high. That means these people have bilateral disease 
these people have bilateral disease, right? Whenever a person has unilateral disease, your treatment of choice for Crohn syndrome is an adrenalectomy. Adrenalectomy. Right? But if you notice that they have bilateral disease, then you can't do an adrenalectomy. You can't cut out both adrenal glands, right? Yeah. That's as a result of like very high morbidity and mortality. Yeah. So for these people, what you're going to do is you're going to use an aldosterone antagonist like spironolactone or eplerinol. It's a subtle difference. It's a very high yield difference to know for your exams, right? So in lateral disease, you cut out that affected adrenal gland. By lateral disease, you can't cut out any adrenal gland, right? You use medical management. Okay. Now, question 50 says, oh my God. blood pressure is 250 over 140 with altered mental status. What do you do next? Right? So we see this person, their blood pressure is crazy high and they have altered mental status. Right? This is pretty easy. Right? This person has hypertensive emergency. Okay. Hypertensive emergency. So what do we do for hypertensive emergency? Remember, you can use one of four drugs on your exams. Right? You can use mycardipine or clevidipine clevidipine or labetalol or nitroprusside. Those are the only drugs you are supposed to use for hypertensive emergency. Don't use hydralazine ever for hypertensive emergency on Indian exams. Studies have shown a worsening of morbidity when you do that. Now, questions 51 and 52 says the lovely UA, right? So let's go over some urinalysis findings. The first one says dehydration. If you're dehydrated, the urine is going to be very concentrated, right? The urine is very, going to be very, very, because you're trying to keep water as much as possible, right? So remember, these people, they can have hyaline casts, hyaline casts. But in addition to that, because their urine is very concentrated, their urine-specific gravity, we've talked about that already, is going to be much greater than 1.012, right? Whenever your urine is concentrated, it's going to be dense. So your urine-specific gravity is going to be really high. It's going to be much higher than 1.012. Now, the phrotic syndrome, right? Remember, in phrotic syndrome, you're going to find fatty casts, yeah. right? Fatty casts, right? Fatty casts. How about nephritic syndrome? Well, you're going to find red blood cell casts. Remember, these red blood cell casts are also called dysmorphic erythrocytes on exams. Dysmorphic erythrocytes. Dysmorphic erythrocytes, right? Dysmorphic erythrocytes. How about in ATA? In acute tubular necrosis, you're going to find muddy brown casts. Muddy brown casts. Right? Remember, sometimes these things are called pigmented granular casts. So, muddy brown or pigmented granular casts. Right? So, muddy brown casts or pigmented granular casts. Now, EIN, right, acute interstitial nephritis, you're going to find eosinophils, right? We've talked about this already. This is part of the differential diagnosis for eosinophilia. Now, next one says three plus blood with zero to one red blood cells per high power field, right? So if you're seeing three plus blood in a person's urine, on urine microscopy, you're supposed to see like 30, 40, 50 red blood cells per high power field. We only see zero to one. That doesn't make any sense. And if I see stuff like that, I want you to think of rhabdomyolysis. 
right? So those things you think you're seeing that is blood is actually not blood. You actually see myoglobin, right? That person has rhabdomyolysis. And then this is a separate question, pylo. When the person has pylo, what are you seeing? Pylo, you're going to see white blood cell casts. White blood cell casts. So for pylonephritis, you're going to see white blood cell casts. Now, question 53. Sudden onset flank pain and a DVT two months ago in a patient with chronic 4-plus proteinuria, right? So we're seeing this person, they have nephrotic syndrome. And then you have this sudden onset flank pain, right? Sudden onset flank pain, sudden onset flank pain. If you see stuff like this, I want you to think of this person having renal vein thrombosis, right? Again, remember, when a person has nephrotic syndrome, they're going to have an acquired antithrombin-3 deficiency. They're going to pee out antithrombin-3 in their urine. Remember, antithrombin-3 is an inhibitor of factor 10 and factor 2, right? Antithrombin-3 is a factor 2 and a factor 10 inhibitor. So if you have a deficiency of that, factor 2 and factor 10, you'll be throwing a part in your body, right? Causing a person to have strokes, PEs, DVTs, all those badness, right? But again, one big one to know for exams is renal vein thrombosis. And this has a strong association with membranous nephropathy. Has a very strong association with membranous nephropathy, right? Membranous nephropathy. Now, question 54 says, hematuria and hypertension, five days. So notice this is two to six days after, right? After an upper respiratory infection, right? You're seeing red urine. If you see this, right, this is going to be IgA nephropathy. IgA nephropathy. One thing I want to point out here is IgA nephropathy actually has an alternate name. IgA nephropathy is also called a sin pharyngitic nephropathy. A sin pharyngitic nephropathy, right? It's also called a sin pharyngitic. So S-Y-N-P-H-A-R-Y-N. G-I-T-I-C, right? Because it happens at about the same time as the pharyngeal infection, right? Again, that's an alternate thing you may see on your exam and you start scratching your head. It's literally the exact same thing. But if you notice that it's four weeks after, right? This is easy, right? This is post-infectious glomerulonephritis, right? That will be post-infectious glomerulonephritis. Post-infectious glomerulonephritis. Okay. Now, question 55. Mr. X presents to an ED with chest pain and shortness of breath. Okay. He was accompanied by his girlfriend. Okay. He requests to see a physician, but in triage, becomes belligerent. Right? So the person is kind of thrashing all over the place. Security escorts the patient out of the ED. An hour later, the patient presents again, complaining of worsening chest pain. His girlfriend reports that he also had a seizure. Yeah. She is requesting help in lifting her partner to a bed in the ER. But the ED security refuses and asks them to leave. Okay. The patient's girlfriend drives 20 minutes to take Mr. X to another hospital. He's declared dead on arrival. What does the MBME expect you to know here? All right. So do we see a problem here? This hospital, essentially, they dumped this patient. The person comes into the emergency room right? And they have an emergency medical condition. That's what EMC stands for. If you come to an emergency room and you have an emergency medical condition, like chest pain, shortness of breath, stuff like that, 
you deserve an MSc. You deserve a medical screening exam. Regardless of your ability to pay, right? You deserve a medical screening exam, right? So are you supposed to dump patients? You're like, oh, you can't pay. Or, man, this patient smells. This patient, I don't want to touch this patient. Let me dump them. No, you can't do that. If you do that, you're legally culpable, right? So you cannot dump patients, right? The most common cause of these kinds of violations are improper evaluation, right? So you have a patient, they come into the emergency room, they're having chest pain, but you kind of brush it off, right? That's how people get into trouble with this, right? So what are you supposed to do again? Basically, this is just recapping what I've said already. A person has an emergency medical condition, right? You need to perform a screening exam on them. This is something that is called MTALA. The Emergency Medical Transport and Something Act, right? I'm sure many of you have heard of MTALA. MTALA, MTALA, right? That's literally what MTALA means. The exams they started writing since last November require you to understand what they mean by MTALA, okay? MTALA is something that's very high yield to make sure you understand. Basically, it's a medical, emergency medical transfer. Basically, before you transfer someone to another healthcare facility, you must stabilize them first. That's kind of like the big crux of the matter there. Okay. So I'm going to erase this so we can keep going. All right. Okay. So, page 25. All right. So, first question. So, nosocomial infections. I mean, this is a huge question. It's a long-ass question, right? So, nosocomial infections are in the end, right? Mm -hmm. So, what is the most common mode of transmission of nosocomial infections? Well, this is usually going to be by direct contact, right? It's usually going to be by direct contact, right? Now, what is the most important measure associated with decreasing the risk of nosocomial infections, right? This is actually hand washing. You need to wash your hands, right? Remember, you can wash your hands with water or an alcohol-based solution. Now, what are the three high-yield MBME organisms associated with airborne transmission? Right? What are three organisms on MBMEs that, are, oh, people tend to transmit through airborne transmission? If you see that, I want you to think about TB. I want you to think of Legionella. And I want you to think of varicella, right? Now, how do you reduce the risk of rotavirus and C. diff infection in hospitals? How do you reduce the risk of those infections in hospitals? Well, you're going to wash your hands with water. So alcohol does not work here, right? If a person has C. diff or rotavirus, you cannot, hand sanitizers won't do squat for you. You need to wash your hands with soap and water, right? You're going to use soap and water. Now, what is the most important measure for decreasing the risk of transmission of blood-borne pathogens? How do you decrease the risk of transmission of blood-borne pathogens on MBMEs? They'll give you all these different interventions. The one you're supposed to pick is you're supposed to use gloves, right? Again, since November of last year, these things, trust me, they are super high yield to know for exams, okay? Now, what is the most common kind of nosocomial infection? Right? What is the most common kind of nosocomial infection? It is actually a catheter-associated UTI. A catheter-associated UTI. Right? Number two is going to be healthcare-acquired pneumonia, HCAP. Right? So healthcare-acquired or associated pneumonia. Right? So UTIs are very common. Right? Catheter-associated UTIs. 
followed by healthcare-associated pneumonia. Now, what is the most common nosocomial infection that causes people to die, right? It's actually going to be HCAP, healthcare-associated pneumonia, right? UTIs, many times you can treat it, but uh, healthcare-associated pneumonia, they tend to be pretty lethal. Now, what are some contraindications to alcohol-based hand washing, right? So what are some contraindications to alcohol-based hand washing? Well, the big ones I want to mention here are, again, if a person has CDF, right, or they have rotaviral infection, right? So CDF or rotavirus infection. Now, next one says, a medical student is tasked with caring for a 25-year-old male who presented with nocal rigidity, headache, and high fevers. Okay, this person has meningitis. Gram stain of an LP specimen revealed gram-negative diplococci. What kind of precaution should be taken in caring for this patient? Well, when a person has meningococcal meningitis, remember, they're supposed to take droplet precautions, right? They're supposed to literally take droplet precautions, right? And if, let's say, you intubated the patient or whatever, right, you're going to put this person on rifampin. If you were a close contact of a person with meningococcal meningitis, right, they need to be placed on rifampin as close contact prophylaxis. Although, you can also use ciprofloxacin, or ceftriaxone. Okay. Now, what are some other organisms that demand droplet precautions? The way I remember this, I use the term P, right? So P for pertussis, right? The I for influenza, right? The stuff that causes the flu, not hemophilus influenza. Remember, hemophilus influenza does not cause the flu. You make that kind of mistake on your exam, you go home and you cry afterwards, okay? Don't make that mistake on your test. Okay. And then the N, again, is Neisseria meningitidis, right? Neisseria meningitidis, right? Now, what if a person has COVID-19? What kind of precautions are you supposed to take? Again, you're supposed to take airborne precautions when you're caring for a patient that has COVID-19. How about CDF? You're going to exercise contact precautions, right? You're going to exercise contact precautions. Now, what are the three MDME interventions for reducing the risk of ventilator-associated pneumonia? Wow. How do you reduce the risk of ventilator-associated pneumonia? Well, there are three of them to keep in mind, in order of which is the best. The first one is something called, and this is the one you probably want to pick on your exam, is something called supraglottic secretion drainage. Supraglottic secretion drainage. Right? If you've done an ICU rotation and you see the nurses, they keep they keep uh, suctioning from the mouth. That's what they're doing. They're trying to reduce the risk of VAP. Right? Another thing you can also do is to use chlorhexidine mouthwash. Is to use chlorhexidine mouthwash. A third thing you can also do is to elevate the head of the bed to 30 degrees. So elevate the head of the bed to 30 degrees, right? We elevate the head of the bed to 30 degrees. But this is the one that has been found to be the most helpful, supraglottic secretion drainage. Now, how do you reduce the risk of pneumothorax with central line insertions, right? Well, the big two big ones is you want to avoid subclavian central lines, right? And you also want to use ultrasound guidance. You want to use ultrasound guidance so that you can see what you're doing, literally, right? Now, for MDME purposes, how should a pressure ulcer 
be cultured for infection. They love to throw this on exams. People always get this wrong. You'll say, ooh, culture from the edge of the ulcer. No, that is not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to obtain a deep tissue specimen. You're supposed to obtain a deep tissue specimen. Don't pick the answer that says to culture from the edge of the ulcer. That would be wrong. Now, for MBME purposes, what kinds of cultures are obtained when a central line associated bloodstream infection is suspected? So, when you suspect that a person has a clapsy, what are you supposed to do for those people? What are you supposed to do for those people? Well, the thing you're supposed to do in terms of uh, culture is you're going to get two cultures, right? First one is you're going to get one from the catheter itself, right? And then you're going to get another one from another peripheral vein, another peripheral vein. And then you see the one that has the fastest growth, right? If you notice that, oh, wow, the one from the catheter is growing so, like, you're getting, like, a lot of bugs from your culture compared with the other peripheral vein. That's something called differential growth. Then you know that the person has a clapsy, okay? Now, how do we treat a clapsy? You're going to remove it, right? And many times you're going to give vancomycin. Right? You're going to remove the catheter and you're going to give vancomycin. Okay? Now, next one says, 29-year-old male with a history of Hodgkin's lymphoma reports severe pain in his right arm. Okay? His symptoms began two hours ago. So this is acute. Physical exam is notable for swelling in the involved extremity with palpable tenderness. Right? Swelling in the involved extremity with palpable tenderness. His brachial pulse is palpable. He has a right jugular central venous catheter in place. So what happened here, right? Remember, whenever you're doing an arterial, like a, a blood vessel procedure, you puncture a blood vessel. When you puncture those blood vessels, guess what? When you puncture those vessels, they are causing endothelial damage. If you remember Verco's triad, right? This person basically has a DVT in the arm, right? So this person has something we call catheter-associated thrombosis. Catheter-associated it's a double S, thrombosis, catheter-associated thrombosis, right? And again, the pathophase is because, again, you've caused endothelial damage, right? So you've caused endothelial damage, right? So again, you're essentially activating vehicles triad in that person, right? Because when you puncture a vessel wall, you're exposing subendothelial collagen. So you begin to form clots. Now, cancer patients and pain management, right? So, what's the big thing with these people? When a person is a cancer patient, start with an NSAID first. If that's not working, proceed straight to opioids, right? And remember, for opioids, you can keep going up on your dose, right? Again, these people are going to be dying. Make them comfortable. Give them as much opioid as they want or need, basically. Okay, now, add-on therapy with opioids. Remember, if a person is getting chronic opioids, they need a stool softener, right? Because remember, opioids can cause constipation. Now, what are the MDME contraindications to getting a transplant, right? What are the MDME contraindications to getting a transplant? Well, the first one is if a person has an incurable, right, or some kind of metastatic malignancy. Metastatic malignancy, right? So incurable slash, you know, metastatic malignancy. Another classic one you may see on exams is if they've had prolonged cardiac arrest. So they've been down for a long time. What's the chance of people surviving? 
is almost zero, right? So they've had a prolonged cardiac arrest. Another classic one is if a person has Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, CJD. Those people will for sure, there's no cure, they're going to die. So you're not going to give them an organ, right? HIV is no longer a contraindication to transplant. That's very high yield. HIV is no longer a contraindication to transplant. Now, question 57 says, immediate diagnostic test in a neonate presenting with bilious MSS, right? Whenever you see a neonate presenting with bilious MSS, I want you to think of performing an upper GI series, an upper GI series, right? Go ahead and perform an upper GI series, right? An upper GI series, right? Because essentially, you're trying to rule out malrotation. Malrotation is like the primary thing you want to rule out, right? So you're going to get an upper GI series to rule out malrotation. Malrotation is the most common cause. And we'll talk about this some more in a later part of the course. Malrotation is the most common cause of biliosenesis in a newborn on MBM exams. Now, what is the most important predictor of mortality in a newborn with congenital diaphragmatic hernia? What is the most important predictor of mortality? This is actually going to be the degree of pulmonary hypoplasia. Degree of pulmonary. I know some of these questions may be like, these questions are weird. They are weird, but they are very high yield. Again, trust me, um, I've been tutoring to these MPM exams for a long time, right? Um, nobody explain to you why I think these things are high yield. But let's just leave it at that, right? Let's just assume that mysteriously I happen to know that these things are high yield, right? Who knows? Maybe I work for the MBM. I don't know. Who knows? Again, maybe I'm some mystery guy, right? So, the degree of pulmonary hypoplasia. Jesus is talking to you. If you think about it, essentially, if you have GI tract contents in your chest, that's going to compress your lungs. The child's lungs are not going to expand and develop properly. Now, what's the most dangerous complication of pericardiocentesis? What is the most dangerous complication of pericardiocentesis? This is actually going to be laceration of a coronary artery. Laceration of a coronary artery, right? Laceration of a coronary artery. Now, what is the mechanism behind the hypotension in a patient with tension pneumothorax? Why do patients with tension pneumothorax develop hypotension? Well, let's talk about that. Well, remember, in a tension pneumothorax, having all this air build up in your thoracic cavity. But remember, your IVC and your SVC, they are veins. Veins, by definition, they are compressible, right? So that increased intrathoracic pressure is going to compress your veins. It's going to compress your veins. And when you compress those veins, you're going to de decrease the person's preload. So if your preload goes down, if your preload goes down, I don't know where your cardiac output is going to come from, right? So that's why those people become markedly hypotensive. That's why those people become markedly hypotensive. Okay, so let's keep going. We still have some time before I take people's questions. All right. So question 58, right? It says, who should not be screened for a AAA, right? Who should not be screened for a AAA? Who should not be screened for a AAA? Basically, if a person is a woman, women never get screened for a AAA, right? Women never get screened for a AAA. Even if they smoke, it doesn't matter. They never get screened. Now, what is the unique differentiating feature on MBMEs when comparing cluster headaches to migraine headaches, right? 
What is the unique differentiating feature when you're comp comparing cluster headaches to migraines? Well, the big thing I want you to know for your exam is that cluster headaches, again, they, used, they essentially, they don't happen for, like, a, like, you can have multiple happen every day. So let's put it this way. So you have multiple happening every day. So multiple happening every day, right? And they will have almost like conjunctival injection, right? And they will have tearing, right? They'll have conjunctival injection. They'll have tearing, right? And the thing is, if you turn off lights or turn off sounds, it actually worsens their condition, right? So removing lights, removing sounds actually worsens cluster headaches, right? And again, the headache is usually on the same side, right? The headache is usually on the same side as the eye findings, right? It's really on the same side. And many times you'll have like ptosis and meiosis as well, right? So they'll have a partial Horner's syndrome. But migraines, remember migraines, you usually have it like one per day, right? You usually have like one per day. And many times... These people have phonophobia and phonophobia. So loud noises, bright lights really make their symptoms horrible, right? Really make their symptoms horrible. Now, the next question here says, microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, skin ecchymosis, and renal failure in a 45-year-old male, right? So you're seeing this person. They have a microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. They have low platelets, right? You're seeing this ecchymosis. Ecchymosis is very common in people that have low platelets and they have renal failure. If you put all these things together, I hope you're saying, oh, divine, this person has TTP, right? This person has TTP. Usually they'll give you bloody diarrhea if they want you to think of HUS. So what's the pathophysiology behind TTP? Remember, these people have a deficiency of something called Adam's TS13. Adam's TS13. The thing is, Adam's TS13 has another name on MBM exams. Sometimes... They call this stuff von Willebrand factor metalloprotease. Von Willebrand factor metalloprotease. So the thing is, these people, they are not able to chew, cut down von Willebrand factor. They're not able to cut down von Willebrand factor. So von Willebrand factor will hang out for long. If it does, you're going to keep activating your platelets, activating your platelets. That's why those people's platelet count goes down. But because... Uh, uh, they have all these von Willebrand factor sticks in their bloodstream. As red blood cells are flowing, they keep sharing those red blood cells. That's why they have that microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. And the way we treat this is we're going to treat this first line is plasma phoresis. Plasma phoresis, right? Plasma phoresis. Second line is IVIG, right? Now, question 59 says, Mechanism behind infertility in a patient with decreased day 25 progesterone, right? So remember, if you're on day 25 of your cycle, you're in the luteal phase of your cycle, right? So remember, in the luteal phase, your corpus luteum produces progestin. So if your day 25 progesterone is low, that means you never formed your corpus luteum. So if you didn't form your corpus luteum, did you ovulate? No, Right? So the mechanism here is anovulation. Again, B 
these are stuff you see on exams, but it ends up being very high yield. Now, complete hair loss in, a, in discrete circular patches on the hair in a 35-year-old male with a history of Addison's disease. So you have one autoimmune disease, so you have a high risk of another autoimmune disease. If you see this, this is alopecia areata, right? Alopecia areata, alopecia areata, right? So how do we treat this? You're actually going to inject steroids into the lesions. You're going to inject steroids into the lesions, right? You're going to inject steroids into the lesions. Now, next thing here says breast cancer screening guidelines with BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations, right? So what are the breast cancer screening guidelines in people that have BRCA1 and 2 mutations? Well, between the ages of 25 to 29, there is one thing you do. And if you're more than the age of 30, there's one thing you do. So people between the age of 29 to 25 to 29, they're going to do an annual breast MRI. An annual breast MRI, right? But over the age of 30, they're going to do annual mammograms plus breast MRIs. So you double up once they hit the age of 30. That's very high yield to know for exams. Now, Question 60 says, malignancy in individuals exposed to neck and chest radiation, right? Mm -hmm. So they were exposed to neck and chest radiation. Remember, these are associated with people getting papillary thyroid cancer. Molecular. The biggest risk factor for papillary thyroid cancer oh. is prior exposure to neck and chest radiation, right? To neck and chest radiation. Now, let me finish this question and then I'll take people's questions, right? So what are the four major MDME criteria for pursuing starting therapy? This is just something that sadly need to memorize right so the first one is if a person has clinical ASCVD atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease right so people that have like they have had like PEs or strokes or MIs right or peripheral arterial disease renal artery stenosis all those people need starting therapy next group are people whose ASCVD risk is greater than 7.5 percent over the next 10 years, right? Greater than 7.5% over the next 10 years. You don't need to know how to calculate it. They'll give you that number on the exam. Third group are people, third group are people that have a history of diabetes, right? And they're between the ages of 45 to 70, right? And their LDL cholesterol is more than 70, right? For those people, they need to be placed on high-intensity statin therapy. And then the final group is if your LDL cholesterol is greater than 190. Those people also need high-intensity statin therapy. Again, I would encourage you, make your statin decisions based on LDL cholesterol, not on total cholesterol. That's a classic med student mistake on exams. Now, the next step in management of a person greater than 50 who presents with a new chronic headache is you're going to get an MRI of the brain with IV contrast. That's a classic presentation of a person having a brain cancer. Okay. So let me take people's questions, and then we will proceed from there. Question 61. Okay, so decreased platelet count, increased PTT, PT, and D-dimer in a patient being treated for a hematologic malignancy, right? So this is AML. This is acute promyelocytic leukemia. Right? Remember, those hour rods, they can cause DIC, right? Those hour rods can cause DIC. And don't forget 
Now, this is a 1517 translocation. Excuse me. And you treat this with all transretinoic acid. All right. Now, what are the two mechanisms behind heart failure and chronic severe anemia? Right. The thing is, if you have chronic severe anemia, your hemoglobin is low. Right. So that means your blood is less viscous. Right. So you have decreased viscosity of your blood. If your blood has decreased viscosity, right, that's going to decrease the total peripheral resistance. Right. So because your total peripheral resistance is low, right, because your blood is less viscous, you're going to have an increased cardiac output on a chronic basis. You're going to have an increased cardiac output. That's one reason. Another reason is these people, because they are chronically anemic, they are chronically hypoxic as well. When you have chronic hypoxia, your body is going to be like, I need oxygen, I need oxygen, I need oxygen, I need oxygen. So your heart is going to be like, Okay, okay, I'll get you your oxygen, right? So your heart keeps slaving away, slaving away, slaving away, slaving away. There is always high need for oxygen, high need for cardiac output, right? So again, you're going to get a chronically elevated cardiac output. These two things are going to cause high output heart failure. High output heart failure, okay? Now, iron deficiency anemia in a six-year-old male with intermittent right lower quadrant pain, right? You see, that's the terminal ileum area, right? Terminal ileum area. That's going to be Meckel's diverticulum, right? Meckel's diverticulum. And how do we diagnose Meckel's? Remember, they're going to go do a technician 99M scan, right? A technician 99M scan. And you're going to fix it with surgery, right? You're going to fix it with surgery. We'll say some more things about Meckel's later today. Right? So remember, the reason that they have this bleeding is because they have literally like uh, um, ectopic like gastric tissue. There's ectopic gastric tissue secreting acid. So it's literally leaching away those people's GI tracts. Okay. Now the next one says dysphagia with low ferritin, increased TIBC, and decreased transferring saturation. So we're like, huh, divine. This looks a lot like iron deficiency anemia. Well, you notice they have swallowing problems. This is easy, right? This is going to be plumber Vincent syndrome. This person has plumber Vincent syndrome. Plumber Vincent syndrome. Now, 23-year-old male presents to the physician with a two-week history of mouth pain in his right thigh. Physical exam is notable for a hard, palpable mass in the involved extremity. Right? So you're like, huh. This person had trauma before, but now... Now, seeing this rock hard mass, the patient was mistakenly hit in the right thigh with a baseball bat six weeks ago. This is something called myositis ossificans. Myositis ossificans, right? This is something called myositis ossificans, right? This is something called myositis ossificans. Okay. Now, question 62. A meta-analysis is conducted to see if exercise leads to a lower hemoglobin A1C level. To accomplish these goals, four randomized control trials are examined. These studies focused on two patient groups. In the first group, patients exercised regularly and their hemoglobin A1C was measured at regular intervals. In the second group, patients did not exercise and their hemoglobin A1C was also measured at regular intervals. The differences in hemoglobin A1C along with calculated 95% Confidence intervals are 
So we look at this. Group A, we see negative 0.2, right? And we notice that the confidence interval is from negative 1.26 to 1. Second group, negative 0.4. We see the confidence interval is from negative 0.75 to 0.25. Third group, 0 0.3. You see the confidence interval from negative 0.45 to 1. We see group 4, negative 0.77. And the confidence interval is from negative 1.95 to 0.79. So which of the following could be best concluded from an analysis of these study results? Which of the following can be best concluded? So I want to see in the chat box, what do we think? What do we think? What do we think? What do we think? Very good. Right? So for people that are seeing D, why are you seeing that? You agree, but why? I didn't realize it was a question. Why? Very good. It crosses zero, right? Confidence interval crosses zero. Remember, whenever you're doing something, right? Whenever you're doing something and you're comparing like differences, right? When you're subtracting one thing from the other, the confidence interval should never include zero, right? The confidence interval should never include zero. So because the confidence interval includes zero for all these studies, there are no significant differences here, right? So the correct answer here is D. Right? The great answer here is D. Right? So, a follow-up question here says, what do your friends at the MDME expect you to know about forest plots? We will discuss this some more in session. So let's draw, draw a forest plot. Right? There are things you need to know how to do in exams. Not draw it, but interpret it. So let's just create our point, right? So let's say this is 0. Let's say this is negative 1. And let's say this is negative 2. Let's say this is positive 1. Let's see. This is positive two, right? So let's say this is group A, group B, group C, group D. For group A, we say the confidence interval is from negative one point two six to one. Negative one point two six to one. So negative one point two six is from here. So this is A. Negative one point two six all the way to one. This is group A. Group B is negative point seven five to 0 0.25, so it's going to be somewhere around here, negative 0.75, right, to 0 0.25, this is group B, right, group C is negative 0 0.45 to 1, so negative 0 0.45 is somewhere around here, all the way to 1, that's group C, and then group D is negative 1.95, so they're right around here, negative 1.95, all the way to 0 0.79, so just under 0, so something like this, right? So do you see clearly by this diagram why these results are not significant? You see that these bars all cross each other, right? Whenever you have bars all crossing each other, those results are not significant, right? So that's why the answer here is D, okay? Are we all clear on that? Are we all clear on that? Okay, perfect. Okay, so high yield associations to keep in mind with confidence intervals and odds ratios, right? Confidence intervals and odds ratios, relative risk and t-test, right? So if you notice here, right, and we're going to be going into some parts that are a little more audience participation, right? So remember confidence intervals, right? Confidence intervals and uh, confidence intervals, right? 
So that's like something, right? Look at this. Odds ratio, relative risk, t-test. Let's call this one, two, and three. A t-test is a difference of means, right? In a t-test, we're doing a difference of means. So what should the confidence interval not include? Put in the chat box. What should the confidence interval not include if you're doing a t-test? For you to have significant results, what should the confidence intervals not include? Very good. It should not include zero, right? Because again, if you're subtracting one thing from the other, the confidence interval includes zero. That means at some point in the study, you have similar results for both, right? How about for odds ratios and relative risks? What should the confidence intervals not include? What should the confidence intervals not include? It should not include the number one, right? It should not include the number one, right? Because again, if you divide two things and you get a result of one, that means well, at some point, all of those things in the numerator and denominator are the same, okay? Again, it just makes a lot of logical sense. Now, the next question here, question 63, says, increased INR in a newly diagnosed HIV patient with a history of HIV that is currently well controlled with metoprolol. His CD4 count measured three weeks ago was 45. He was tied on highly active antiretroviral therapy and appropriate prophylactic measures, right? So notice that hmm, this person's INR is going up, right? is going up. And they recently started like heart therapy and prophylactic measures. I want you to think, they love to test this interaction. Think of this battery, trimethoprim sulfur methoxazole interaction, right? TMPASMX. TMPASMX inhibits CYP2C9, CYP2C9. And that's something that metabolizes warfarin, okay? That's something that metabolizes warfarin, right? So that's why this person's is having a supertherapeutic INR, okay? Now, what is the big abnormality to keep in mind with Bactrim? Bactrim actually causes hyperkalemia. Bactrim causes hyperkalemia. It raises your potassium. The reasoning here is that Bactrim actually blocks emic channels. Bactrim basically works like a potassium sparing diuretic, right? Bactrim blocks emic channels. It literally works as a potassium sparing diuretic, right? So that's why it can increase the person's risk of hyperkalemia. Again, that's very high yield to know for exams. Now, what are some other classic drugs that cause hyperkalemia on MD exams? Well, we know your ACE inhibitors, ARBs, right? ACE inhibitors and ARBs, right? Because remember, aldosterone, it makes you pee potassium. So if you give an ACE inhibitor, you will not form angiotensin 2. If you don't form angiotensin 2, the aldosterone is going to be low. Right? So you're not going to be able to be potassium anymore. So you're going to get hyperkalemia. Right? Remember, we also see hyperkalemia in people that are taking cyclosporine. Cyclosporine is an immunosuppressant, but it's also an aldosterone receptor antagonist. Right? Cyclosporine is an aldosterone receptor antagonist. Right? Another classic one is digoxin. Digoxin, right, it inhibits the sodium-potassium ATP spot, Right? It inhibits the sodium-potassium ATPase pump, right? The sodium-potassium ATPase pump. If you inhibit that, remember, normally that pump takes three sodiums out of cells and puts two potassiums into cells. But if you inhibit that pump, you're not going to be able to put potassiums into cells anymore. So it's going to stay outside the cells. You're going to get hyperkalemia, right? And then, don't forget uh, uh, succinylcholine. That's another classic one on exams. Succinylcholine. Succinylcholine basically 
keeps potassium channels open, right? It keeps potassium channels open. So potassium can keep flowing out of the cell, right? And that will cause the person to have hyperkalemia, right? That will cause the person to have hyperkalemia. And then another classic one they love on exams is heparin, right? Heparin actually causes atrophy of your zona glomerulosa. It causes atrophy of your zona glomerulosa. So guess what? You're not going to be making aldosterone. If you're not making aldosterone, I don't know, you're not going to be peeing out potassium, so you have hyperkalemia. Drugs that cause hyperkalemia are very high yield to know for your exam. Now the next one says, increased creatinine and red urine in a 47-year-old male with a history of diabetes who was recently started on appropriate therapy after he was found to have an LDL cholesterol of 175. The LDL is 175, right? And he started him on statins. And you notice that his urine is red. If you see this, this is easy. This person has rhabdomyolysis, right? This person has rhabdomyolysis. Now, what is the classic home product that increases toxicity? This is actually going to be alcohol, right? If you're an alcoholic, remember, chronic alcoholism Right? Uh, oh, sorry. Acute alcoholism, right? That actually inhibits cytochrome P450. Right? So you're going to have buildup of statins, and that can cause problems. Now, treatment failures in individuals ingesting antacids. What do I mean by this? I just mean like, are there certain drugs you can take while you're taking an antacid? We're like, wow, these drugs will not work. The key ones I want you to keep in mind, I want you to keep tetracyclines in mind. I want you to keep fluoroquinolones in mind. And I want you to keep thyroid hormone in mind. Basically, these things are chelated very extensively by those cations in antacids. Again, some of this stuff may sound weird, but it's floridly high yield to know for your exams. I definitely know this for exams if I were you. Now, the next one says, patient started on therapy for hypertension who subsequently develops constipation and peripheral edema, right? So this person was started on therapy for hypertension and then you notice that they have constipation, right? So they are smooth muscles in the IGI tracts not working well and they have peripheral edema. I want you to think about calcium channel blockers, calcium channel blockers. Calcium channel blockers, if you block calcium channels, your smooth muscle will not work well. If it doesn't work well, right? going to have constipation, right? Because you're not going to be propelling food along in your GI tract. And these drugs also cause peripheral edema. Now, pharmacologic agents on MDMEs with the following side effects, right? So the first one is crystalline nephropathy. I put like AIT to help you remember that uh, nephrolithiasis is caused by acyclovir, the HIV drug in Dinavir, and then the anti-epileptic, we've talked about this already, to pyramid. To pyramid, right? And then if you're seeing pancreatitis, if you're seeing pancreatitis, I want you to think more along the lines of stavudine, stavudine, and didanosine. Stavudine and didanosine. Stavudine and didanosine. Okay. Now, question 64. A study is done to test a new drug for advanced small cell lung cancer, okay? Patients enrolled in the study were divided into one of two groups. One group, 200 patients, received standard treatment plus the new drug. 
The other group, 200 patients, received standard treatment plus placebo. After a one-year follow-up period, 60 patients in the placebo group died. In the group receiving the new drug, 40 patients died. Right? How many patients? And again, don't worry, we're almost, you know, we're, we're going to be taking a two-hour break very soon. Um, how many patients must be treated with a new drug to prevent the death of one patient? Right? How many patients will be treated with a new drug to prevent the death of one patient? So let me ask you this. What kind of, what biostatistical quantity am I fishing for here? Let's put it in the chat box. What am I trying to calculate here? Very good. Number needed to treat. Right? We're trying to calculate the number needed to treat. Again, people do all these crazy formulas. I, I don't know how to use those things. Right? Well, I do know, but I choose not to because it doesn't make sense to do that. Right? So what is the risk of death in the placebo group? What is the risk of death in the placebo group? How do we calculate that? What, or what do people think? Tell me the number. What's the risk of death in the placebo group? It's 30%. Because 60 people out of 200, they died, right? So if you do this, this is three times. That's 30%. Now, what's the risk, right, of death in the group that got uh, the drug for advanced small cell lung cancer? What's their risk of death there? Come on. Tell me. It's 20%, right? Because there were 200 people in that group, right? And 40 of them died. 40 out of 200 is one-fifth, right? So that's 20%. So by how much is your risk decreased because you got this drug? By how much is your risk decreased because you got this drug? By how much is your risk decreased because you got this drug? Very good. 10%, right? 10%. Right? You just take the difference in these risks, 30 minus 20, right? And 10% goes into 100% 10 times, right? So what's the number needed to treat here? What is the number needed to treat here? It's 10. Very good. The number needed to treat is 10. Again, you just basically take the difference in risks and divide it into 100%. That so That's how you do your NMT. Okay. Now, is a larger number needed to treat better? than a smaller number needed to treat. Which one do you prefer? You want a larger number or a smaller number? You want something smaller, right? Because if something is smaller, if you have a smaller number needed to treat, it means the drug is really effective, right? You don't have to give it to many people. It's almost like everyone that gets it is going to get a very big benefit from it, right? It's going to get a really big benefit from it. Again, we don't calculate number needed to treat as a percent of the population. We don't do that. Okay. Now, by how much has mortality been reduced in the group taking this drug? By how much has mortality been reduced? What biostatistical quantity am I trying to go for here? By how much has mortality been reduced? What biostatistical quantity am I trying to calculate? By how much has mortality been reduced? Very good. This is the absolute risk reduction, right? And remember, the absolute risk reduction is just a difference of risks, right? So it's just 30% minus 20%, which is 10%, right? Which is 10%. Now, in what situation is an intervention still employed, even with a high number needed to treat, right? Again, the big thing you want to keep in mind here is when the disease is very lethal, right? Like, for example, there is this famous drug that came out last year for COVID, right? 
Uh, I'm not going to say the name of the drug because I don't know who's listening here. But basically, this drug is to give it, right? It's like an RNA polymerase inhibitor. But this drug basically doesn't really work. It really doesn't help. The number needed to treat is astronomical. But if a person gets severe COVID and they get on a vent, they're probably going to die. So like, you know what? No matter what the number needed to treat is, just go ahead and give this person this drug, right? So if the disease is lethal, you're not going to care. You're just going to give whatever drug, okay? Does this make sense? Okay, perfect. All right. I'm going to erase this so we can move on up. Question 65. Right, let's do question 65. So question 65 says, what kinds of errors slash right decisions are made given the following scenarios? Right? Again, it's going to be audience participation, right? So the first one says, rejecting the null hypothesis when the null hypothesis is false. Is that the right thing to do? The null hypothesis is false, and you're like, well, I'm going to reject it. Is that the right thing to do? The null hypothesis is false, and you're like, oh, okay. I'm not going to accept it. Is that the right thing to do? It is the right thing to do, right? This is a correct decision. This is a correct decision. If the null hypothesis is false, you shouldn't be accepting it, right? Okay. Let's do the final one here before we go to the ones in the middle. Accepting the null hypothesis when it's true. If the null hypothesis is true, are you supposed to accept it? Yes. Very good. That's a correct decision. Okay. Now, Let's see the next one. So this one in the middle. Accepting the null hypothesis when the null hypothesis is false. So you're saying like, oh, there are no significant differences. Well, there are actually significant differences. What kind of error is that? What kind of error is that? What kind of error is that? That's a type 2 error, right? So remember, a type 2 error is what is called the beta error, right? You're like saying, hmm, there are no significant differences. Well, that's not true. There are actually significant differences. That's a type 2 error. Error. Now, next one says rejecting the null hypothesis when the null hypothesis is true. So you're saying, oh, there are no significant differences. I mean, you're saying, oh, there are significant differences. Well, there are actually no significant differences. What kind of error is that? What kind of error is that? That's a type 1 error, right? The best way to remember these things, I tell people, is to remember one and then take opposites for the next one. Right? Most times in my experience with teaching, because I've again thought thousands of people for this exam, type two errors are usually easy to remember for most people. Okay. Okay. Now, how can you increase the power of a research study? Right? I want you to tell me how can we increase the power of a research study? How can we increase the power of an research study? Very good, right? They want to increase the sample size, right? One thing you can do is to increase the sample size. Right, because let's say, for example, you're trying to study like uh, study like you're gonna try to study something in medical students, and you study only two medical students. Well, those two medical students are probably not representative of medical students all over the world, right? Or in the U.S. Well, let's say you take oh, you know what? I'm gonna take twenty thousand medical students. That's a huge sample size, right? You're gonna get some. You're gonna get more powerful results, right? Second thing you're gonna do is to increase the effect size, right? The easiest way to explain this, let me give you a nice party trick here. So let's say I design a study. I'm like, huh, I want to find differences in study habits between people that get a 270 on step two and people that get a 271 on step two. 
Are you going to find anything from that study? No, right? Because would I get 270 and would I get 271? You probably do very similar things. What if you're trying to find differences, right? Between people that get a 199 on step two and people that get a 270 on step two, are you going to find something? Absolutely. Because the score, you're not going to get a 199, right? You're not going to get a 199, right? But the difference is so great. The people that got a 199, they probably didn't do deadly squat in studying, but they are awful test takers, right? But the people that got a 270, they probably did something right. There's going to be very notable things you're going to see. That's an increased effect size, right? That's an increased effect size. Now, let me ask you this. How does increasing the p-value affect the probability of having a type 1 error? If you increase the p-value, what will it do to your risk of having a type 1 error? So let's say that the p-value normally is 0.05. And you're like, you know what? I'm going to raise it to 0.9. Let's do something crazy. Raise it to 0.9. What is that going to do to your risk of a type 1 error? Is that going to increase your risk of a type 1 error or decrease your risk of a type 1 error? Is going to increase your risk. Can someone explain why? Why? In simple terms, in the chat box, why does that increase your risk of a type 1 error? Uh, you know, 1 minus alpha is great, but I need more than that. Significant. Yes, your threshold is lower for saying something is significant, right? Oh. Right? You have a exactly you have an increased probability of your results being due to chance, right? Because it's almost like you're going from oh five percent probability of my result being due to chance to ninety percent, right? So your risk of a type one error increase when you do when you raise the p value. And your risk of a type 2 error is going to go down. Okay? Your risk of a type type 2 error will go down when you increase the p-value. Does that make sense? Okay. Again, I know it's it's kind of like a roundabout way to look at p-values. But this is something people see on an exam, and then they start sweating. Right? You don't have to sweat. It's actually very simple. You just think about it. Right? Now, question 66 are type 1 and type 2 errors always inversely correlated? For the most part, yes. For the most part, yes. Look at what I said. For the most part. Again, if you're going into like, you're getting like an epidemiology PhD, you probably have a different conversation. But for the US is absolutely. That is a good rule to follow. Okay? Yeah, there are many things you learn in men's are actually not true. But that's a, a whole different conversation. Okay. Like that thing they say about like, uh, primary sclerosing cholangitis being P and T. That is not true at all. I'll tell you that right now. Right? But again, for the USMLEs, absolutely, that's what you're supposed to do. But it's just wrong. It's just wrong. But that's a different conversation. Okay. Now, question 66 says, in a study examining the relationship between taking back trip and the subsequent risk of developing thrombocytopenia, medical records of 300 children were investigated with the results shown in the table below. What is the odds ratio in this study? So guess what people will be doing? I'm sure people will be doing C minus No, please don't do that. That is just not wise. Let's put it that way. That is not wise. I'll tell you that. How do you do odds ratios? Odds ratios, easy. Let me teach you a simple formula. The simple formula is the legit people product divided by the odd 
people product. So think about it. We see Bactrim here and thrombocytopenia here. If you got exposed to Bactrim, it would make sense that you develop thrombocytopenia, right? You got the risk factor, you develop the disease. That makes sense, right? So how many people here got Bactrim and got thrombocytopenia? Again, let's try in the chat box. How many people here got Bactrim and got thrombocytopenia? A hundred, right? Makes sense. You took Bactrim, you got thrombocytopenia. The other people that make sense are people that did not get back through and did not get thrombocytopenia. If you didn't take the risk factor, you shouldn't get the problem. How many people fall into that category? 80. Very good. Okay. Now, the people that make no sense, the odd people, right? You see, if you got back through, it makes no sense that you did not get thrombocytopenia, right? So, how many people got back through or they did not get thrombocytopenia. How many people got back train or did not get thrombocytopenia? How many people got back train or did you not get thrombocytopenia? Very good. That's 50. And then, how many people did not get back train or they got thrombocytopenia? That doesn't make any sense. You didn't take back train. You're getting thrombocytopenia. Very good. That's oh, 70 people. Oh, okay. Right? This is 8,000 over 3,500. Right? Flush out the zeros, right? So, you know, 35 goes into 80 twice. You know, 10 over 35 is like a third. So that's like 2.3, right? That's it. I know it took me time to explain to you, but if you do this, then you don't have to remember pretty much anything, right? Because again, that A over B is, you're just setting yourself up to potentially misplace a number. Then you mess things up. Just follow this formula, and all your problems go away. Does this make sense? Does this make sense? This is a very nice, easy formula to use. It makes your life profoundly simple. Okay. Let's go to the next page. All right. Okay. So question 67. Again, audience participation, right? So, please, I know some of you are tired, but just wake up. Right? Wake up, right? Wake up from your sleep. I need you now, right? Don't disappoint me, right? Don't be the kind of person that walks with me all the way and then you drop me now. No, no. Bring this together. Okay. So let's try a question. Oh, I mean PDT, product, right? So let's do question 67. Now, serum homocysteine levels for two groups of Americans were recorded in 2012. The mean homocysteine level for a group of 28 African Americans was 271. And 184 for a group of 28 Asian Americans. To determine if these results were significantly different, a MET-21 student performed a statistical analysis as part of like, you know, some scholarly project. It's something that's common in MET schools in the US. Which of the following tests was most likely used by the student in his analysis, right? So what do we think? What test did we use here? What test did we use here, right? What test did we use here? Come on, there's more than 10 people. I hope people are not sleeping. That's not good. <laughs> that, that will not be good at all. Right? Very good. Right? So the right answer here is E. Right? So how many groups are we comparing their means? How many groups? Two. How many groups are we comparing? Two. If you're comparing the means of two groups, that's where you do a student's T-test. But if you're comparing the means of more than two groups, what test do you use? If you're comparing the means of more than two groups, 
What test do you use? You use ANOVA. Very good. Use ANOVA. Okay. Now, question 68 says, the complete loss of all sensation and cranial nerve function with the sparing of extraocular muscle movement is associated with an aneurysm of which of the following arteries? Right? So, you see this person, they've lost everything. All sensation. In fact, they probably lost all motor function. They've lost everything. The only thing that is working are their eyes. What kind of syndrome does this person have? What kind of syndrome does this person have? Very good. This person has locked-in syndrome. Right? This person has locked-in syndrome. If you have locked-in syndrome, which of these arteries, A, B, C, D, E, or F, is affected? Which one? A. Okay, let me ask. What artery is A? What artery is A? What artery is A? Very good. It's the basilar artery, right? It's the basilar artery. It's the basilar artery, right? That's a major artery that supplies your pumps. If your basilar artery doesn't work, everything in your pumps is dead. So all your descending and ascending pathways, bye-bye. That person is screwed, right? I think I've actually seen one person that kind of had like a locked-in syndrome presentation. But that was, I think, because they had like some kind of ALS. It's terrible. Literally, they can only use their eyes to work. So this back in the day, med school. Okay. So let's keep going. So the answer is A, right? That's the basilar artery. All right. Okay. Oh, written a book by Blinken. Wow. Yeah, I know. That's the thing. Sometimes you see people in life and you're like, man, I better, I have like no complaints as to why I sleep around all day and I'm not productive, right? I mean, you can only use your eyes and they still wrote a book. And then some of us were like, oh, man, you've never achieved anything, right? I think that's a call to like, you know, like basically work harder. <laughs> uh, at least the med school I went to, I always saw people like that where I'm like, man, Devine, you got to work harder than this. You got to work harder than this. Okay, but again, different story. Okay, question 69. A 72-year-old male with a suspected ischemic stroke is rushed to the ER by paramedics. A rapid neurological exam performed on admission reveals total right-sided hemiplegia. When asked to stretch the tongue, Total leftward deviation is noted. Labs obtained 30 minutes after admission reveal a blood glucose of 30 with rapid correction by the administration of 2 grams of dextrose. The most likely location of the lesion that explains these findings is what? That explains these findings is what? Okay. Right? So, let's see more answers. <clears throat> let's see more answers. Okay, so most people are getting this right. right? So, the thing is, again, this is a brainstem syndrome question. What did I say about brainstem syndromes? Right? Again, if you see pain and temperature symptoms on one side of the face and on the opposite side of the body, Right? That tells you that it's a lateral, that's a classic signature for a lateral brainstem stroke. But if you notice that in the question there is nothing wrong with pain and temperature, that's a medial brainstem stroke. That's a very nice party trick to use on exams. If you see pain and temperature problems, it's a lateral brainstem stroke. If you don't, it's a medial brainstem stroke. So all these things that have lateral in them, you can pretty much cross them out. Lateral, blah, blah, blah. blah. 
right? So we're just left with media, right? So now, what cranial nerve do we see affected here? What cranial nerve? Because many times, that cranial nerve will tell you what you're dealing with, cranial 12. And cranial 12 is where? Cranial 12 is where? It's in the, it's where? Come on, medulla, right? It's in the medulla, right? It's in the medulla. So all these things that deal with pawns, midbrain, you know, those are all wrong, right? It's in the medulla. Now, what was that trick I gave you for lateral brainstem syndromes? That is also the same for medial brainstem syndromes. I said that the right, the correct side will be the same side as the face where they have symptoms. So what side of the face are these symptoms? What side of the face are these symptoms? It's on the left. There you go. So the answer here is G, right? Again, and also many times, right, you know, leftward deviation of the tongue, right? Remember, in a cranial 12 problem, the tongue would deviate towards the side of the lesion. The tongue would deviate towards the side of the lesion. That's very high yield to know, right? And again, you can also say the opposite side as the body, right? We have problems on the uh, right side, right? So you take the opposite side, so it's the left. So that's, that's the correct answer. So the answer here is G. Okay. Question 70 says we have a 67-year-old man with a history of chronic gastritis, presents with increasing fatigue and a tingly sensation in his toes and fingers that have worsened over the past few months. Blood work is performed with results revealing a hemoglobin of 10 and an MCV of 117. Which of the following patient profiles presents with the most similarity to the pathophysiology underlying the symptoms present in a 67-year-old patient? What do we think? What do we think? Okay, so for those choosing D, why? Defend yourself. Why are you saying D? What does this person have? Yeah, you're missing your intestines. Very good. B twelve deficiency, terminal ileum, right? Remember, when a person has Crohn's disease, it's gonna torch the terminal ileum, right? So many people that have Crohn's disease can develop a B twelve deficiency, right? Very good. So that's why the correct answer here is D. Okay, that's why the correct answer here is D. Very good. All right. Okay. Now, question 71 says, match the lab measurements to the most likely pathology, right? So again, just a different way of testing something we've sort of kind of talked about, right? So look at option A. So these are all the options, right? You tell me which one matches. So look at this person for A. And again, I need the audience. Help me out here. I want to learn him up today, <laughs> right? So the person's platelet count in A is low. And the bleeding time is high. But the PT and the PTT are both normal. What do we think? Platelet count is low, bleeding time is high, but PT and PTT are both normal. What is this? What is this? Very good. This person has thrombocytopenia. This is F, right? This person has low platelets. Because if you have low platelets, well, I don't know, your platelet count is going to be low. If your platelet count is low, your, whenever you have a platelet problem, your bleeding time is always going to be high, right? And your PT, PT and PTT are both normal. Very good. Now, oh, next one says your platelet count is normal, but your bleeding time is increased. Hmm. Well, your PT and your PTT are both normal. Your PT and PTT are both normal. What is this? What is this? What is this? 
For people that are picking option E, in von Willebrand disease, is your PTT normal? No, your PTT. In Willebrand disease, is your PTT yeah, normal? No, because von Willebrand factor increases the half life of factor eight, right? So that's wrong, right? So the right answer here is B, because if you take aspirin, it inhibits your platelets. It doesn't kill them, but it just makes them like impotent, right? That's maybe like a more telling word to remember. It makes your platelets impotent. So if your platelets are impotent, right? They are around, but they don't work. Right? Very good. So the answer is B. So look at the next one. Platelet count is normal. Bleeding time is normal. PT is normal. The only thing that's abnormal is the elevated PTT. What does this person have? What does this person have? What does this person have? Right? This person has hemophilia, right? Because remember, hemophilia A is a deficiency of factor 8. So that's part of the intrinsic coagulation cascade. So your PTT goes up. Okay, look at the next one. Everything here is bad, right? Bleeding count is down, bleeding time is up, PT, PTT are both elevated. What is that? Everything that could go wrong has gone wrong for this person, right? This is DIC, right? You don't want to be, trust me, you don't want to be this person, right? This person is screwed. Okay. Next one says normal platelet count, normal bleeding time, but the PT and PTT are both elevated. Normal platelet count, normal bleeding time, or both are elevated. Good. This is heparin and warfarin, right? The NBME, they love to do this because they know that people have learned, oh, so fine, in med school, they taught me that we follow heparin with PTT and we follow warfarin with INR or PT. But remember, warfarin inhibits factor 2. Heparin inhibits factor 2. So guess what? Both of your pathways will have increased numbers associated with them. Even if we use PTT to follow heparin, it doesn't mean that your PTT does not rise with uh, your, your PT doesn't rise with heparin administration. So that's correct. The answer is A. How about the last one? Bleeding time is up. PTT is up. We've talked about this many, many times. Many, many times. What is that? Very good. That's von Willebrand disease, right? Because again, von Willebrand factor increases the half-life of factor 8. Excellent. Now, question 72 says, we have a 55-year-old male. He comes to his PCP in the fall for a routine checkup. He has a history of hypertension and dyslipidemia. He appears to be in good health and follows his physician's advice of consuming a healthy diet rich in fruits and veggies, in addition to regular exercise. His CBC is within normal limits. His sodium is fine. His potassium is crazy high. Chloride is 101. Mag is 2.1. Calcium is 8.9. Albumin is 4.5. That's normal. BUN is fine. Creatinine is fine. Normal sinus rhythm. Normal physical exam. What is the next best step in the management of this patient? What is the next best step in the management of this patient? Come on, let me get a few more answers. What is the next best step in the management of this patient? Again, notice the bulk of this question shows a normal patient. Literally, the only thing that is abnormal is the potassium. But the bulk of the question shows, oh, this patient is normal. This patient is normal. So what do we think the right answer here is? Very good. You recheck. Because this question, the bulk of it is focusing on benign, 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 benign. Well, you see, just the potassium is high, right? You're still going to go with what the bulk of the question is saying. So you're going to recheck this, right? If your potassium is 7.9, you're probably dead on the ice, right? <laughs> so again, that's not normal. You probably got a hemolyzed sample. So that's why the... Uh, exactly. That, no, that's precisely what happened. That that's why the answer is, is C. I know. Okay? Are we good on this? Are we good on this? Come on, guys. We're going to be done soon. Are we good on this? People are not sleeping. Well, it would be bad. I'll be very displeased. 
Okay, good. So let's go on to the next page. All right. Okay. So question seventy-three says. Question seventy-three says a nineteen-year-old male is brought to the ED by his parents with a twelve-hour history of dyspnea and palpitations. Pulmonary and cardiac exams are unremarkable. The patient is placed on telemetry, which shows sinus tachycardia and two white bizarre QRS complexes. His CBC, CMP, and D-dimer are within normal limits. The best description of the D-dimer test in this patient population is a test with, what do we think? What do we think? So let me ask you this. Is this person low risk or high risk for a PE? Is this person low risk or high risk? There you go. They are low risk. Right? That's why we do the D-dimer because the D-dimer is very sensitive for diagnosing PEs. Right? So it's a high sensitivity test. And when a test has a high sensitivity, what can you tell me about the MPV? Is it going to be high or low? If the sensitivity is high, what's going to be true of the MPV? It's going to be high. Right? And an easy way to remember that is you see N in sensitivity, there's an N in NPV, right? Now, D-dimer, right, is very sensitive. But there are many things that can cause elevated D-dimer. If you even work out, your D-dimer will be elevated. So is your D-dimer test very specific? It's not, right? It's not specific, right? So it has low specificity. And again, if your specificity is low, your PPV is going to be low. So you see P in specificity, P in PPV. So the right answer here is D. Okay? The right answer here is D. Very good. Now, question 74 says, a 44-year-old female with chronic beta thalassemia minor comes to an infusion center for a scheduled patriot blood cell, right? So blood transfusion for symptomatic anemia. Five minutes into the transfusion, her blood pressure is 65 over palpable. She's tachypneic. She's tachycardic. She's febrile. She complains of difficulty breathing and diffuse wheezing is heard on chest auscultation. Physical exam is notable for flank pain. Okay. Suprapipic catheterization obtained on the way to the ICU shows hematuria. What is the most likely mechanism that explains this patient's findings? What is the most likely mechanism that explains this patient's findings? What do we think? What do we think? It was really quite I'm gonna say. What kind of transfusion reaction is this? What kind of transfusion reaction is this? Acute hemolytic. Again, don't focus on one sentence. Focus on the bulk of the question. There is literally one sentence that's talking about the curve or which, which uh, transfusion reaction are multiple sentences talking about. It's acute hemolytic, right? It's acute hemolytic transfusion reaction. Again, the answer choice that has more sentences supporting it wins, right? So, yes, there are some things here that say anaphylactic, but you see flank pain here, you see hematuria, right? Again, and also, acute hemolytic transfusion reaction can happen as quickly as anaphylactic as well, right? So the correct answer here is C, right? You have an antibody formed against your red blood cell hmm. antigens. That question 75 says, resolving head B serologies on MBMEs, right? So this thing people memorize, okay, uh, this, I do the, the, the. 
AB negative, this positive, this positive, that negative, da 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 da. No. You're doing it all wrong. I'll tell you that right now. You're literally doing it all wrong. And, uh, so, how do you handle these AB serology questions? It will make your life supremely easy. Here is all you're supposed to do. Again, I promise you, this thing will literally change your life, right? Look at the happy surface antigen. If the happy surface antigen is positive, it means you are infected. If the happy surface antigen is positive, it means you have infection. So there are two ways you can have infection. You can have an infection that is acute. You can have an infection that is chronic. How do you know you have an acute infection? Well, check the core antibody. The core antibody will be IgM positive. If it's chronic infection, the core antibody will be IgG positive. That's it. On the flip side, if your heavy surface antigen is negative, it means you have no infection. It means you have no infection. So there are two ways you can have no infection. You can either have been vaccinated. In that case, your core antibody will be negative because the core antigen is not part of the vaccine, so you don't make antibodies against it. Or you could have been infected before, but you recovered. So because you recovered, your core antibody will be positive because the fact that you got infection means you're exposed to core antigen. That's literally it. If you understand this, you will always get your heavy serology questions right. Does that make sense? Yes. This thing I just explained, does it make sense? Perfect. Yeah. It will make your life super easy. Right? To be honest with you, I pretty much never memorize those heavy serologies. This makes sense. This is a much simpler approach. Okay. Let's do the next page, and then I will take people's questions. So I may go a little bit over 350 Pacific time. Let's just do this. It's a short page, so we know we come back for the peaks, and then we're done. Right? So let's just do this next page really quickly. Right? Now, the MDME and diarrhea. Although this page should take us like two minutes to pretty pretty short. Now, match the following diarrheal scenarios, right, to the most likely of any so what we diarrhea after returning from a trip? Right? That's traveler's diarrhea, right? That's going to be E-tech, enterotoxigenic E. coli, right? Now, watery diarrhea with rice water stools. We know this. Oh right? This is cholera. cholera. It's going to be vibrio cholera, right? Watery diarrhea in a hiker, right? In a hiker or a camper. In a hiker or a camper. In a hiker or a camper. If you see this, right, it's going to be giardia. Right? Remember, Giardia, we're going to treat it with metronidazole. Right? Treat Giardia with metronidazole. Now, watery diarrhea on a cruise ship, right? Many of us know this one affectionately. Right? This is norovirus. Right? Norovirus. Okay? Now, outbreak in a hospital ICU. If you see a diarrheal outbreak, we've talked about this already. That's also going to be norovirus. Now, watery diarrhea in an infant. What's the most common cause of diarrhea in infants? It's going to be rotavirus. Right? Rotavirus. Now, watery diarrhea in an AIDS patient. Right? You see an AIDS patient with diarrhea. Right? 
that's going to be cryptosporidium. We've talked about many of these things already. Cryptosporidium. Now, bloody diarrhea after consuming poultry or eggs, right? Poultry, eggs. If you see that, I want you to think of salmonella. Salmonella enteritidis. Not salmonella typhi. Salmonella enteritidis. Now, most common cause of bloody diarrhea in the U.S., right? This is easy, right? This is Campylobacter jejuni. Campylobacter, Campylobacter jejuni, right? And then if you see diarrhea and eight sending paralysis, that's pretty easy. This person has Guillain-Barre syndrome. Right? This person has Guillain-Barre syndrome. Now, diarrhea after treatment for an anaerobic infection. Right? So this person got antibiotics. You see diarrhea with antibiotic exposure. It could be watery. It could be bloody. Doesn't matter. This is C. diff. So I'll say that again. C. diff can cause both watery and bloody diarrhea on Indians. Now, diarrhea that feels like appendicitis after consuming pork, right? So they'll have right lower quadrant pain. This is easy, right? This is going to be Yersinia. Yersinia enterocolitica. Yersinia enterocolitica. Now, protozoal cause of bloody diarrhea. Many times people have diarrhea. And then they will have a liver abscess. Usually they'll tell you that, oh, the liver abscess has an anchovy paste consistency. If you see stuff like that, I want you to think about entamoeba histolytica. Entamoeba histolytica. Entamoeba histolytica. And you treat this with metronidazole. Now, bloody diarrhea requiring a small inoculum. So like 10 bugs alone can cause your bloody diarrhea. This is going to be shigella. Right? Now, bloody diarrhea and hemolytic <coughs> syndrome, right? This can be Shigella, but this can also be E. coli, right? O157H7. E. coli O157H7. Now, diarrhea after consuming oysters or seafood, right? You see, like a seafood association. I want you to think about Vibrio parahemolyticus. Vibrio parahemolyticus. Vibrio parahemolyticus. Right now, diarrhea after consuming oysters with elevated LFTs, right? This is going to be vibrio vonificus. Like, once you see that liver relationship, always think of vibrio vonificus. Now, diarrhea after swimming in fresh water, this one rarely shows up on exams. When it shows up, most people get it wrong. If you see that fresh water association, I want you to think of aeromonas. Aeromonas. A E R O M O N A S. Aeromonas. Now, diarrhea with massive amounts of fluid and electrolyte loss, right? This is easy, right? It's going to be vibrio coloring. Vibrio coloring, right? Diarrhea after consuming reheated rice. I actually had this back in the day. Oh, this is bad. You literally, like, just basically, like, start living in your restroom for a while, right? This is bacillus cereus. I promise you this thing is awful. And it was literally a classic presentation. I ate fried rice, but it was not Chinese. It was Nigerian fried rice and boy. Oh, I regretted it afterwards. I was like, and when I was here, I was like, this thing is weird. Should have listened to my symbol. I was like, this fried rice is all. I love fried rice. So I was like, uh, but after that, I, I progressively got in trouble. It was like one week, it was just awful. Okay. Now, diarrhea two hours after consuming potato salad, right? So most times these people have more vomiting than diarrhea. It's quick onset, quick offset. It's going to be staph aureus. This is going to be staph aureus. Okay. That's going to be staph aureus. Now, final question, and then I'll take questions, and then we'll take our break. 
So a 44-year-old male brings his five-year-old son to the ED with a four-hour history of profuse sweating, drooling, and watery diarrhea. He has never had these symptoms and has been home for the past week. He is hypotensive, bradycardic, he's bradypneic, his respiratory rate is very low. He has wheezing in all lung fields, has bilateral pupillary constriction. His mom has myasthenia gravis, basically, right? His father noticed the pill bottle on the floor of the child's playroom, but cannot remember. They never remember the name of the medication, ever, right? They never remember, right? What is the next best step in the management of this patient? What do we think? What is the next best step in the management of this patient? Right? So what kind of toxidrome does this person have? What kind of toxidrome does this person have? What kind of toxidrome does this person have? Cholinergic. Very good. So we're going to give an anticholinergic agent like atropine. Right? So give atropine first, and then after that, we give predidoxine to regenerate the acetylcholinesterase. Okay? So you give atropine, atropine, atropine first, and then after that you give prelidoxin. So let me go ahead and take people's questions, and then we'll go on from there. We'll take our break after I take people's questions.